Lux presents Hollywood. Lever Brothers Company, the makers of Lux Flakes, bring you the Lux Radio Theater, starring James Mason, Bobby Driscoll, and Nigel Bruce in Treasure Island. Ladies and gentlemen, your producer, Mr. William Keeley. Greetings from Hollywood, ladies and gentlemen. If there is anyone in our audience who has not already read Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson, then I envy you tonight's experience of hearing this exciting adventure story for the first time. You'll make the acquaintance of one of the most famous characters in literature, that fascinating pirate, Long John Silver. And meet young Jim Hawkins, who lived an adventure such as all boys dream about. Treasure Island is also the first picture Walt Disney has produced without his cartoon characters. As the stars of this RKO release, we have James Mason, who I'm sure will now add Long John Silver to his list of fine characterizations. Bobby Driscoll, one of the top young artists of the screen, playing his original role. And that excellent British actor, Nigel Bruce. They all combine to bring Treasure Island vividly to life. And I'm sure all housewives will treasure the new Lux Flakes. You know, it's hard to believe that Lux could be improved in any way. But new Lux with color freshener is more than ever the favorite wardrobe care of Hollywood screen stars. The curtain rises on Treasure Island, starring James Mason as Long John Silver... Bobby Driscoll as Jim Hawkins, and Nigel Bruce as Squire Trelawney. I am leaving for London in the morning. They have convinced me, the Squire and Dr. Livesey, that my education is in sad need of repair, that it is time I thought of becoming a gentleman. I am not reluctant to go. It will be a new world, and I will learn a great deal. But there is much I have already learned, and the thought that I may forget the past, the high adventure of my boyhood, has urged me in the writing of this journal. On the one hand, it was a needless labor, for how shall I ever forget Long John Silver and the voyage of the Hispaniola? On the other hand, time has a way of clouding the past, and it is a comfort to know that the whole story will always be here between the covers of this journal. The year was 1765, and then, as now, the Admiral Benbow Inn belonged to my mother. The wind still blows, the sea still crash, just as they did that late afternoon when the door opened and I saw a stranger on the threshold. Rum, boy. Glass double rum. Yes, sir. Rum, sir. Well, this is a quiet curve for certain. Much company, mate? No, sir. Not much, sir. Now, who'd be the owner here? My mother, she, she's gone into town, sir. Oh, you're all alone, eh? What's your name? Jim Hawkins, sir. And tell me, Jim, ever noticed a seafaring man in this here grog shop? Name of Bones, mate. Captain William Bones. Bones, sir? No matter, boy, no matter. Just fill up the glass. He drank, threw me a coin and left the inn. When I was sure he was gone, I dashed up the stairs. And then he asked for you, Captain. By name, sir. Captain William Bones. What sort of man, Jim? 
A one-legged man? No, sir, but he had a terrible scar, a scar on his face. Black dog. When you sees black dog, boy, you can be sure the man with the one leg ain't far off. Rum, Jim, fetch me rum. But I can't, sir. I promised Dr. Livesey. Come on, boy. I said rum. But you know what he told you? He's... He said it would kill you. Rum for the blood, boy. I got to get me strength again. I dared not leave the inn, and yet I couldn't stand there watching the old captain die before my eyes. I'd have to go for Dr. Livesey. I ran to the door, but as I flung it open, a man loomed up before me. Before I could move, his fingers like iron closed on my wrist. Now then, boy, take me to Captain Billy Bones or I'll break your arm. The man was blind. In his free hand, he carried a knobby stick, lifted now as if ready to strike. I led him across the room, but Captain Bones scarcely raised his eyes. He just sat there as in a trance. This is Captain Bones, sir. It's a friend come a-calling, Bill. It's Pew. Pew with a gift from your old shipmates. Blind Pew. He dropped a piece of paper on the table. Then he grinned and with no further word found his way alone out of the door. On the scrap of paper was a black spot. And two words. Until dark, it says, Jim. The black spot. Until dark. But I... I don't know what you mean. They won't get it out of me. What's rightful mine is mine. Give me a hand, mate. We'll do that one-legged man yet. Help me, Jim. Back to my rooms. Help me. Shaking and gasping, he opened an old sea chest. Then with a knife, he slit the lining of the cover. From it, he took a map. He staggered back for the stairs, but he never reached them. Captain! I'm done, Jim. Bring help, boy. Yes, sir. Right away. Wait. Take the map. Keep the map. They may be back for it before you are, but not a word about it here. Yes, sir. Good boy. No mention of the map, and I'll go shares with you. Skip now, matey, and fast. It was dark when I returned to the inn with Squire Trelawney and Dr. Livesey. The place had been ransacked. We found Captain Bones on the stairs. He was dead. Well, Livesey, what's your verdict? He wasn't killed, Squire. He died of shock or rum. I wonder now what those rascals wanted of him. I... I think I can tell you, sir. Now that he's dead, it... it was this, sir. This was old Jim. It's a map. Odds my life. Look what it says, Doctor. Flint's map. Flint? Flint the pirate? How'd you come by it, lad? He gave it to me, sir. He he said we'd share. Share what, Jim? Pirate treasure lives there. Flint's gold. Oh, come now, Why, stop. everybody knows of the ships that he plundered, but our departed friend seems to be the only one who knew where the treasure's been hid. So that's what the scoundrels wanted. The map of Flint's treasure island. Oh, you're a trump, young Hawkins. Mark my words. You will share. Listen to this, Jim. Spyglass Hill, it says... Bearing south, south-east to finger-trunk tree, thence two cables south... Go on, go on, man, go on, go on, go on. There to larboard, due northeast to foot of White Crag, ten paces east, chest of 700,000 pounds. Bless my soul, bless my soul. Why, with favorable winds and a clue like this, we'll have Flint's gold within the year. And the two of you are coming with me. I'll fit out a ship, I'll... Oh, you speak for yourself, Troy. I have a practice. Hang your practice. Do you think I'd go to sea without a ship's doctor? Furthermore, you assume this map is authentic. (laughs) Assume, do I? Then why were those ruffians here? And why is Captain Bones dead? 
Tell the truth, Flimsy. <laughs> you're, you're frightened. <laughs> scared, scared as a rabbit. There's only one man I'm afraid of. Name the dog. Name him. You, you can't hold your tongue. Blast you. I'll be as silent as the grave. And I'm off to Bristol in the morning. You know, Jim, I believe he means it. I'll find a ship in Bristol and then you and Jim can join me. You'll make a famous cabin boy, Jim. I'll see to that. Ah, his mother may have something to say about that. She'd listen to you, sir, if if she knew you were going. To be sure he's going. I'll wager my wig on it. Squire Trelawney kept his wig. I was still in a delirium of joy when I found myself many days later on the wharves of Bristol. At my side was Dr. Livesey, and standing before us with all the brass of the Lord Admiral himself, Squire Trelawney. Well, we're here, Squire. <laughs> Fools that we are. Look out there in the bay. Hmm? There she rides, gentlemen. A ship. You've got a ship. Three masts, square rigged, with a name Hispaniola. Hispaniola. Oh, she'll bring back all the pirate gold that we can put aboard her. No talk of treasure, I beg you, not in a public place. Oh, no, no, place. no, 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 be sure. Mum's word, mum's word. Well, now, when do we go aboard? Well, you better ask Captain Smollett. Five days he's been selecting a crew. Five days. Cautious, man. Outrageous, huh? When I threatened to step in, he told me to hire a sea cook. So, but sure I did. A chef from Paris, I presume. Oh, none of your little jokes, Livia. Fellow by the name of Long John Silver. I didn't waste good time poring over his credentials either. All I needed was the taste of his ham and, and his buttered eggs. That's his own tavern there over yonder. The Spyglass Inn. Follow us, Lives Inn, and judge for yourself. It was then I had my first sight of Long John Silver, a great bulk of a man, brown and leathery from years at sea. But he did not walk as sailors walk, and I soon saw why. His right leg was gone. He walked in a peg with a crutch, and, and suddenly I heard the voice of Captain Bones again. What sort of man, Jim? Was it a one-legged man? But if my fears were immediate, they were as quickly dispelled in the cheery greeting and the friendly manner of Long John Silver. Top of the morning, gentlemen. Sit ye down, if you kindly will. For you, Squire Kidney Pie, piping out. And this be for Dr. Livesey. You, you know my name. Squire's told me that much about you, too, if you. It comes naturally, too. And this'll be young Master Hawkins. Yes, sir. Hawkins. Proper seafaring name it is. You, uh, you run your house well, my man. It isn't often I see fruit in a tavern. It's a rule of health, which same I learned while sailing under the immortal Stanley. God rest his soul. You hear that? Under Admiral Stanley. Aye, your honor. Quibber and bay. You favor the Admiral yourself, Squire, <laughs> if I may say so. Why, you and Clem could make up your mind like that. Oh, do I know? I've noticed it before, too. Wouldn't surprise me none to hear you say, heave up the anchor, lads. We sails on the hour. Yes, but you can't sail without a crew, Mr. Silver. Huh? You think there wasn't an honest seaman to be found in all Bristol? I begs to differ, sir, if I may make so bold. Why, there's a full cargo of my old shipmates becalmed right here in town. Sound men inside, Your Honor. If some was scarred in the services of England, and them win no pin pensions, neither. Could they be had at short notice, say, uh, 20 of them? Aye, sir. But they not be pretty enough for the modern taste, sir. And just what does that mean? It means, sir, that the beauty of their youth is faded in the giving of themselves to their king and country. Appearances be hanged. Bring in a crew come sundown, and I, for one... 
will be greatly obliged. Well, sir, I will say this, sir. I knows every seaman in these here parts like the palm of this hand. Excuse me, Mr. Silver. Aye, Master Rokins. Did, did you ever know Captain Billy Bones? Bones? Billy Bones? What ship did he sail on, matey? He, he was a pirate, I think. Lord love ye, lad. Them are sailed with the admiral had no speaking acquaintance with pirates. Aye, look at the lad, squire. And doctor, sir. The spitting image of myself when I was his age. Head full of pirates. But he'll find that the sea be mostly hard work. And the biggest satisfaction a man gets is doing his duty. And now, begging your pardon, sirs, I suggest you fill up while the victuals is still hot. There was no doubt about it. Long John Silver was the finest cook who ever sailed the seas. When the meal was over, the squire was all for taking us aboard the Hispaniola. But Mr. Silver had a different thought. I've been thinking, squire. Could you spare me the services of Master Hawkins just for today, I mean? Oh, but what on earth do you... I've more on my hands. Put in the in ship shape for the new owner, sir. And there's the crew you've asked me to... Well, oh, uh, to be sure. Stay here, Jim, and lend him a hand. But, but, sir... This way, Dr. Lizzie. Don't worry, Jim. We'll be back for you before night. Now then, lad, suppose you comes with me into the galley. We can talk free there, each to the other. Why, why, that's a parrot in there. And an evil-minded bird she be. Belay, you old bumbles, belay. I said belay. Wearing blue card in front of a gentleman. Is, is she yours? Aye, lad. Captain Flint, I calls her. After the famous buccaneer. T'was the pirates who taught her how to swear. If you want to know about pirates, Jim, ask Captain Flint. Only I'll wager as how you can't make her talk. Go on, lad. Try. Pirates, Captain Flint. Pirates. You did it. You made a talk. Strike me, boy. Smart as paint you be. Mr. Silver, look. They're out the window. Hi, lad. That man. They're on the key. Be, uh, be someone you know? Black dog. He, he's a pirate. I know he is. Pirate? Tell me, matey. I'll call all hands and run him down. Hurry, please, don't let him get away. There'll be a pirate, the lad says. Do your duty, men. The men left the tap room. Through the window, I saw them hail Black Dog. He turned quickly and ran, the others after him. But I could not help thinking that, that they were letting him escape. He got away, lad. Too quick he was. A pirate, eh? What was he doing here? I, I, I don't know. Black Dog, eh? Black Dog, I'll Black Dog him. That's a pistol. Aye, and all loaded, matey. Here, feel the balance. Gee, it's, it's a fine pistol, Mr. Silver. Mind the trigger guard. Solid silver. Special made for Admiral Stanley, who gave it to me, rest him, for loyal and conspicuous service. You think you could shoot it? Oh, yes, sir. I might have known. Smart as paint, just like I said. Put the pistol in your pocket, boy. And if you clamps your lights on that there black dog... Repel borders. Yes, sir. You see, I know the lad I can trust whilst I'm out doing my duty by the squire. You're leaving? And when I comes back, I'll have a crew, and you have a sidearm. You mean to keep? That's my meaning, matey. Now, be we shipmates? Shipmates. It's a fine, bold shake of the hand you've got, Master Hawkins. Clear sailing, matey. <laughs> He could move amazingly fast, wooden leg and all. And as I watched him striding down the street, I wondered if in all England there was another boy half so fortunate. 
out in the harbor rode the good ship Hispaniola, our voyage, buried treasure, and Long John Silver was my friend. That afternoon, Dr. Livesey took me out to the ship, and then at sundown, Long John Silver came aboard. He had kept his word and brought a crew. Squire, they ain't pretty, but they knows the sea. Line up chums so he's on it can look you over. Oh, they were a nugly lot, all right. Captain Smollett wanted no part of them. But the squire insisted, and every man of them was signed aboard. And then the captain asked the squire and Dr. Livesey to step into his cabin. I'll speak plain, gentlemen. I don't like this cruise, and I don't like the men. Possibly, sir, you don't like your employer either. We need trustworthy crew, not one recruited out of the muck by a ship's cook. The ship's cook was acting under my orders. And is the cook responsible for the ship's safety? Well, well, I I must say... uh... Captain Smollett, we are all concerned with the ship's safety now. Now, what do you propose? The whereabouts of any treasure map to be kept strictly secret, even from myself and my mate, Mr. Arrow. The firearms... Removed from the forward hold and stored aft here. Surely you don't anticipate mutiny? Well, if I did, I wouldn't put out to sea at all. Ah. Well, Trelawney? Anything. It'll get us out to sea. Agreed, then. You'll find, gentlemen, that I'll do my duty. I can vouch also for Mr. Arrow, my mate, and the five men of the crew I had previously signed. And when can we sail? We should be ready by midnight. Oh, well, well. Come along, Livesey. Hang it all, man. Why did, why did you take the fellow's part? Because I think our captain's a very conscientious man. Well, I find his conduct un-English. Downright un-English. That night in the full of the moon, the sails of the Hispaniola bellied out to the wind. Our voyage had begun. I stood watching the lights of Bristol disappear. And then I was aware that someone stood behind me. And a hand clamped down on my shoulder. Look hard, Jim Hawkins. It's many a day afore you see Bristol Harbor again. And you'll see other sides, matey. Things you'll never forget so long as you be alive. In just a few moments, our stars will return with Act Two of Treasure Island. You're listening to Same Time, Same Station, the best of old-time radio. And I'm your host, Jerry Hendigas. Here's our producer, Mr. Keeley. Act Two of Treasure Island, starring James Mason as Long John Silver, Bobby Driscoll as Jim Hawkins, and Nigel Bruce as Squire Trelawney. We'd been at sea for almost a month for that incident until one afternoon Captain Smollett had reason to call all hands on deck. Mr. Arrow, the mate, had found a pistol in one of the seamen. Since this is the first offense, I shall let it go unpunished. But let it happen again, and the penalty will be fifteen lashes. True dismiss, Miss Arrow. If one man was guilty, I was no less so. But I had a friend to turn to, Long John Silver. So... So I'll have to turn in my pistol, too, won't I? You know, yeah. It'd go hard with Long John if you was to turn it in now. But why? Well, here's a captain with a suspicious turn of mind, and here I am, handing out firearms to an able-bodied seaman like yourself. But I'd do no harm with it. Would you keep it out of sight? 
Oh, yes, always. And you ain't given to no rum drinking, neither, are you? Oh, no, sir. No quarrelsome, neither. So as my advice, Jim Hawkins, is keep the pistol in no art to nobody. Whatever you say, I'll do. Thank you, mate. Thank you. Fifteen lashes, just because I wants to protect myself. Avast! It's time you learned George Merry just who is captain and who gives the orders. A captain it was. A captain wouldn't have that mite around sticking his nose into foxhole business. You'll lay a finger on Mr. Arrow and you'll answer to me, George. Personal. Mr. Arrow be a friend of Long John Silver. And I plans to take care of him. Be that clear to you, mates? He'll obey you, John. Even before Mr. Arrow, I guess. Was you and me worth our salt, matey? We'd think out of a way to sweeten Mr. Arrow's disposition. Like uh, something special for his supper. A plum pudding, maybe, for a cold, stormy night. Stormy night? She's clouding up, Jim. We'll rock proper come evening. Only plum duff bait no better than bilge water without rum. Can't you get rum for cooking? And have Captain suspect me of sneaking double grog? Then why don't I ask Squire for some? Without Captain knowing? I'm sure I could. Blow me down, you're a good and Jim. I seen that from the start. Get the rum, boy. Bring it. We ran into weather that night just as Long John said we would. The crew and the forecastle were slow to change watch. Mr. Arrow came below to rouse them out. Stop it, watch on deck! Lightly, no! Stop it, watch on deck! Mr. Arrow! Could you spare me a moment, sir? Well, if you'll step in the galley, sir. Plum Duff. Made special for you, sir. I'm obliged, Mr. Silver. Then have your fill, sir. And this here bottle is what gives it its flavor. How full it is, so sweeten it, sir, to suit your taste. Aye, sir. To suit your taste. The bottle of rum was empty when Mr. Arrow went up on deck. By morning, the storm was over. It was Squire Trelawney who told me the news. A tragedy, Jim. A tragedy, a great tragedy. Squire, what happened? Mr. Arrow, last night in the storm, apparently he was washed overboard. The Hispaniola sailed on, and even I began to wonder if this long voyage would ever end. It was a sailor named Gray, one of the six recruited by Captain Smollett, who gave me hope. Ah, don't fret, boy. We'll sight land soon. The signs have come. What signs, Mr. Gray? For one thing, the crews turned quarrelsome. Then the beer's all gone, and water kegs crawling. Sure signs, boy, of a landfall. But there's still some apples left in the barrel. Well, when the last one's ate... We'll sight land for sure. Then I'm going below and eat them all. I went below to the apple barrel. It was a huge barrel, and being almost empty, I found I had to climb in to get at the few that were left. A moment later, I heard voices. The crew, and among them, Long John Silver. Hey, Mr. Make them walk the plank! Make them walk the plank! Well, what are you We can take this ship right now. What are we waiting for? Aye, since me and Anne's joined you, the only ones on the captain's side is Gray and Joyce and Hunter. And I say cut their throats. And I say there'll be no killing till I gives the word. You're growing soft, John. When we was with Flint, you was all cut and ripped. You thick-headed swab. 
who got rid of Arrow so quiet no one even suspected. Not even young Hawkins, who brought me the rum for the job. And who'll get you the firearms the same way when the time comes? All we want to know is what we're waiting for. We're waiting while a first-class navigator like Captain Smollett saves this here bumboat to our destination. We can steer a course, but who's to set one? Such being the case, you wait till I give the signal. Eating foxhole grub while lemon cabins has meat and wine and rum. When a thirst be upon you, George Merry, bite into an apple real savage. I've a mind to chew one now, myself. There be the bear, old John, but you've got to reach for him now. You just drop a knife on one, Mr. Enns, and plucks it out. I heard his knife slip out of the sheath. I saw the blade poised over me, but it never descended. On deck, Mr. Gray had sighted land. I climbed, shaking, from the barrel and ran to Captain Smollett's cabin. To him, the squire, and Dr. Livesey, I told what I'd overheard. Long John Silver. I just can't believe it. I never questioned his loyalty. Captain Smollett, sir, I'm a fool. Uh, no more than I, squire. Well, it appears there are precious few of us now. I make it eight of us against twenty of them. But you forget Jim Hawkins, sir? Nine of us, then. Well, we have all the firearms. Can't we surprise them? That's my plan, once we get them all ashore. As I see it, they'll not make their move until we've found the treasure. Meanwhile, give them no cause for alarm. Jim, you've brought us this warning. I wonder, can you do it a second time? Could you keep your ears open, lad? Stay friends with Silver? Stay friends with... with him, sir? Well, can you, boy? Yes, sir. I'll stay friends with him. Good, lad. Well, I'd best call all hands and see about an anchorage. I've never seen that island before. No, then. Have any of you ever seen that island before? I I was cooked once on a trader as water. Do you remember the anchorage, Mr. Silver? Yonder, sir. There in that inlet. You give me a strong pull with the long boat and I'll guide this ship in like a lamb. Good. Stand by to drop anchor in low on the boat. Any questions? If you please, sir. Could I go along with Mr. Silver? Well, Mr. Silver? I'd be that happy to take him, sir. Young Hawkins could try his hand on the tiller. Permission granted. You did well, Jim. Well, what did he mean about guiding the ship? The longboat will tow us into anchorage. Silver will need most of the crew to man the oars. Those that remain aboard ship will be our prisoners. Yes, but what if they rush us first? That squire's the chance we'll have to take. Find Silver Jim. Stay close to him, boy. And good luck. Yes, sir. An hour later, the longboat was in the water, pulling the Hispaniola closer and closer to the shore. Whenever I could, I looked behind, trying to catch a glimpse of what was going on on board. The man at the tiller, Master Hawkins, keeps his eye on the shore. Yes, sir. Send her ahead, John. Lift your oars. Drop your anchor, Captain, sir. This is your spot. I heard the splash of the anchor behind us, followed almost at once by shouts of warning from Captain Smollett. On your guard, men! Control dive! What's he yelling about? That fool! That fool, George Merry! Didn't wait for my signal. We're in for it now, boys. Pull for the shore. Turn about and come alongside! Turn about and I'll shoot! With young Master Hawkins at my side! Fire that musket and I'll catch his throat. Ready? 
You blundering squid, can you hear me? I, I hear you. Them shots was just a war. Then lie low till the treaty be made. And this time, follow orders. You dare to hold that boy? Begging your pardon, sir, I ain't finished with what I got to say. I'll give you one hour to send a boat ashore with Flint's map and give yourself up to Mr. Murray. So be it if you want to see young Hawkins alive. Do what he says, Jim. We'll save you. Don't take it so hard, matey. Why, it's lucky you come along with old John here, or he'd have had nothing to bargain with. Let go of me. Why, well, even puts my knife away. There now, see? Come back here, you! After him, you swabs! I had jumped into the shallow water and struggled for shore. It was heavily wooded beyond the beach, but how long I could elude them, I didn't know. I could hear them crashing through the brush after me. But gradually, the sound of my pursuers grew distant. They'd gone inland, and later, a wisp of far-off smoke revealed they were making camp. As I turned for the shore, something sprang at me from the bushes. It was a bigger out of a nightmare. I drew the pistol Silver had given me and... No! No! Don't shoot! Don't! I'm poor Ben Gunn, I am. You wouldn't harm poor Ben Gunn. Out of my terror, I saw a human being, scrawny, long-haired and bearded, his bones covered with pieces of tattered canvas. He was on his knees now, imploring me. It's just me. Poor old Ben Gunn, what hasn't spoke to a Christian these five years now. Five years? Were... Were you shipwrecked? Nay, mate, marooned. Tell me, that ship, would that be Flint's ship? No, Flint's dead. But I seen his men. I seen them come ashore. Some of them are Flint's men, but they got aboard by trickery. Aye, and is there among them a man with one leg? Long John Silver. And I hate him. Oh, he's come back. I'm as good as dead. It was him as marooned me what be your tack now, young master? Well, if... If you could help me row a longboat... Boat, says you. Then guns your man, says I. What might you call yourself, mate? Jim. Well, now, Jim, you just follow Ben Gunn. Not a sign of anyone on the beach, squire. Not that I can see. Oh, pray God the boy is still alive. What about the stockade at the end of the cove? It appears empty. Without arms, I'm sure those cutthroats went inland. Well, behind that stockade, we stand a chance of rescuing young Hawkins. Precisely. We'll leave two men aboard. There's no way our prisoners can reach the deck. Two men will suffice. We'll load the jolly boat with supplies and come back and forth to relieve the guard. Good. And let's be at it. Stand by, Mr. Gray, to stock the jolly boat. Ben Gunn had led me to a cluster of rocks. Carefully hidden among them was a tiny boat. Made her with me, Olands, I did. Bamboo, Jim, and goat skins. At first, says I, we'll see if the ghosts be cleared of Flint's men. It was then we saw the jolly boat heading for shore. They were coming for me, I'd be saved. Coming ashore, says you. But what might that be, says I? There on the ship, look you, Jim. Men crawling out of the portals, climbing up to the deck. It was all too true. The prisoners trapped in folk and the folks who were escaping through portals. There were a few shots and silence. Then from the mainmast, I saw the skull and bones catching the breeze. Silver's men had taken over our ship. By now, our friends in the jolly boat had reached shore and rushed for the safety of the stockade. Meanwhile, Silver had led the men on shore back to the beach, back to the longboat, out of range of the stockade. Unmolested, they were making their way to the ship. Now they'll get the guns and the ammunition and the food. Everything but the map. Map? Says you what map? Never mind. Come along, Ben. No. 
My friends won't harm you. I promise. If your captain wants to see Ben Gunn, tell him to come tonight, alone, to the top of Spyglass Hill, and tell him this. Them as hides can find, and them as finds can hide. In the stockade, I was welcomed as one returned from the dead. I told them at once of my meeting with Ben Gunn. And what's your opinion, lad? You think this creature's sane? I... I think he is, Squire. Well, why would he want to, you to come after dark, Captain Smollett? Safety, of course. Mm. Right now, we may expect visitors ourselves. They're coming from the ship, Captain. Aye, the longboat's full of them. Can you load a gun, Jim? Yes, sir. I, I think so. Let them come, by Jove. They'll find us ready for them. They're silver, sir, with a flag of truce. Truce, eh? Take your positions, men. I'll see what he wants. Open the gate, Mr. Gray. Aye, sir. Now close it. And shoot with the first force move. Flag of truce, Captain, sir. Flag of truce. And what does that mean, Mr. Silver? Captain Silver, they come aboard, sir, and make terms. Captain Silver? Who's he? It's me, sir. Those poor lads yonder have chose me captain, sir, after your desertion of the ship. Stay on the cover, lads, and wait for me. Open the gate, Mr. Gray. You'll have patience, Captain, sir. Seeing as how I makes me way on but one pin and a crutch. Aye. A sweet, pretty place you have here, to be sure. And there's Jim. I'll be my little matey, eh? I've nothing to say to you. And squire and doctor. Well, sirs, the long and the short of it be this. I as the ship, I as the men, I as the armaments. Only what I ain't got be Flimp's map. So here be my terms. You give us that there map and you can keep your lives. We'll divide the stores and I gives you my affidavit to stop the first ship I sees and send it here to pick you up. Your word, Silver? And somehow you couldn't ask for. Then here are my terms. If you come here one by one, unarmed, I'll trap you all in irons and take you home to stand fair trial. Well spoken, Captain Smollett. Now listen to me, John Silver. You can't find the treasure, you can't sail the ship, and your cowardness come can't fight. So get out of here. Double quick. So be it, Captain. And Squire, so be it. But before an hour's out, you'll be begging help from me. And then what die will be the lucky ones. After a brief intermission, we resume with Act Three of Treasure Island. Tonight I've chosen as our guest 12-year-old Catherine Beaumont because she is the voice of Alice in Walt Disney's delightful new Technicolor version of Lewis Carroll's classic, Alice in Wonderland. You posed for the artist, too, didn't you, Catherine? Yes, I did, Mr. Keeley. But you won't see me on the screen. I just serve as an inspiration to the artist. And a very lovely inspiration. You know, you're so much like the original Alice. You were also born in England, weren't you? Yes, and we lived there all during the war. You must have thoroughly enjoyed acting out the adventures of Alice in Wonderland. Oh, yes, it was great fun. I just can't wait to see the picture when it's released next summer. You know, Mr. Disney has drawn the characters just exactly the way I've always pictured the them. The Mad Hatter, the Queen of Hearts, the White Rabbit. Yes, they're all there in Alice's adventures, Mr. Keeley. And for me, well, 
Being Alice was was like having a wonderful dream suddenly come true. A dream come true. That's the way screen stars feel about new Lux, Catherine. Lux with color freshener. It's the greatest improvement ever made in wonderful Lux flakes. Oh, Mummy uses Lux for all my things, Mr. Kennedy. Now do you know why those white pinafores of yours stay so beautifully white? And why your dresses stay so bright and gay every time they're washed? It's new Lux with color freshener. I see. Can, can this new Lux do everything, Mr. Kennedy? Just about everything, Catherine. Lux has always been a marvelous product, but this new Lux is more wonderful than ever. White things stay white as the white rabbit. Prints as bright as the Queen of Hearts. All colors as bright and gay as the Mad Hatter's Tea Party. No other way of washing does so much for colors. Renews their sparkling beauty every time you wash them. Ladies, if you'd like an adventure that's exciting, thrilling, yet absolutely safe, get a big box of New Lux with color freshener tomorrow. For white things, for prints, for all your colors, you'll say it's a washing miracle. Give all your washables that nicest new Lux look. We pause now for station identification. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. You're listening to Same Time, Same Station, the best of old-time radio. And I'm your host, Jerry Hendigas. The curtain rises on Act Three of Treasure Island, starring James Mason as Long John Silver, Bobby Driscoll as Jim Hawkins, and Nigel Bruce as Squire Trelawney. Silver and his men attacked us immediately, but the stout logs of the stockade held, and we drove them off, though not without cost. Joyce, one of the loyal sailors, lay dead, and Captain Smollett wounded. Never before were we so grateful for Dr. Livesey. The captain's asleep. He'll be all right in a few days. Do, do you think they'll attack again tonight, sir? I, you don't know, Jim. Hard to foresee the end of this. Yes, that's true enough, lad. Therefore, I want you to have the treasure map. It's yours by rights, you know. If that's your wish, Squire. And if the worst comes to the worst, don't hesitate to buy your life with it. But they won't drive us out of here in a hurry. Well, they may not even try to, Squire. Well, what's that? Why not? Well, with a high tide, they can bring the ship in closer to shore. And once within cannon range, why, they could level well, us. Oh, by Joe, so they could. If John Silver thinks of it, blast him. And they've got all the boats. Otherwise, I'd try to get to the ship and cut the anchor rope. But if we can't stay here in the stockade... Jim... Jim, you spoke of Ben Gunn and a meeting tonight. Perhaps he knows a place where we can hide. I'm sure he does, sir. I'm sure he does. Ah, and I'll go looking for Mr. Gunn within the hour. I, too, had a plan. Under cover of darkness, I slipped unnoticed from the stockade and reached the rocks where Ben Gunn kept his little boat. In my belt was a knife. I paddled silently out of the Hispaniola, climbed to the deck, and cut the anchor rope. Me, you young Master Hawkins, come to join us, evil swabs, is it? It was Israel Hands. I struggled with every ounce of strength and broke away. But as I did, the map of Treasure Island fell from my shirt. Hands, map. So it was you what had it. I grabbed it from the deck and leaped for the rigging. I climbed higher and higher, but Hands was behind me. When I could go no further, I drew the pistol from my pocket. Stay where you are, Mr. Hands. You got a pistol, Master Hawkins. Go down to the deck. Just like Silver said, smartest paint. Coming here with me all alone on board. One more step, Mr. Hands, and 
and I'll blow your brains out. No, no, matey. Suddenly he grabbed his knife and threw it. There was a great burst of pain as it pinned my shoulder to the mast. But I pulled the trigger and the body of Israel hands hurtled into the sea. I clung to the ropes and pulled out the knife, but for moments after I was unable to move. And then I saw that the tide was carrying the ship toward shore. Somehow I climbed down and made my way to the beach. Dr. Livesey. Squire, it's me, Jim. Open the gates. Please, Dr. Livesey. Strike me, it's matey. It's Jim. Silver. I must have fainted. When my senses returned, I was in the stockade. My friends were gone, and in their places stood Long John Silver and his cutthroats. But I made no move to let them know I could hear that talk. He'd been bleeding bad. Someone pinked him for certain. Save me from cutting his throat, a little swab. I've asked George Murray, stand clear. I've asked, is it? Maybe a touch of steel would show Muster Arkins which side he were on, and some others I could name as well. Maybe you think you be captain here, eh, George? This here crew would lay a sight more confidence in a captain as allowed us our say about enemy prisoners. Why, you knotted? With him bad hurt, they'll part with the map to save his life. We'll hoist another flag of truce and hail that doctor. Before this crew takes any more of your orders, we claims our right of counsel. Aye, according to rule. Then have your counsel and be hanged. Jim. Jim, can you hear me? Where's Dr. Lucy and the squire? They give us the slip, lad, during the night. Now lay still. You'll be cared for proper. Old John will fetch the doctor here. And then, lacking a leg as he did, he climbed with great labor to the top of the stockade, hung a flag of truce, and shouted for Dr. Livesey. Don't boy. They'll see that flag. And, uh, speaking of seeing things, i just been seeing something myself. The Hispaniola beached on the shore. That be your doing, Jim. That be the cause of your hurt. Yes, I cut the anchor rope. Tis a real wicked trick, Jim. And was I you, I'd keep my mouth shut about it. we finished council, Mr. Silver. This be for you. A piece of paper, is it? With a spot of black on it. And the word, deposed. Wrote very pretty, George. We're choosing a new captain, and do they vote me in? I'll see. There'll be no voting until the treasure map be disposed of. Until then, the black spot ain't worth a biscuit. Map or no map, we ain't giving up no hostage till we lay hands on treasure. And I'll be here to find same without the map. It's him, the doctor. He's seen the flag. And I too, all of you. It's young Hawkins, sir. He be hurt. If Jim's there, bring him out of the stockade. If I set you out yonder, Jim... Do you give me your affidavit not to slip cable? Yes, word of honor. Stand by while I police. And a sharp lookout on all sides. My eyes be on a man what's trying to get a foot in each camp. And him with only one lie. We met some 50 yards from the stockade. As gently as he could, the doctor dressed my wound. Taken to knifing boys, eh, Silver? Not me, sir. Why, if it hadn't been for long, John, he'd have had his throat cut. He got aboard that Hispaniola, sir. Which same he's gone and beached. He's what? Last night. Yes. Even so, when I found the lad, 
Of Teddy B, I says to myself, John, you've got to save that dear boy. Oh, so Captain Silver wants to join us again. Yep. I'll be honest and open with you as I always am. I do. I thinks gold dust of this dear boy. Took to him like bitch I did. You'd have killed me yourself if you'd have had the map. But you'll never get it. I'll die first. But I got the map, Jim. Be this the same or be it not. Doctor, he's got it. Last night when I picks you up outside the fort, there the map be in your shirt. But old John ain't human, he ain't. He didn't care about saving his little matey's life. All he wanted was this ear map. And what good's a treasure without a ship to haul it? And what good be a ship, sir, if only to haul me to the hangman? Now, was I to further preserve young Hawkins' life, do you think you could save mine? You can save Jim? I could guard the boy from them, their scum. But they'll not give up till they seize the treasure, Doug. Hmm. I want to speak with the boy alone. Speak and be welcome. I'll send off. Jim. Jim, I don't know how you managed to save us that ship. But I lost the map. Ah, your safety is far more important. Now listen, I'll make a quick break to draw their fire. And then before they have time to reload, start running for the woods. The woods, sir? Yes, we're with Ben Gunn. He knows a dozen hiding places. No, no, I can't. I gave Long John my word. They would have killed me. They would have killed me long before it hadn't been for him. But Jim, but... <sighs> yes, perhaps you're right. All right, Silver? Aye, sir. Now, you stay close to this boy. If we get out alive, I'll do my best to save you. You couldn't say more, was you my own mother? No, heaven forbid. Good luck, Jim. Back in the stockade, Long John Silver told the men he had just got the map from Dr. Livesey. And now, boy, Sunder, I will resign. Elect anyone you please to be your captain. I'm done with you. At once, the treasure hunt was underway. They followed the map with unholy care, and in a frenzy, they started to dig, clawing at the ground like animals. In a matter of minutes, they struck the chest. Wild-eyed and gasping, they heaved it to the surface and broke it open. Empty! It's gone! Treasure's gone! Stand by for trouble, Jim. Look! One dirty guinea, and that's all. There's your 700,000 pounds, Mr. Silver! Hardly worth dividing, is it, Joe? So you did make a bargain with the doctor. They've been here first. Look at his face, mate. You can see it in his face. Kill him. He sold us out. I'm one against the lot of you. But I got two pistols, and the first one who... <laughs> Long John Silver had fired only once. The other shots came from Dr. Livesey, the squire, Mr. Gray, and Ben Gunn. Unprepared for this sudden attack, the pirates were now our prisoners. Ben Gunn! To think it was you what done me. <laughs> How do, Mr. Silver? Pretty well, I thank you. What happened to Flint's gold, says you? Ben Gunn's cave, says I. Cave? What cave? That's true enough, Jim. That's where we've been these many hours. It's all there, lad. A treasure beyond dreams. Save one dirty guinea. So it was, just as the squire said, treasure beyond dreams. First came the task of taking our prisoners to the Hispaniola, then the matter of loading the treasure, 
And after that, back to shore for Long John Silver. I've been thinking, Captain Smollett, as to how you'll ever clear the vessel and get her out to sea again. I tighten a stretch of canvas and she'll float off whenever we've a mind. Yes, and that brings us to your fate, Mr. Silver. I stand as ever, sir, ready to do my duty. And happy I am to think I had some small hand in saving young Master Hawkins. And does that clear you of the crime of mutiny? Please, Squire. He did save my life. Then, my boy, you're free to testify on his behalf. He'll have a fair trial in Bristol. And now, Captain, I'll take this scoundrel back to the ship and clap him in arms. But not alone, Squire. Mr. Gray, you and Jim, take them in the longboat. Not a move out of you, Silver. Only a monkey shines, mind you. Would you permit a word, sir, with mighty? Talk your full head off for all I care. Thank you. Thank you kindly, sir. Jim, lad. I'm thinking of Captain Flint, I am. She be still in the stockade. Will you take the parrot, boy? Only remember, she can't abide a cage. None of us likes cages, Jim. I... I couldn't, Long John. You be fond of the bird, ain't you? I'd like to keep her. But she'd only remind me of you. Well, no matter. Though I would dearly love to leave a trinket to her... To a lad I respect. Keep your hands in plain sight, Mr. Silver. Me answer? They'd just be patting the boy, sir. Oh, even so, I... Look out! He's got my pistol! Put that down! Put that gun down! Put it down! Patting him, I was, sir, and what should I come up with but this? Now, drop your oars! Into the water, Mr. Gray! Jump and swim for it! You too, Squire! Confound you! I'll have you hanged on the ship! If I may make so bold, sir, I'm borrowing this long boat. So, over you go! You monster! How, how can I swim to shore? Just spread your blubber, squire. Might be as you can float. As for you, Jim. I'll jump. You don't have to tell me what to do. Belay now. I can't row and steer both. So I'm asking you to set me a true course through the channel and I'll put you off on yon piece of rock. And if I don't... It's the last thing I'll ever ask of you, matey. I took the tiller. I sat in silence as he rowed desperately. It was a narrow channel. Finally, I saw my chance. I yanked the tiller and drove the boat into a sandbar. You put us on the bar. Climb over and shove me off. I'll take no orders from you. And you can't do it yourself, can you? Not with one leg. You put me on here and now you'll shove me off. Or by the powers, I'll crack your neck. They're coming after me in the jolly boat. And they'll take you. And I'll hang you for your crimes. I'll take you to Bristol and... They can't. They can't hang you, John. Jim. Jim, boy. Jim. That's it, lad. Shove a nose out. I must have known you'd never let him hang your own shipmates. I'll hoist a bit of sail out yonder. I'll make it safe enough. Goodbye, matey. Good luck to you. He was well out in open water when the squire and Dr. Livesey reached the sandbar. He he got away, squire. Oh, well, the sharks may do for him yet. Blast him anyway. I'm as wet as a herring. Blast him indeed, squire. And yet I can almost find it in my heart to hope that he makes it. He will, sir. I know he will.
Before our stars return for their curtain calls, here's Libby Collins with the movie news of the week. News about two premieres. First, one of the most important Hollywood premieres in recent years. Tomorrow night, 20th Century Fox will open the Mudlark at the Chinese Theater for the benefit of one of Irene Dunn's favorite charities. An opening that will mean new laurels for Irene. Yes, indeed. It took a lot of courage to play England's beloved Queen Victoria with an all-British cast. And she won them completely. From all over England, they sent her little souvenirs of Victoria. The entire action in the Mudlark takes place in one day, doesn't it? Uh Uh-huh. An adventurous urchin induces the widowed Victoria to break 15 years of seclusion. Uh, That must have simplified Irene's costume. Well, yes and no. The white touches, for which Victoria was famous, had to be kept spotless. Now, you know, keeping whites really white used to be almost as difficult as keeping colors bright. But not anymore. This month, Hollywood and smart women everywhere are flocking to another premiere. New Lux with Color Freshener. That marvelous new Lux that keeps whites purest white. Gay prints and colors brighter than you ever dreamed possible. It's a real beauty bath for colors. Irene Dunn has been a Lux fan for years. And she says this new Lux is more marvelous than ever. Why, it leaves even delicate lingerie shades so ravishingly lovely, she can hardly believe they aren't brand new. Now, more than ever, screen stars insist on new Lux with color freshener for all their personal things. It renews all the sparkling beauty of lovely slips and nighties, dresses and blouses, every time you wash them. And it's mild and safe as ever. New Lux with Color Freshener is in your store now. Get a big box tomorrow. Give all your washables that nicest new Lux look. Now, here's Mr. Keeley with our stars. Many thanks to our stars for recreating one of our favorite stories. And here they are, James Mason, Bobby Driscoll, and Nigel Bruce. Bobby, you've appeared in Walt Disney's pictures before, haven't you? Oh, yes, but I didn't like playing in them as well as Treasure Island. Why was that, Bobby? Well, they had animals in them. You know what scene stealers they are. Oh, yes, we know all about little scene stealers, don't we, Nigel? <laughs> yes, we do. You know, Bobby, I first played Squire Trelawney in 1934. Mm. It's a great story of England, Treasure Island. Uh, tell me, Bobby, how did you like England where you, where you made the picture? Oh, just fine, Mr. Bruce. It was quite an experience. And how about the Lux Radio Theater? Did you enjoy playing here, the rehearsals and all? Oh, just fine. Except in England, after the rehearsals, we always had tea. Well, here, Bobby, we all have Lux flakes. <laughs> I think that's a much nicer arrangement, isn't it? You know, you're becoming quite Americanized, James. I understand that you've named your new picture company after one of their cities, a uh, uh, Portland Pictures, isn't it? Yes, Nigel, well, that's indirectly, yes. It's really named after my young daughter, Portland, who is named after her godmother, Portland Huffer, who in turn is named after Portland, Oregon. <laughs> It's a little confusing, isn't it? Well, it is a bit, old man. <laughs> Incidentally, our first picture production is A Lady Possessed, adapted from my wife's best-selling novel. You certainly have a talented family, Mr. Mason. Now, you're pretty talented yourself, Bobby. Acting, athletic. And don't forget, I'm a Boy Scout. I was one once, Bobby. Oh? About, uh, about 80 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Bill, I understand that next week your play is a romantic comedy. Yes, James, it's that entrancing one from Universal International Studios... Louisa. And as our stars from the original cast, we will have Ronald Reagan, Ruth Hussey, Charles Coburn, Edmund Gwen, Spring Byington, and Piper Laurie. What a cast! 
We'll be listening. Good night. Good night, Good night. Good night. and happy pleasure, honey. Here's the bargain of the year. A pair of all-purpose kitchen shears for only 50 cents. Now, during Lever Brothers' star value sale. These sturdy shears are actually worth $1.25, but they're yours for only 50 cents and two wrappers from Lux Toilet Soap. You'll find dozens of uses for these heavy-duty shears. They're wonderful for cutting cardboard, twine, fabrics, and flower stems. For cleaning and boning fish, cutting up chickens, even opening bottles and cracking nuts. They'll last for years. And you can have them for only 50 cents, plus two wrappers from Lux Toilet Soap. Send coin and wrappers with your name and address to Shears, Box 16, New York 46, New York. Order several pairs. They make grand shower gifts, marvelous bridge prizes. I'll repeat that address. Shears, Box 16, New York 46, New York. For every pair ordered, send 50 cents with two wrappers from Lux Toilet Soap. This offer expires March 31st. Send for your all-purpose kitchen shears today. Lever Brothers Company, the makers of Lux Flakes, join me in inviting you to be with us again next Monday evening when the Lux Radio Theater presents Ronald Reagan, Ruth Hussey, Charles Coburn, Edmund Gwen, Spring Byington, and Piper Laurie in Louisa. This is William Keeley saying goodnight to you from Hollywood. Ladies and gentlemen, may we remind you that United States savings bonds are still your best investment. They're both safe and profitable, and you can buy them easily through your payroll savings plan. You'll be helping both yourself and your country when you buy United States savings bonds. Treasure Island was presented and Bobby Driscoll appeared by special arrangement with Walt Disney. Heard in our cast tonight were Charles Davis as the narrator, Ben Wright as Dr. Livesey, and Bill Johnstone as the captain. And Herbert Butterfield, Bill Conrad, Jay Novello, Eric Snowden, Ed Max, Norman Field, Lou Krugman, Eddie Marr, and Dorothy Lloyd. Our play was adapted by S.H. Barnett, and our music was directed by Rudy Schrager. This is your announcer, John Milton Kennedy, reminding you to join us again next Monday night to hear Louisa, starring Ronald Reagan, Ruth Hussey, Charles Coburn, Edmund Gwen, Spring Byington, and Piper Laurie. Stay tuned for My Friend Irma, which follows over these same stations. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. The Armed Forces Radio and Television Service brings you the Hollywood Radio Theater, starring Rock Hudson and Barbara Rush in Great Expectations. Ladies and gentlemen, your producer, Mr. Irving Cummings. Greetings from Hollywood, ladies and gentlemen. This evening, we present these two fine Universal International artists in Charles Dickens' famous story, Great Expectations. Now, Act One of Great Expectations, starring Rock Hudson as Pip and Barbara Rush as Estella. This dark and tangled narrative has its beginning in the year 1821. I was 12 years of age, living in the south of England with my sister and her husband. Late, one gusty autumn afternoon, I visited the village churchyard where my mother and father are buried. Suddenly, from behind one of the tombstones... Keep still, you little devil, or I'll cut your throat. He was looming over me, 
Huge and horrible. His great wrists shackled in a chain. An escaped convict. Tell us your name. Quick. Pip. Pip, sir. You're lying. That's no name. Oh, it is, sir. Pip, it really is. But they call me Pip. Show us where you live. Three miles, sir. Across the marshes. Where's your father? Yes, sir. This is his grave. Your mother? Here, too, sir. Who do you live with, then? Supposing you're kindly let live, which I ain't made up my mind about yet. With my sister, sir. Mrs. Joe Gargery, wife of Joe Gargery the blacksmith. Blacksmith, eh? You know what a file looks like? A file? Yes, sir. Do you know what Whittles is? Yes, sir. Food, sir. Then you get me a file and you get me Whittles or I'll have your heart and liver out. I'll try, sir. And you'll bring them Whittles and that file to me in this churchyard tomorrow morning at daylight. Yes, sir. And never a word of having seen such a person as me. No, sir. There's another man hid with me around here. He has a secret way of getting at a boy and tearing him wide open. Now, say heaven strike you dead if you breathe a word. Heaven strike me dead if I breathe a word. Yeah. Now get you home. What sleep I had that night was plagued with the dreadful vision of the convict waiting for me in the churchyard. I was up long before dawn. From the pantry, I stole a pork pie and some brandy, and from Joe's shop, a file. I ran most of the way. It gave me less time to think. I, I'm, I'm here, sir. You brought no one with you? No, sir. This is for you, sir. What? Pork pie and Joe's brandy. Give it here. I think you have the chills, sir. Not much of your opinion by uh, the food now. The food! Are you starved, sir? I, I'm glad to see you enjoy it, sir. I, thank you, boy. Thank you, I do. Aren't you going to leave any for him? Him? Your friend, the other man. I did not say he was a friend of mine. Anyway, he's gone. Uh, uh, now give us the file, boy. If there isn't anything else, sir, please go home now. Yes, go on. I, I'm beholden to you. Thank you, boy. Thank you. All day long, the mounted soldiers swarmed over the marshes, searching for the convicts. They were captured, both of them. On the way back to the prison ship, the sergeant's horse lost a shoe, so they stopped at Joe's blacksmith shop. With them was the convict I had helped. So, you caught them both, Charlie. What happened to it, other one? The corporals took him on ahead. We'd not have got this one. It wasn't for the help that somebody gave us. Ain't that which? Ain't right, right, right now? Aye, that's right enough. Ah, what are you looking at the boy for? No reason. Sergeant, I wish to say something respecting this here escape. Ah, you do, eh? Well, say it. It might prevent some persons from suffering suspicions now that I know it was my shipmate who turned me in. Well? I I stole some food from this blacksmith's house last night. You were in my house last night? Yeah. I stole a dram of liquor and a pork pie. Oh, the pork pie. My Mrs. Fair tore the house down looking for that. I'm sorry to say I ate your pie. Oh, you're welcome to it as ever it were mine. We wouldn't have you starved to death, would us, Pip? No, Joe, no. No. Get back to your forge, blacksmith. It's getting late. It was a year later when an adventure of quite another sort befell me. 
My great-uncle Pumblechook came to the house on a very mysterious errand. That's all I know, Mrs. Joe. Miss Havisham sent word that she wants the boy to call on her. You hear that, boy? Yes, ma'am. But, Uncle, it don't make sense. What she want him for in that great old house? Pip, do you know who Miss Havisham is? The strange lady who nobody sees. Ah, and she's mad. Ain't she, Mrs. Joe? She may be mad, but she's rich enough to make the boy's fortune. The message said she wants Pip to come to her house and play. Then he'd better go and play or I'll work him good. Get to the pump, boy. Get to the pump and scrub till you shine. There's that fine big gate, Grand Levy. So ring the bell. Ring it, boy. What name? Pumblechook. Quite right. She's coming. It's a girl. First girl you've ever seen, is it? No, sir. Then restrain your observation, sir, till invited. This is Pip, young lady. So this is Pip, is it? Come in, Pip. Not you. Only him. Eh? Not me. Go away. Come along, boy. The house was like nothing I had ever seen before or since. With a musty smell and dust and cobwebs everywhere as if the house had, had died. Not a ray of sunlight. Only the glimmer of a candle in the hand of the little girl and the ring of our footsteps on the stone. This door, boy. Over here. After you, miss. Don't be silly. I'm not going in. Who is it? Who's there? Pip, Mum. Mr. Pumblechook's boy. Come to play. Let me look at you. Well... You aren't afraid of a woman who has never seen the sun since before you were born? No, Miss Havisham. Look at my hand. What do I touch when I put my hand here? Your heart. Broken. My broken heart. Sometimes I have sick fancies, boy. And I have had a fancy that I would like to see someone play. Well, play. Play. Estella, come here, play with this boy. With him, a common laboring boy? Look at his boots. You can break his heart, Estella. Boy, play cards with her. Here, cards. Deal the cards, boy. Yes, miss. But coarse hands. Sorry, miss, I... Now, look what you've done. You've dropped the cards. Excuse me, I'll pick them up. You stupid, clumsy laboring boy. <laughs> she has many hard things to say of you, Pip. Have you nothing to say of her? I think she is very insulting. Anything else? I think she is very pretty. Anything else? I think I should like to go home now. And never see her again, even though she is so pretty. Uh, I'm not sure that I shouldn't like to see her again. But I think I should like to go home now. You shall go home in time. Play the game out. Thereafter, in accordance with Miss Havisham's wishes, I made innumerable visits to the great house. Each time, with her cruel, tormenting smile, Estella would meet me and take me to Miss Havisham. Well, boy? Well, miss? Am I pretty today? Yes, I think you are very pretty. Am I insulting? Not so much as Tuesday, miss. Not so much so. Take that, you coarse little monster. What do you think of me now? I won't tell you. 
Why don't you cry again, you little wretch? You cried the first day, didn't you? I saw you. You went through the gate crying. She'll never cry because of you again. Open the door. Today she's in there. This was one of the many rooms I had never before entered. In the candlelight, I saw an immense table with chairs about and laden with dishes and fine silver. Seated at the head of the table was Miss Havisham. Do you know what that is in the center of the table? No, ma'am. A wedding cake. My wedding cake, Pip. Long before you were born, it was placed there. It and I have worn away together. The mice have gnawed at it, Pip. But sharper teeth have gnawed at me. There, there, boy. Run along now, run along. You'll find Estella in the garden. Estella was not in the garden. A boy was there, a stranger, stripped to the waist. He said Estella had sent for him to fight me and teach me manners. So I fought with him and cut his eye and sent his nose to bleeding. He was very gracious about it. Well, you won all right. Fight's over. Can't I help you? I didn't mean no, to. No, thanks. I'm <coughs> tip-top. Can't understand how you did it, though. You're leaving? Oh, yes. No point in staying now, is there? Good afternoon, then. Same to you. Boy. Where are you? Over here and don't ask. When I call you, come. Yes, miss. You whipped the village boy. I had no wish to fight at all. But you whipped him. So you may kiss me. Thank you. Go home. It's no use. You'll never become a gentleman. I would never be a gentleman any more than I could give up running to Miss Havisham's every time she gave me leave to do so. And each time, Estella hovered about... But never again did she tell me I might kiss her. I hate you, boy. I hate you. My admiration of her knew no bounds. And scarcely a night went by without my falling asleep with the image of her lovely face before my eyes. Then came a day when I went to Havisham House with slow feet and heavy heart. Can't come to see you anymore, Miss Havisham. I've heard the news, Pip. Your sister has died. Yes. She treated you miserably. You'll do better without her. But I have to help Joe now, Miss Havisham, at the forge. An apprentice blacksmith? You? Yes, Miss Havisham. Since this is your last visit here, some golden sovereigns. Thank you. You've earned them well. Thank you. Estella, show the boy out. Goodbye, Miss Havisham. I heard what you told her. You had better say goodbye to me, too, because I'm going away. Going away? To France to be educated. France? Well, aren't you sorry I'm going? Yes, Estella. Very sorry. Well, who have we here? A boy, Mr. Jaggers. A boy? From the neighborhood, eh? Yes, sir. Miss Havisham sent for me, sir. Well, behave yourself, then. I have a pretty large experience of boys, and you're a bad lot of fellows. Miss, I shall talk to you about your passage to France. I'll be right there, Mr. Jaggers. I wish I knew when you were coming back, Estella. And I wish... Well, what do you wish? I wish I could kiss you goodbye. Well, try it and see what happens. Thank you. Thank you. Blacksmith. My boyhood had ended. 
and my life as a blacksmith began. I was happy enough, especially when Joe brought Biddy into our house as the new Mrs. Joe, a trusted friend of both of us and a blessing on the household. In the sixth year of my apprenticeship, I saw Mr. Jaggers again. He came to the cottage asking to see Joe and me alone. So you are the blacksmith, eh? My name Joseph or Joe Gargery? Uh, yes, sir. Have you an apprentice commonly known as Pip? I'm Pip, sir. So you're Pip. My name is Jaggers. I'm a lawyer in London. You'd better close that door. Uh, yes, sir. Now, Joseph Gargery, I am the bearer of an offer to relieve you of this young fellow. You would not object to cancelling his apprenticeship for his own good? You would want nothing for so doing? Oh, heaven forbid that I should want anything for not standing in Pip's way. He always a fine, good lad, sir. Very well, then. I come now to the young fellow himself. To him, I say that he has great expectations. I am instructed to inform him that he will come into a handsome property. Pip! Wait, Joe, wait. Further, it is the desire of the present possessor of that property that he shall be immediately removed from his present sphere and brought up as befits a young gentleman, and that he always bear the name of Pip. If you have any objection, mention it now. Uh, I have no objections. I should think not indeed. Uh, further, Mr. Pip, you are to understand that the name of the person who is your benefactor is to remain a profound secret until the person chooses to reveal it. Yes, sir. If you have any suspicion as to whom that person might be, keep that suspicion within your own breast, sir. Well, Mr. Pip? Uh, I have no objection. Now then, uh, kindly consider me your guardian. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Let me tell you, I am well paid for my services, otherwise I should not render them. I shall arrange for you to come to London in two weeks. You uh, need some new clothes. Uh, here, sir, 20 guineas. Well, Joseph Gargery, you look dumbfounded. Hey, sir, I am. Then good night, Mr. Gargery. Good night, Mr. Pip. <laughs> Since I start for London tomorrow, Miss Havisham, I thought you would kindly not mind my taking leave of you. Well, Pip. Well, I must say your new clothes are quite handsome. Miss Havisham, I have come into wonderful good fortune since I've saw you. I have seen Mr. Jaggers, Pip. I've heard all about it. Have you had any news from Estella? Oh, yes. Prettier than ever, I dare say. And admired by all who see her. You, too have a promising career. Be good and deserve it. Yes, Miss Havisham. Thank you, Miss Havisham. Thank you for everything. Goodbye, Joe. Goodbye, Biddy. God bless you, dear old Pip. God bless you. Take care, boy. Take good care. Uh, one day I'll come and see you in London, Pip. What larks, eh? Goodbye. 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 Joe, who's behind all this? Who could it be, Joe? Uh, you'd best not worry your head over that, love. Just wave goodbye to a young gentleman. A young gentleman of great expectations. <laughs> You'll hear Act Two of Great Expectations in a moment. You know, our servicemen overseas have a wonderful opportunity to observe new customs and traditions. And they find, too, that these ideas of other people aren't so strange after all. Take, for example, the foods that people eat or uh, don't eat. Among many people, the eating of beef or pork is absolutely taboo. 
Among others, any flesh may be eaten, except that from animals with cloved hooves. Some groups will eat fish only if they have scales. Everybody has his favorite food, too, such delicacies as fish heads in Japan, frog's legs in France, or pig's knuckles in Germany. While these things might sound strange, but as our servicemen have observed, there are reasons for them. The reasons may be religious, as in the case of not eating pork, or they may be based on dietary rules from the standpoint of health. We have the same thing in our own culture. You like a big stack of hotcakes for breakfast covered with plenty of melted butter and maple syrup. But your wife finds she can lose a couple of pounds where it counts by eating a half a grapefruit and a cup of black coffee. Then we have our food fattists, the people who advise wheat germ or stone ground flour or a big helping of blackstrap molasses. If it makes them feel better, then that's the right diet for them. You can add to the list the thousands of vegetarians. They get along fine without T-bone steaks. And many of our religious groups follow certain rules as regards food. The Orthodox Jews refrain from eating pork products. Catholics abstain from eating meat on Friday. Other orders have certain days for fasting. Well, what is true about food habits around the world is true also of other customs and traditions. The way of doing things may be different, but the ideals are the same. And they're important to the people who follow them. Our servicemen are helping to maintain goodwill by observing the customs of other people in other lands. Now our producer, Mr. Cummings. Act two of Great Expectations, starring Rock Hudson as Pip and Barbara Rush as Estella. London. The glory and wonder of London. And I was a part of it now. Or rather, soon would be. Upon my arrival, I went at once to the offices of Mr. Jaggers. So you have arrived safely, Mr. Pip. Well, we shall soon settle you. Wemmick, bring the file on Mr. Pip. Yes, sir. You are scrutinizing my office, Mr. Pip. Oh, I, I beg your pardon, sir. Those clay masks that you see on the wall, they are death masks, Mr. Pip. Deceased clients. I have had the honor, sir, of defending some of the most distinguished criminals of the generation. Yes, sir. Uh, Mr. Pip's file, sir. Mr. Pip Wemmick here will conduct you to Barnard's Inn. You will share rooms there with Mr. Herbert Pocket. Yes, sir. Mr. Pocket will assist in your acquaintance and the manners of London. I take it this is agreeable? Indeed, sir. Next money. Your allowance will be 250 pounds per annum. A very handsome sum of money, too, I think. Undoubtedly, Mr. Jaggers. Of course, you'll go wrong somehow, but that being neither fault nor affair of mine, why spend time talking about it, eh? Goodbye, then, Mr. Pip, and good luck. My rooms in Barnard's Inn were most comfortable, and the young man I shared them with, Herbert Pocket, most amiable. After supper that night, we suddenly found ourselves staring at each other. Why, why, you're the boy. <laughs> no, <laughs> you're the boy. The boy who knocked me down in Miss Habisham's garden. I knew I'd seen you someplace before. Well, then... Instead of new friends, we're old friends. If Miss Havisham had taken a liking to me instead of you, suppose I should have been provided for. I might even be engaged to Estella. Herbert, who is Estella? Why, Miss Havisham's ward. Brought up by Miss Havisham to wreck revenge on all the male sex. Wreck revenge? Good heavens, Pip, I thought you knew. Knew what? Oh, dear me. Anyway, some 20 years ago, Miss Havisham fell passionately in love with a stranger. The marriage was arranged, the wedding date was set, and the day of the marriage arrived, but not the bridegroom. Instead, he sent a note and bade her farewell. 
Miss Havisham fell immediately ill. When she recovered, if ever she did, she laid the whole place waste, as you have seen it, and has never since looked upon the light of day. But when did she adopt Estella? I don't know. You know as much about Estella as I do. If I learned little from Herbert about Estella, I learned a great deal of the art of being a useless young gentleman. On my 21st birthday, Mr. Jaggers, my guardian, sent for me. Sit down, Mr. Pip. Now then, what do you suppose you are living at the rate of? The rate of, Mr. Jaggers? The rate of. I, uh, I'm afraid I'm not able to answer that. <laughs> I thought so. Well, I've asked you a question. Have you a question to ask of me? It would be a great relief to ask you several questions, Mr. Jaggers, if it were not forbidden. Ask one. Is my benefactor to be made known to me today? No, ask me another. Well, I was wondering if I had anything to receive. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I thought we should come to that. Wemmick. Oh, yes, sir. Mr. Pip, you have been spending pretty freely of late and are in debt, of course. I, I'm afraid I must say yes, sir. You know you must say yes. Yes, sir. Wemmick, hand Mr. Pip that piece of paper. Thank you. Tell me what it is, Mr. Pip. It's a banknote. A banknote for 500 pounds. And at the rate of that handsome sum per annum, and at no higher rate, you are to live until your benefactor appears. Um, will it still be years hence, Mr. Jaggers? I cannot answer that. Good afternoon, Mr. Pip. It was soon after that Joe Gargery wrote me a letter. He was coming to London. Of a sudden, I realized I was ashamed of Joe. In trying to become a gentleman, I had succeeded only in becoming a snob. Pip, uh, Pip uh, Luke, uh, Pip, I, I've been here all day, sir, and Joe, I... Joe, how can you call me sir? You treated me fine, sir, but Pip, I don't belong here. I, I wouldn't have come except Miss Havisham sent me. Miss Havisham? Uh, would you tell Mr. Pip, she says, that I wish to see him for have something to disclose to him? Well, I've now concluded, sir, and Pip. You're going, Joe? Oh, Pip, old chap. You, you and me is not two figures to be seen together in London. <laughs> I, I'm wrong away from it, Forge. You may stay the night if you wish. No, no. God bless you, dear old Pip, old chap. God bless you. The next day, I presented myself once again at Havisham House. Pip! Come in, Pip. How good to see you. How do you do, Miss Havisham? Well, have you no eyes but for me? Look about you. Estella. Good afternoon, Pip. What a wonderful surprise and pleasure. You will both have a lot to say to each other. Go out in the garden, both of you. And this is where you had the fight that day with Herbert Pocket. <laughs> I enjoyed that battle very much. You rewarded me very much. Did I? Don't you remember? No. Do you remember? No, I don't. Do you remember the first time I came here? The time you made me cry? I made you cry. You don't remember? You meant nothing to me. Why should I remember? Oh, you must realize, Pip, that I have no heart. Perhaps that's why I have no memory. No one looking at you could believe that, Estella. No sympathy, no feelings. And if we are to be thrown together, you had better believe that at once. I cannot believe it. Well, 
At any rate, it's said, so don't expect too much of me. <laughs> Come, Pip, we'll walk once more around the garden. Is she beautiful, Pip? Graceful, well-grown. Do you admire Estella, Pip? Everyone must who sees her, Miss Havisham. She is going to London soon. Then I shall be the happiest man there. Love her. If she favors you, love her. If she tears your heart to pieces, love her. I made her to be loved, Pip. I called briefly upon Joe and Biddy and returned to London. A week later, it was my unbounded pleasure to extend my arm to Estella as she stepped off the coach from Surrey. We sat and talked in a nearby coffee house. But what do you mean, Estella? You are not staying in London? I mean that I shall be staying in Richmond. Oh, praise heaven, only ten miles from here. But why Richmond? Well, I'm going to live at a great expense with a lady there who has the power of showing me to people and people to me. You will have a gay time, Estella. Well, it is a part of Miss Havisham's plan for me. Oh, but I cannot take great pleasure, Pip, in events I do not shape. But I will try to be beautiful and gay and obedient. Will you always be a part of Miss Havisham's plan? And do you thrive with Mr. Pocket, Pip? Stella, I asked if you will always be a part of And I asked, do you thrive with Mr. Pocket? Well, it's pleasant enough. At least it's... A... Yes? As pleasant as anywhere away from you. With Estella so near London, I was able to see her often in the months that followed. But I was only one of the many admirers. One winter's night, Estella's patroness gave a ball. <laughs> you dance beautifully, Pip. I'm sorry now I've promised the polka to Mr. Drummle. Drummle? He never takes his eyes off you. Look at him. Is there anything about Drummle that I need to look at? That's a question I've wanted to ask you for weeks. Ever since he started hovering over you. All sorts of ugly creatures hover about a lighted candle. Can the candle help him? It makes me wretched, Estella. You give him looks and smiles such as you never give me. Do you want me then to deceive and entrap you? Do you deceive and entrap him, Estella? Yes, and many others, Pip. All of them but you. Late that same night, I went back to London. Herbert had not yet come home. I thought it was his knock that I heard on my door. But when I opened the door, an old man stood before me, his long white hair and his black cloak dripping with rain. Mr. Pip. Hi, Mr. Pip. What's your business here? I'd like to sit down first. It's disappointing to a man after having come so far. I don't know what you mean, sir. Wait. Is there anyone else about? Why do you ask that? Uh, uh, you're a gayman, Pip. I'm glad you growed up to be a gayman. There's no one here. Look at me. Who am I? Well, how do I know who you... The churchyard. The convict I gave food to. <laughs> I, I, you acted noble, Pip, and I never forgot it. Never. There was... No need for you to come here to thank me. I wanted to see you again. If I, if I spoke harshly to you just now, I, I'm sorry. Um, how have you been living? Well, I've been a sheep farmer. Far away in New South Wales. I, I hope you've done well. I've done wonderful well. 
me and the Skype convict. I, I, I'm very glad. Uh, I hope to hear you say so, dear boy. Huh. You've done well, too, huh? Quite well. I've been chosen to succeed to some property. Uh huh? May I ask what property? I don't know. May I ask whose property? I don't know that either. Could I make a guess, I wonder, at your income since you've come of age, huh? Sigh. Five hundred pounds? Yes, but... And your guardian? Could it be he's a lawyer, Pip? As to the first letter of that lawyer's name now, would it be J? How do you know this? As to the employer of that lawyer whose name begins with J and might be Jaggers. You! It's you! Aye, dear boy, yes, Pip, it's me what's done it. You give me your hand, Pip, let me hold it. <laughs> Oh, I swore that time, sure as I'd ever escape again and own a guinea, that guinea should go to you. That there hunted dog, which you kept life in, got his head so high that he could make a gentleman. <laughs> and Pip, you're him. Didn't you ever think it might be me? No, never. No one else. Oh, uh, Miss Havisham, perhaps. No one else, dear boy. Single and <laughs> Your second father, Pip. Me. Mr. Pip, is it so early in the day? I must talk to you, Mr. Jaggers. Alone. Molly? Yes, sir. Get out. I said get out. Clean up later on. I'll get out. Who was that woman? I've never seen her here before. She's been here before. For years, Mr. Pip. I once saved her from the hangman. Now she cleans my office. Well? Mr. Jaggers, last night I had a caller. I want to assure myself that what I've been told is true. Did you say told or informed? Told would imply verbal communication. You can't have verbal communication with a man, for example, in New South Wales. Uh, I will say informed, then. I have been informed by a person named Abel Magwitch that he is the benefactor so long unknown to me. That is the man in New South Wales. Well, wherever he is. I've always supposed it was Miss Havisham. Well, have you now? Why? Not a particle of evidence, Pip. Take nothing on supposition. Take everything on evidence. Well, you have nothing more to say. I will say this. I think you should know that I communicated with Mr. Abel Magwitch in New South Wales, reminding him that if he should ever set foot again in this country, he would be liable to immediate execution. Take a look out that window, Pip. Yonder you'll see the prison yard. What is occurring in the prison yard? Horrible. They're preparing to hang... Surely not all those people. Eight... I believe, this morning. Happens every day. Magwitch has enemies here who would not hesitate to inform on an escaped convict. There is a reward for such as want it. I see. But no doubt he has guided himself by my caution and has remained in New South Wales. But if Mr. Magwitch were in this country, he would have to be got out of this country at once, would he not? If he were here... And anyone cared about him? Yes, at once. Then what has to be done must be done. Good day, Mr. Jaggers. 
You probably remember when the waves of the North Sea burst through Holland's dikes and turned the little country into a land of terror. It was Western Europe's worst flood disaster. More than 1,400 people were killed, and over 60,000 were made homeless. The property loss was greater than that suffered during World War II. But America answered the call from the Dutch people. Within just a few hours, United States Army helicopters were evacuating hundreds from the danger areas. Mercy planes filled with blankets, coats, shoes, and food brought quick relief in the emergency. Among the many who contributed was the 82nd Airborne Division. They remembered the courage and the help displayed by the Dutch people when they parachuted into Holland in 1944. This one unit collected nearly 20,000 pounds of clothing and over $12,000 in cash for relief in the flooded country. Now, there was no official drive behind this operation. It emerged right from the heart, a spontaneous, genuine reaction to a country struck by disaster. It proved once more that in the hour of need, people will reach across borders and oceans to help their fellow men. Such acts by you and your friends today are shaping our world of tomorrow. We pause now for station identification. The curtain rises on Act Three of Great Expectations, starring Rock Hudson as Pip, and Barbara Rush as Estella. At last I had the truth. I knew my benefactor, and I knew he was now risking his life only that he might see me. I had but one course to follow. Somehow I must get Abel Magwitch out of England and remain at his side as long as he lived. With one man only did I share the secret, Herbert Pocket. Leaving him to share Mr. Magwitch, I sought Estella. I found her at Havisham House. We have company, Miss Havisham. Look. Pip! And what brings you here, Mr. Pip? So glumly. I have found out who my benefactor is, Miss Havisham. I as un- unhappy as ever you could have wished me to be. Well, who is he? It is not for me to say. Well, then. When Mr. Jaggers... Mr. Jaggers had nothing to do with it. His being my lawyer and the lawyer of your patron is coincidence. Yet for all this time, you've led me on. Yes, I led you on. Was that kind? Who am I, for heaven's sake, that I should be kind? What little more I have to say is for Estella. I would have spoken sooner, Estella. But I believed that Miss Havisham meant us for one another. I felt I could not tell you my real feelings. While you were not free to choose for yourself... But now that I am going away, I can speak. I have loved you, Estella, since I first came into this house. And I have warned you not to love me. But you would not be warned. Is it true that Bentley Drummle is here in Surrey pursuing you? Quite true. And that you encourage him to do so? Quite true. You cannot fling yourself at such a man. Should I fling myself at you, Pip? Who would sense at once that I can bring nothing to you? But you you can't love him, Estella. Well, I am going to marry him. Oh, Pip. Don't be afraid of my being a blessing to him. I shall not be that. Here. Here is my hand. Let us part on that. You'll get me out of your thoughts in a week. Goodbye, Pip. Let her go, Pip. What have I done? 
What have I done? I had not reached the gate of Havisham House when a frightful scream sent me rushing back. I heard a window shatter and saw a sheet of angry flame and the terrified face of Miss Havisham as the fire enveloped her. I dashed to the room and carried her out and went back a second time to smother the flames. A falling candle must have started the fire. But Miss Havisham could not say. Miss Havisham was dead. When I returned to London, I was summoned immediately by Mr. Jaggers. I had you come to my house for good reason, Mr. Pip. How do things fare at Barnard's Inn? Why do you ask? Because I have just got word that an old enemy of, of a certain convict knows of his presence here in London. I have been watched. I also heard that you are being watched. I? And might be watched again. So I advised a certain Mr. Herbert Pocket to get a certain individual out of the way while you were out of the way. Where are they? I shall take you there tonight. That night I joined them, Mr. Magwitch and our faithful friend Herbert Pocket. They were near Gravesend, hiding away in an obscure lodging house on the Thames River. It was here that we planned our escape. Twice a week, a packet boat left Gravesend Pier and crossed the channel into France. If someone was watching us, he'd be at that pier. We had to find some other way of boarding the packet boat. Far down the river was a boy. Here we observed a boat, a boat could always stop to drop the river pilot, and on occasion to take on more passengers. That was where we would have to go aboard. Daily, Herbert and I went rowing in the river, becoming familiar figures to any who might otherwise suspect us. At last came the day we had waited for. But with it, stormy winds and heavy rain. Six o'clock. Still have time if the storm lit up. How does it look from the window, Pip? Mm, black as ever. The river's too rough. That seed swamp us before we could... What is it, boy? On the beach. Two men on horseback. They're looking at this house. They're taking notes. No, no, stay where you are. Police? I can't say. I think so. Wait! They're going now. They're walking their horses. This way? No, toward town. They can't be too sure of themselves that they'd go at a gallop. Storm or no storm, get ready, sir. We're rowing out this morning. Hey, the storm stopped, Pip. Our luck's with us. Once we locate the buoy, we'll be all right. Row, Pip. Right or, man. Right or. Tell me something, Mr. Magwitch. What, dear boy? What I did for you as a child was such a small matter. Why have you done so much for me? I had a child of my own once, Pip. A little girl who I loved and lost. What happened to her? I don't know. But when on those lone, shivering marshes, a boy was kind to a half-starved convict... That boy took the place of the child he'd lost. There's That's the boy, Pip. Straight ahead. We've made it. There's another boat already there. A dory. Hold your oars, Herbert. Sighted us, Pip. Who could it be? We'll not wait to find out. Swing around. Ahoy! Don't answer. Hold the horse! In the name of the king! Pip, they're coming after us. You have an escape convict there! I call upon him to We'll head for the fog bank, Herbert. We can still lose them. Stop! In the name of the king! Stop! There were four men at the oars of the dory. It was just a matter of time before they'd be upon us. Then, through the fog, we heard the engines of the packet boat. It was bearing straight down upon us. There was one desperate chance to take. Row straight for the steamer in the hope our pursuers, fearful of being run down, would rest their oars. But if they too heard the ship, it deterred them not one instant. They were not ten feet from it when the packet boat leaped from the mist and crushed us both to splitters. 
next I knew, we were aboard the steamer. Mr. Magwitch was lying on the deck. His wrists, uh, once again, bound <coughs> by chains. <coughs> They're taking us back, Pip. I'll never forgive myself for this. I'm all right. I'm content to have seen my boy and took my chance. Jaggers will help you, sir. Don't worry. Jaggers will get you off all right. Prisoner at the bar will stand and come forward. Mr. Jaggers. The law is the law, Mr. Pip. We have been defeated. Abel Magwitch, the sentence of the court is that you shall be taken hence to the place of execution and they are hanged by the neck until you are dead. I've just come from the warden, Pip. He'll be hanged day after tomorrow. There's nothing we can do. Nothing. But he may cheat the hangman yet. The old man is quite ill, Pip. I know. You, uh... You realize, of course, that you will no longer inherit his fortune. That becomes the claim of the crown. The money is not no interest to me. If you had been a blood relation, it might have been different. But it is not different. You mean, if he had a child, the money might go to the child? The money might go to the child. There was a child, Mr. Jaggers. I know there was. And what is more, you know it too. Pip, sit down. I'm going to put a case to you. Put the case that a woman is charged with a murder. Put the case that this woman has a child whose father is a convict. Go on. Now put the case that this woman's legal advisor knows an eccentric and very rich lady who is about to adopt a little girl. You understand, Mr. Pip? No admissions, but do you understand? I understand, but I can hardly believe it. Ring that bell. Observe who comes in. Yes, sir. Some fresh water in the basin, Molly. I shall wash before dining. Yes, sir. Well, Pip, would you hazard a statement? If I am in my right mind, if that woman you call Molly is Estella's mother, then this legal advisor you mentioned will have a lot to answer for. Now, put the case of this legal advisor, who has often seen children tried at the criminal bar, Put the case that he's known them to be habitually imprisoned, whipped and cast out, qualified in all ways for the hangman and growing up to be hanged. Put the case that here was one pretty little child out of all that miserable heap that could be saved. Put that last case to yourself very carefully. I do, Mr. Jaggers. Did the legal advisor do right? He did right. Does Estella know? You mean, does the little girl know? No, she does not know. She must never be told. As to her claim to her father's property, the legal advisor must use his own judgment, which he is in the process of arriving at and will in due course of time use. Meanwhile, you will find the child's father in the prison infirmary. Oh, dear boy. Oh, I thought you wasn't coming. 
<laughs> it's somehow you that you would. I've been waiting permission from the warden. Oh, God bless you, Pip. You've never deserted me. And what's best of all, you've been more comfort to me since I was under this dark cloud than when the sun shone. That's best of all. Are you in pain, sir? I don't complain of none, dear boy. I have something to say to you. Can you understand me? Uh, I, I... You had a child once whom you loved and lost. She lived, sir. What? She is a lady now and very beautiful. And I love her. What? Oh, Pip. <coughs> You're on, Pip. You're on. Mr. Magwitch. Mr. Magwitch. Be merciful to him, O oh Lord. Be merciful. Abel Magwitch died in my arms. I remember walking back to Mr. Jagger's office and suddenly finding the room spinning before my eyes and my legs turning to water. When my senses returned, I was in my boyhood room and Joe Gargery was smiling over me. Your Betty, Pip. Your fever's gone, old chap. Joe. It is Joe. Which it are, old chap? I'm in your house, Joe. Three weeks and more, Pip, and almost dead. We brought you home, dear old Pip, old chap, Biddy and me. After the way I turn from you, you break my heart, Joe. Ah, ever the best of friends, Pip, come what may. Soon you'll be well again, and then coo, what larks, eh? Biddy. Right here, Pip, dear. You have the best husband in the world, Biddy. And Joe, the best wife. Which I know, Pip, old chap, which I know. One day you'll marry two, Pip. No, Biddy. I don't think so. You still fret for her, Estella. I think of her. But that poor dream has all gone by. Has all gone by. I knew as I said these words that I intended to visit the great old house the first day I could get on my feet. When that day came and I walked through the dark corridors, they were filled with echoes of years gone by. What name? Pumblechook. Quite right. Sometimes I have sick fancies. I would like to see someone play. Don't loiter, boy. You can break his heart. A coarse, common, laboring boy. I hate you. I hate you. I opened the door of Miss Havisham's room. For one frantic moment, I thought I saw her there. Miss Havisham sitting in her chair. Come in, Pip. Stella. Stella. I thought you were in Paris with your husband. I have no husband, Pip. Haven't you heard? Well, I've been ill, Estella. I've heard nothing. When Mr. Jaggers disclosed to Bentley Drummle who my parents were, he no longer wished to have me for a wife. Well, Pip, why don't you laugh? You have every right. I have no wish to laugh, Estella. Oh, you've no need to pity me. This house is mine now. And I shall live here. 
Away from the world and all its complications. Estella, how long have you been here? I... I don't know. You must leave this house. It's a dead house. Nothing can live here, Estella. This is the house where I grew up. It's part of me. It's my home. It was Miss Havisham's home. But she's gone. Gone from both of us. Oh, she's not gone. She is still here. In this very room. Then I defy her. I have come back, Miss Havisham. I have come back to let the sunlight in. Oh, Pip. I shall open the drapes, Miss Havisham. I shall rip down the drapes. There is sunshine in your house again, Miss Havisham. The sunlight is streaming through. <laughs> oh, Stella. Oh, my God. Oh, Pip. I'm afraid. I'm... Look at me. We will start again, Estella. Together. Come with me, Estella. Out into the sunlight. In a moment, our stars will return. There's a thought for you to keep in mind, as many another American has. There's hardly a home in western Germany, for instance, which doesn't reflect the influence of Ellen McCloy, wife of our former high commissioner to Germany. When Mrs. McCloy arrived in Germany in 1949, she decided to be more than just the wife of the high commissioner. There were nearly 10 million outcasts in the western area, refugees from the occupied countries, bewildered people who needed guidance and encouragement. Mrs. McCloy knew that big problems can be solved from small beginnings. So she bought a few sewing machines and opened a sewing room where the women could make warm winter clothing for their families. Well, the sewing room was an immediate success. As they sewed, the women discussed common interests, found new friends. Within a year, 30 more sewing rooms were begun in the United States zone. Early in 1950, Mrs. McCloy began a series of visits which took her into every town in the U.S. zone, as well as the French and British areas. She spoke to the women told them how American women lived and how they became good citizens. She spoke honestly with German housewives and pulled them out of the depths of self-pity by showing them the meaning of neighborliness. Well, these are but a few examples of what she did to help those who needed help. During her three-year stay in Germany, Mrs. McCloy did much to assure the future of German democracy. As one German housewife put it, for us Germans, Frau McCloy is better even than the Marshall Plan. Yes, Ellen McCloy had proved that by helping others, you help your country. Now, here's Mr. Cummings with our stars. And now that they've fulfilled our great expectations, Rock Hudson and Barbara Rush take a bow. <laughs> we certainly enjoyed doing the show, Mr. Cummings. Next week, Arlene Dahl, on the Radio Theater. Co-starring with that brilliant newcomer... Richard Burton. And as our play, we have chosen one of the great love stories of all time. 20th Century Fox's imp impressive drama of the star-crossed lovers, David and Bathsheba. And that's one I won't miss. Good night. Good night. Good night. It was wonderful seeing you again.
heard in our cast tonight were Bill Conrad as Magwitch, Jeanette Nolan as Miss Havisham, Alan Reed as Jaggers, Peter Voltrian as Pip as a child, Susan Seaforth as Estella as a child, Christopher Cook as Herbert as a child, Harley Bear as Joel, and Vivi Janis, Jimmy McCallion, Lillian Bayef, Norman Field, Howard McNair, Leo Britt, and Eddie Marr. Hollywood Radio Theater is produced by Irving Cummings. Our orchestra is directed by Rudy Schrager. This is your announcer, Ken Carpenter, inviting you to be with us again next week at this same time for another presentation of the Hollywood Radio Theater. This is the United States Armed Forces Radio and Television Service. from out of the past stories, strange and weird. Bellkeeper, toll the bell so that all may know we are gathered again in the Weird Circle. Speak again the immortal tale, Wuthering Heights. Walking in the blinding snow, 
I could swear I heard a voice in the wind. A high, lonesome voice, lamenting it was lost. The night was treacherous. I was numb with cold and cursed myself for having wandered so far on the moors. The air was like a million icicles pricking my face. It was hard to breathe. I turned and looked back. The snow had already hidden the road behind me. Panic and fear cut through me like a chill knife. I almost ran up the slope ahead. Then I stopped dead still and caught my breath. Against the gray horizon was a house set on a height, a shelter from the storm. I could think of nothing else. I ran toward the house and stumbled up the path to the door. Let me in! Let me in! What do you want? I've, I've lost my way in the storm. I, I beg of you, sir, let me come in. We don't welcome strangers here. But I can't find my way back in the snow. Take the road you came. It's buried in drifts. Please, sir, I beg of you. I, I don't allow a man to inconvenience me if I can hinder it. This night I have no choice. Come in. Uh, I'm indebted to you for my life, sir. No one man could live through that blizzard. Then warm yourself by the fire. It is a bitter night. I'm afraid, sir, that guests are so exceedingly rare at Wuthering Heights, I hardly know how to receive them. My name is Lockwood. I'm staying at the village inn. I had no idea the Moors could lose a man so completely. There are more than men lost on the Moors. Then I'm afraid I shall be weather-bound, unless you can spare me a guide. I'm sorry, I cannot. Are there no boys on your farm? None, sir. Will you take a glass of wine? It would be welcome, indeed. There's no one at Wuthering Heights. Save myself, his former master, and Ellen Dean, an old nurse. Then how shall I ever get back? Their landmarks. I can point them out to you. I'd be sore afraid to trust the darkness. Then I hope you've learned not to make such rash journeys on the hills. I don't keep accommodations for visitors. But, sir, you, you can't turn me out. I'd be grateful if you'd only allow me to stay here by the fire. No. no there's no need for that. I couldn't permit anyone the range of the place while I'm asleep. Ellen! you have some more wine, sir? Then you'll allow me to stay. Till morning. And you can find your way alone. Yes, Mr. Heathcliff. Come in, Ellen, come in. This man is Mr. Lockwood. He's lost his way. We'll let him stay the night here. Yes, sir. Take your glass, sir. Wine helps take the chill from your bones. Light a fire for Mr. Lockwood, Ellen. I will, sir. Good night, then. Good night, Mr. Heathcliff. I'm grateful indeed. This way, sir. Up the stairs. The room was dusty and cold, and I stood for a time on the hearth warming myself. A naked branch of a frozen tree scraped against the window pane. I felt as if there were eyes somewhere in the dark corners of the chilly room, watching and waiting for some sign or hidden word unknown to me. Then I saw those dusty volumes on the window ledge, and three names scratched in the wood. Catherine Earnshaw, Catherine Heathcliff, Catherine Linton. One of the books was a musty testament written in a small feminine hand. I sat down on the bed, turning the diary to the candlelight, and began to read. It was Catherine Earnshaw's book. Today's my birthday, she had written. The saddest day of all. Seventeen. Just imagine. And how little did I dream the world could be so full of tears. Let me tell you how the sadness came. Heathcliff and I were on the moors today, laughing and singing all the while. 
till suddenly night began to creep out of the east. We ran over the hills toward home. I... And the wild slip of a girl you are, Kathy. <laughs> and, Father, there were at least a dozen rabbits in the goose bushes. Think how many we could bring home if you'd only let Heathcliff have a gun. <laughs> Whatever will we do with her? I think she means no harm, Mr. Earnshaw. Oh, I'm an old man, Kathy. When I'm gone, it's your brother Hindley who'll be master of Wuthering Heights. Heathcliff, is that you who are sitting so sullen on the house? Ah, Mr. Earnshaw, it is only the thought of you being ill that makes me sullen. Come here, my lad, beside my chair. What a ruffian you are, as wild as the wildest day on the moors. Have you grown fond of Wuthering Heights? Ah, Mr. Earnshaw, I have that. Do you recollect when I found you, a dirty imp, frightened and homeless on the Liverpool streets? I was so little, sir. I remember a little, too. Well, I recollect when I brought you home from the chore you were, snarling and clawing like a little beast. Now you're a big lad. And I'm thinking it's the truth, Ellen tells me. You're very much fond of our Kathy. We understand one another, sir. Our natures are akin. Aye, Father, they are. Like two peas in a pod, I'm thinking. <laughs> well, it is good. It is a curious world I'm leaving, but for a better one. Hey, Ellen. Oh, sir. Hey, for a better one. Sing me a little tune, Kathy. Sing your old father to sleep. Put your head back like a good man. There. Mm -hmm. Why, he's asleep already. You wake him. Don't any of you stir to bed with all of you. No din, do you hear? But I could kiss him goodnight at least. That'll not wake him. Hindley. Ellen. He's dead, Heathcliff. He's dead. <laughs> Just true, Kathy. Your father's passed over at last. Heathcliff cried tonight till I thought his heart would break. And now my brother Hindley says he's not to eat a table with us anymore. That Heathcliff and I shan't walk on the moors again. And he threatens to turn him out of the house if we break his orders. For Hindley now asserts his mastery of Wuthering Heights. Oh, poor father, would you hear of such an outrageous thing? But we shall be happy in spite of Hindley. And when the days pass into weeks, we'll both outgrow the sadness. Come on, Kathy. Come on. Heathcliff, wait for me. I can't run over the moors as fast as you. And come on, else I will leave you behind. Well, where are you going? We're so far from home. Never you mind. Curiosity killed a cat, remember? <laughs> oh, you and your silly saying. Yeah. Give me your hand. Oh, let's walk a little. We've been running for hours. Heathcliff. Oh, look at me. Why, you're crying. It's only the wind. No, it's not the wind. Oh, I know. I've seen the hurt in your eyes all these weeks, ever since Father died. It's not hurt, you see, Kathy. I'm trying to settle how I shall pay Hindley back. 
I don't care how long I wait if I can do it at last. Oh, my darling. Only close to you. Can't we just run away somewhere? Far away where nobody will ever harm us. You're such a silly, Kathy. Do you really love me so much? More than you'll ever know. More than I could ever say. Then nothing can harm us. Come on now. It's already getting dark. Is this place, uh, whatever it is, it's day far? Just yonder, at the top of the hill, you'll see. Oh, you're so mean, not teasing me. Making me wait like this. Well, you don't have to wait longer. Look. There, the wall above. It's a house. Oh, a beautiful house. Whoever lives in it, Heathcliff? The Lintons. Then it's Thrushcross Grange. Mm. See that window with the flowers just underneath? Yes. That's the drawing room. We can sit there. Look here on the Lintons and watch what they do on a Sunday. Come on. <laughs> Look now. Your tears are gone. Oh, but it's beautiful, Heathcliff. It really is beautiful. Not so loud, Kathy. They're here. Look, there's Isabella and Edgar. <laughs> Aren't they silly looking? Right. All done up in their satins and lace, looking as if they could die with boredom. Right. And I wouldn't chain places with Edgar even if the privilege of painting Wuthering Heights with Hindley's blood came with it. Hey, no, look! There's a way to the window! She saw you, Come on, we have to run for it. The Heathcliff, wait! The door's there! Get the door loose! Come on, we can beat him to the morgue! Get him, Get him, Skelter! Get him! Heathcliff, run! The dog! So it is. Skulker, get back there. Get back. The rascals know that yesterday was your rent day. They'd come to murder us. Shut up, both of you. Skulker, get back and stay back. Yeah, you're all right. My ankle. My ankle's torn. Let me see, Miss Earnshaw. No. It is a bad bite. Miss Earnshaw. Catherine Earnshaw. Nonsense. And Earnshaw scouring the moors with a gypsy. Edgar, take her up and into the house. We'll have to dress the wound. You... Who are you? None of your business, Mr. Linton. And you'll not lay a hand on her. Why, you insolent rogue! I'll take you home. No. No, Heathcliff, I... I can't walk. Heathcliff, is it? Well, so you're the lad my late neighbor adopted. He's a frightful thing, Papa. I'm fit for a decent house. Aye, and that's the truth. Now get going, lad. And tell Miss Earnshaw's brother we'll keep her here till she's able to come home. Do as he says, Heathcliff. Please. You heard what Miss Earnshaw said. Get a move on. Kathy... I'll come back. Goodbye. I'll fetch you home when you're well again. I watched him climb over the wall and disappear in the cover of twilight. The Lindens nursed me, and oh, how different life was at the Grange. But Heathcliff wasn't there. It was... it was somehow incomplete, even though Edgar and Isabella with their laughter made the days pass quickly. When Christmas came, I was well again, and happy to see Wuthering Heights from the window of the Linton carriage. Heathcliff! Heathcliff, I'm home! Oh, oh, hello, Ellen. Where's everybody? Oh, Miss Cathy. Such a lady you've grown up to be. <laughs> oh, and such a beautiful girl. Do you like it, Ellen? It's one of Isabella's. What'll Heathcliff say of me now? Oh, his eyes will pop out of his head. Oh, Ellen, really, I did have a wonderful time. But where's Hindley and... Why isn't Heathcliff here to meet me? Your brother's out on the moors and Heathcliff... Uh, Miss Cathy... Heathcliff's gone. Gone? 
gone from Wuthering Heights? Ever since that day Mr. Edgar came here to ask your brother for your hand in marriage. He's deserted me. Heathcliff's deserted me. No, Miss Cathy. It's Hindy. He made him No, no, Miss Cathy. Heathcliff went out of his own accord. But why didn't he wait till I could explain? Couldn't he see that if I married, I'd have money to help him find his place in the world? Oh, Ellen, my grief has been Heathcliff's as well. My love, his love. He's always, always in my mind. I... I am Heathcliff, Ellen. Don't you see? He must come back. He must come back. Weeks and months passed. I waited and hoped. He didn't come back. Then one summer day, after old Mr. Linton died... Edgar and I were married, and Ellen came to live at the Grange. One night, Edgar and I were sitting with Isabella in the parlor when Ellen came in. Yes, Ellen, what is it? Oh, Kathy, there's a man from the valley to see you. Why, she's white as a sheet. <laughs> well, did he frighten you, Ellen? No, ma'am, it's just that I... Well, speak up, Ellen. Who is he? Oh, Heathcliff, sir. Heathcliff, come back. Ellen, it isn't true. Oh, Edgar, Heathcliff, come back. He's come back. Oh, look, do get him. Step up, Ellen, quickly. Oh, really? Catherine. Oh, uh, I know you didn't like him, Edgar, but for my sake, be friends with him now. Why, he's nothing more than a runaway servant, Catherine. Oh, I know what you think, Isabella, but y you like him when you know him better, really. Believe me. Mr. Heathcliff, in here, sir. Oh, Heathcliff. Oh, Heathcliff, you've come back at last. Welcome to the Grange. Kathy. And a more beautiful Cathy than ever was. I shall think it a dream tomorrow. Uh, do you remember Edgar and Isabella Heathcliff? How do you do, How do you do? Where are you staying, sir? At Gimmerton? No, no. At Wuthering Heights. Cathy's brother, Hindley, invited me when I called this morning. Oh, it's so wonderful to have you home. I thought we might have walks together someday soon, Cathy. And see the moors again. But of course we shall go walking. Now that summer's here and... And now that you're here again... Perhaps Mr. Heathcliff will also show us the darkest and most dangerous corners of the moors. I'm afraid I'm as ignorant of them as Edgar is. The pleasure will be all mine. The world was right again, and my heart sang. Heathcliff was home, a tall, splendid man. But behind his dark eyes was the boy I'd known before. We walked on the hills, we laughed, and, oh, I was happy again. But as the days passed, Isabella grew cross and fretful. And I knew she'd fallen in love. It's only your harshness, Kathy, that makes me unhappy. But how can you say that, Isabella? When have I ever been harsh with you? Yesterday. And now? Yesterday? When? And I'll walk on the moor. You told me to ramble where I pleased while you went along with Mr. Heathcliff. Well, is that your notion of harshness? I really didn't care whether you worked with us or not. You didn't want me, Kathy, because you knew I liked being there. With Heathcliff, you mean? Yes. But you want nobody to be loved except yourself. Isabella. Well, you don't believe that. I love him more than ever you could. And Heathcliff might love me too if you'd only let him. Oh. I wouldn't be you for a kingdom then. Do you know what Heathcliff is? He's a rogue. Wild and cruel and strong. He stops at nothing. And you know what he's doing now, this minute? He's doing what he always swore to do. Ruin Hindley Earnshaw. I don't believe you. You're selfish. You're jealous of me. Here, here. What's going on between you two? I love him. You hear that, Edgar? And I don't care if you do know it. 
I love Heathcliff more than Catherine ever loved you. Isabella, stop it. You don't know what you're saying. I know what I'm saying well enough. You're both against me. Isabella, stop this hysterical talk and go to your room. All right, Edgar. I'll go. But what will you think when I say it's the last order I'll take from the master of Crushcross Lane? Kathy, what on earth is the matter? What does she mean? I don't know, Edgar. I don't know. Well, I do. It's that Heathcliff. He's poisoned her mind. Edgar, don't talk. Call Ellen. I feel ill. But Kathy... Edgar, let's hear no more about it. Edgar, I can scarcely stand. Kathy. Ellen, come quickly. Miss Kathy has fainted. Oh, Miss Kathy, do come away from the window. We used to stand among the graves at Gimmerton Kirk. Heathcliff and I... And dare the ghost to rise up out of the solid ground. I dare you now, Heathcliff, to come for me. I'll not rest till you're here. Miss Cathy, the doctor said you should be in bed. Oh, Ellen, what'll I do? The ghost inside me. This room's a haunted place. I'm afraid of being alone. There, there, Miss Cathy. Come to bed. See how weak you are? In a little while, you'll be well and strong again. Now, cover up. Good and warm. Kathy, it's happened. You've driven her away. Isabella's run off with Heathcliff. Listen to that wind, Ellen. Has winter come so soon? Hi, Miss Kathy. You've been in bed a long time, remember? Will I ever be well again? Now, how could you help it when you've got a, as good a nurse as I? If I tell you something, Miss Cathy, will you promise to lie quite still and not become excited? Ellen, you've heard. Now, now, promise, oh, sir. Yes, I promise, I promise. Well, three days ago I received a note from Miss Isabella. Oh, it made my heart weak to read it. They've returned to Wuthering Heights and she's unhappy and afraid. Heathcliff doesn't love her, she says. Oh, he married only for spite. Does Edgar know all this? No, no, Miss Cathy, and he mustn't since he's disowned his sister. Somehow, I knew Heathcliff was back at the Heights. I could feel he was there. Yes, I saw him today. Today? Oh, Ellen. He wants to see you. <laughs> he wants to see me, Ellen. It's the most important thing in the world. He wants to see me again. Oh, but please, Miss Cathy, for your own sake, don't. No good can come of it, believe me. He's a man without a soul. Poor Hindley. Heathcliff's made a gambler and a drunkard out of him. He's taken Wuthering Heights from the Will come tonight, Ellen? What time? How will I know? Look at me, how thin and how ugly I am. Oh, you were never more beautiful, Miss Cathy. Are you so bent on seeing yes, me? Yes, yes, I must. Well, he'll come to the garden tonight after ten o'clock. Ten o'clock? Oh, there's so little time, Ellen. Help me out of bed. I must get ready to see him. But he's coming here. He knows you're ill. <laughs> But I'm not in any longer. You'll see how well I am when I walk down to the garden to meet him. And now he's coming to the garden. I knew you'd come back, Heathcliff, someday. Back to me. What matter is anything now? Except that you're coming to the garden to see me again. But I must close my book. Put it away before the fire strikes in. Silly words I have written. 
What do they mean? There was never a way of telling what's in my heart. The diary ended, and I closed the book. The gloomy room had grown chill again, for the fire had burned itself out. And over Wuthering Heights, the wind of the blizzard sang. I pulled down the covers of the bed. The frozen branch of the tree scraped on the window glass. I went to the window and pulled it up. Cold wind dashed in upon me. I reached out, groping for the twig. Then my blood froze. Instead of the branch, my fingers closed over a small, ice-cold hand. I tried to draw back my arm, but the hand clung to it, and a voice came out of the wind. Let me in. Let me in. I've come home. I lost my way on the Heathcliff! 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 Confound you, Mr. Rockwood. What is the matter? A hand on the sill and a voice entreating me to let her in. Mr. Heathcliff, it's your Catherine. Out on the moors. Are you mad? She's been dead 20 years. Then she's come back from the grave. I tell you, I touched her hand. What is this din in the night, Mr. Heathcliff? What's happened? Kathy, on the moors. I must find her. I must bring her back. Mr. Heathcliff, wait a moment. Stop him, Mr. Lockwood. Don't let him go. He'll not stay out in the blizzard long. Never fear. But, Ellen, tell me the rest of the story. What happened that night when Heathcliff called at the Grange? You've been reading her diary, then? So long ago it was, Mr. Lockwood, that unhappy night. But tell me. Well, I begged Miss Cathy not to move from her bed. But her eyes shone. There was no stopping her. Heathcliff was waiting in the garden at the stroke of ten and... I opened the side door for Miss Cathy to go out in the winter air. They looked at each other without saying a word. A gust of icy wind blew up. I was afraid for Cathy. I shouted to her. Miss Cathy, you must come inside. You're not well. I don't care, Ellen. Let me stay. Cathy, she's right. You must go. The wind's cold. I'll wait by your window. No, no, no. I want to stay here. Miss Cathy, please. I'll never go. Never again. When I'm dead, Heathcliff, will you forsake me? Kathy, don't speak of dying. Kathy. Miss Kathy. Oh, bring her in, sir. She's fainted. I'll never forsake you, Kathy. No, Ellen. She's not fainted. Call Edgar. Tell him Kathy is dead. So we buried her on the moors in a lonesome spot where she'd often wandered. And Mr. Heathcliff came back to the heights. And so the years have passed. Now, sir, you know, and I can wait no longer. Please go with me to fetch him out of the storm. But, Miss Isabella, what happened to her? Oh, she went back to the Grange soon after Miss Cathy died. And Hindley? He's still here at the heights, though he seldom comes out of his room. Will you go with me now, sir? Uh, yes, Ellen. Lead the way. The snow is beginning to stop, sir. We've wandered so far from the heights, Ellen. We'd better go back. Oh, but the dawn is coming. The spot I mentioned is just ahead. Look, there on the slope. It's a cross. There's something half buried in the drifts. Miss Cathy's grave, Mr. Lockwood. But what's that lying over it? Oh, he didn't know where else to look on the moors except in the spot where she lies. 
Then it's Heathcliff, frozen in the snow. Aye, Mr. Lockwood. Come. We can go back to the heights. He's found her at last. As we trudged back to Wuthering Heights, the snow slackened, and there was nothing but the bleak house there on the hill, and beyond it a wide and gloomy sky. As we approached the gate, I looked up and saw two birds taking flight from one of the eaves, and they flew together through the snow-dusted air, and we stood and watched until they disappeared into the gray horizon of the morning. pages of the past, we have brought you the story, Wuthering Heights. Bellkeeper, toll the bell. Once again, next time, for another immortal tale in The Weird Circle. The Mercury Theater on the Air. Columbia Broadcasting System takes pride in bringing you Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the air in another broadcast of the unique series which signalizes radio's first presentation of a complete theatrical producing company. For these programs, the regular member stations of the Columbia Broadcasting System are joined by the coast-to-coast network of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Tonight, the Mercury Theater turns to another of the great narratives and adventure stories of the world of literature. The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexander Dumas. And here again is the director, the star, and producer of these broadcasts, Orson Welles. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. There is no reasonable explanation of Alexander Dumas. He was a rich man. We note with interest that he went bankrupt in the theater. He was a revolutionary. His grandfather was a marquis. His grandmother was a negress. He was born as Napoleon became emperor. He died in poverty as the Germans marched into France. He wrote The Count of Monte Cristo as a newspaper serial, and shortly after the last installment, a ball and a bullfight were organized for him in Seville, and finally in Algiers, the customs men let his baggage through without examination. Such things don't and can't happen today, but then neither does Alexander Dumas himself, the wildest romance of a man who could and did openly maintain at 70 numerous establishments and a literary factory as well, whose quantitative output is equaled in the arts only by Rubens' studio. There's a good story about what Dumas Père told Dumas Fils. Father, said the inventor of Camille, I have just read your 
latest book. Have you, my son, said Duma Père? What's it about? I'm not sure I have. It is no secret and no shame either that the Chateau Monte Cristo was haunted by many ghostwriters and that its owner signed his name to more books than anyone could ever write. It is not expected of Pharaoh that he build with his own hands his own pyramids. And the mere blueprint of one Dumas plot is an airtight alibi for a whole career. Of all these, out of question, the most gloriously complex, possibly the most impossible, a mathematical miracle, as perfect as watchworks and as big as Pittsburgh, among hundreds, one Dumas plot persists as the most ingenious tall story ever perpetrated by the mind of man. God's vengeance on radio scriptwriters and your indestructible delight in spite of us. Here, then, is a humble 57 minutes worth of the Count of Monte Cristo. In the year 1815, I, Edmond Dantes, was first mate of the Pharaoh, bound for Marseille from Smyrna, Trieste, and Naples. The day we left Naples, the captain was attacked by a fever and died within three days. On the 28th day of September, we sighted the coast of France. Some hours later, we rounded the Chateau d'If and entered Marseille Harbor. Monsieur Morel, the owner, came abroad. Good day, Monsieur Morel. Ah, good day, Monsieur Danglars. You've heard of the misfortune that's befallen us, Monsieur Morel? Yes, yes, you mean poor Captain Leclerc. He was a brave and an honest man. And a first-rate seaman, grown old between sky and ocean. Well, a man needs not be old, Danglars, to know his business. Edmond Dantes, your mate there, seems to understand his thoroughly. Hey, let go the anchor! <laughs> you see, he fancies himself captain already. And so, in fact, he is. Monsieur Morel, at your service. You called me, I think. Yes, that is. I'm told you stopped a day and a half at the Isle of Elba. Why? I don't know, sir. You don't know? No, sir. It was to fulfill the last instruction of Captain Leclerc when he was dying. He gave me a packet to be delivered on the island. Ah. You did right, Dentist, to follow Captain Leclerc's instructions. Though, if it were known that you've delivered a packet to the island, it... Might get you into trouble. How could it get me into trouble, sir, if I don't even know what it was? I was delivering. Beg your pardon, sir. Yeah, the customs officer's coming alongside. Hey there, over the companionway. Well, Monsieur Morel? Yes, Monsieur Danglars? Edmund Dottis gave you satisfactory reasons for his landing at Elba? Oh, yes, quite satisfactory. <laughs> so much the better. Yes, it was Captain Leclerc who gave orders for this delay. Talking of Captain Leclerc... Has Dantes given you a letter from him? To me? No, was there one? I believe that besides the packet, Captain Leclerc had confided a letter to his care. Of what packet are you speaking, Danglars? Of that which Dantes left at the Isle of Elba. How do you know he had a packet to leave at the Isle of Elba? I was passing close to the door of the captain's cabin, which was partly open. I saw him give the letter and the packet to Dantes. He didn't speak to me of it, but if there was any letter, he'll give it to me. Danglars. You'll report to the office this afternoon with the bills of lading and the storage plans. Good day. Good day, Monsieur Morel. It's a wonderful thing to be home again after three months at sea. 
To see the places you've grown up in as a boy and the streets full of people. I found my father in the little dark room where he lived on the fourth floor of a house in the Rue du Noir. Father. Oh, Edmund. Father. What is it? Are you ill? Father, what's wrong with you? No, no, my boy, my son, no, but I... I didn't expect you in the joy and surprise of seeing you so suddenly. Father, listen to me. I'm to be captain at 20, a captain with 3,000 francs pay and a share in the profits. Isn't that more than I could have hoped for? Yes, yes, dear boy. Much more than we could have expected. (laughs) Snark, young dog, your son, eh, Dantes? In the doorway stood our neighbor, the tailor, Caderousse. Captain, eh? I know someone below the church of San Michel who won't be sorry to hear about this. Eh, Dantes? Mercedes? That's who he means, Father. And now that I know your will, your consent, I'll go to her. Oh, go, dear boy, and heaven bless you in a wife, as it blessed me. In a wife? How fast you go, Father Dante's. She isn't his wife yet, as far as I know. She soon will be. Yes, yes, but you were wise to return when you did, my boy. Well, Caterus, what do you mean by that? Oh, I don't mean anything in particular. Mercedes is a very fine girl, and fine girls never lack suitors. There's one in particular, a cousin of hers, I think he is. Fena Mondego. I've even heard it What's said... that? Oh, don't worry, my boy. Now that you're captain, who could refuse Did you? Did you just say that if I were not a captain... I didn't say that, my boy. I oh. didn't say that. No offense, man. My boy, no offense. I went into the street, down past the church of San Michel, into the fisherman's quarter. Mercedes! Mercedes! Edmund, you're back. We were in each other's arms. The burning sun of Marseille covered us with a flood of light. At first I saw nothing but her face raised to mine. The shining eyes. The eager lips. Then suddenly in the room behind us I saw the face of a young man. Pale and threatening. And I saw that he had his hand on a knife at his belt. Mercedes, who is this man? Mercedes, I did not expect to meet an enemy here in your house. There is no enemy. This is my cousin. We've been friends since childhood. Fernandez, the man whom after you, Edmond, I love best in the world. Well? Give me your hand, Fernand. Is your name Edmond Dantes? Fernand Mondego came forward. For an instant I saw a look of deadly hatred in his eyes. Then quickly, without giving me his hand, he went past us and out into the street. Betrothal feast is a gay affair in the South. Monsieur Morel removed every difficulty. The papers were soon drawn up. The arrangements were simple. Mercedes had no fortune. I had none to settle on her, and the wedding was set for two. All our friends were there, and the crew of the Pharaoh and Mercedes people from among the fishermen. What's he saying? The law. 
persons here assemble answers to the name of Edmund Dantes. I'm Edmund Dantes. What do you want of me? Edmund Dantes, in the name of the law, I arrest you. Arrest me? We duly acquainted the reason for your arrest at your first examination. Officer, officer, he is done nothing wrong. He's a good boy. Edmund, possible in which case have a reparation will be made. Edmund, meantime, Edmund Dantes, you're under arrest. Follow me. All, Edmund, Edmund, Edmund. In. Monsieur de Vifort, here is the prisoner. Bring him in. Wait outside. Yes, sir. What is your name? Are you the king's prosecutor, sir? Yes. Your name? My name is Edmond Dantes. Give all the information in your power. Have you served under the usurper, Napoleon? No, sir. It is reported that your political opinions are extreme. My political opinions? Alas, I never had any opinions. I'm hardly 19, sir. What do you make of this, then? It is a letter, Monsieur Dantes. Well, read it. Monsieur, the king's prosecutor is hereby informed by a friend of the throne and religion that one Edmond Dantes, mate of the ship Pharaoh, arrived this morning from Smyrna after having touched at Naples... In the island of Elba, he's been entrusted by the usurper with a letter for the Bonapartist committee in Paris. Proof of this crime will be found on arresting him, for the letter will be found on his person or at his father's or in his cabin on board the Pharaoh. I'm sorry, sir, I don't understand it. Do you know the writing? No, sir. Whoever did it writes well. Now, have you any enemies? Not that I know of, sir. Now answer me frankly. Not as a prisoner to a judge, but as one man to another. Is there any truth in this accusation? Not at all, sir. I swear by my honor as a sailor. Then I told him my story. I told him how Captain Leclerc on his deathbed had entrusted a packet to me and told me with his dying breath to deliver it to the island of Elba. What did you do then? What should I have done, monsieur? What every man would have done in my place. I sailed for the island of Elba. I delivered the packet and was given in return a letter to be delivered to a man here in Marseille. I did it because it was what my captain had told me to do. I landed here yesterday. That is all, sir. I see. That sounds like the truth. Now, give up this letter you have brought from Elba. Give us your word that you will appear if you're called and go back to your friends. I'm free then, sir? Yes. But first, give me this letter. Here you are, sir. Very well. By the way, to whom were you to deliver this letter? To Francois Noirtier of this city. Francois Noirtier? Yes, sir. Why, do you know this man? Faithful servant of the king does not know conspirators. Have you shown this letter to anyone? To no one, sir, on my honor. Nobody knows that you are the bearer of a letter from the Isle of Elba addressed to Francois Noirtier? Nobody, sir, except the person who gave it to me. Why, sir? What's the matter? What's the matter, sir? You give me your word of honor that you are ignorant of the contents of this letter. My word of honor, sir, but what's the matter? You're ill, sir. Shall I call for help? No, stay where you are. It is for me to give orders here, not you. I am sorry. I am no longer able, as I had hoped, to restore you to liberty. Before doing so, there are formalities to be gone through. I'll try to make them as short as possible. 
The principal charge against you, as you know, is this letter. And you see what I do with it. You see? I destroy it. Oh, Monsieur de Villefort. Your goodness itself. Now then. Do you trust me? Order me, sir. I'll obey. Listen, this is not an order, but advice that I give you. Yes, monsieur. I shall keep you until this evening here in the Palais de Justice. Yes, sir. Should anyone else question you, don't breathe a word of this letter. I promise. You see, the letter is destroyed. You and I alone know of its existence. So if they question you about it, deny all knowledge of it. I will, sir. It was the only letter you had. It was. Swear it. I swear. Did you ring, monsieur? A guard entered. Villefort whispered something in his ear to which he replied by a motion of his head. Follow this man, Monsieur Dantes. He has his orders. I was taken to a cell. Presently it grew dark. Hours later, I heard steps coming along the corridor. By the torches they carried, I saw the glittering sabers and carbines of four gendarmes. Edmund Dantes. Have you come to fetch me? Yes. By the orders of the king's prosecutor? I believe so. Come with us. Is this carriage for me? It is for you. Get in. Get on board. in the stern sheets with a guard on each side of me in the little boat. There, there. King's business. Lower the chain. The chain that closes the mouth of the port at night is lowered. Soon we were outside the harbor. My first feeling was one of joy at breathing the fine sea air again. Then of sadness as I saw the lights of La Reserve away to the left of me and heard the sound of voices and music coming through the open windows. Now we had passed the Tete de Moor. We were in front of the lighthouse. We were about to double the battery. Where are you taking me? You'll soon know. But I want to know... We are forbidden to give you any information. Now we had left the Iron Rotonneau where the lighthouses stood and we were going past the fishermen's quarter. A few lights were visible from the water. If I cried out, perhaps Mercedes might hear me. I remained silent, my eyes fixed on the lights. 
The boat went on, and presently a rising ground hid the lights. Then I saw that we were out to sea. Comrades! For the love of God, tell me where we're going. You're a native of Marseille and a sailor, and yet you don't know where you're going. I have no idea. Well, unless you're blind or have never been outside the harbor, you must know. No! Look around you. Then suddenly, within a hundred yards of me in the night, I saw a dark, frowning rock with a tower on it, like a great black scaffold. The Chateau d'If. Quite right, my friend. The Chateau d'If. Help! Help! Let me go! Help! 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 I'm innocent! I'm innocent! I'm innocent! I'm Dantes, haven't you slept? I don't know. Are you hungry? I don't know. Do you want anything? I want to see the governor. The governor. I want to see the I'm innocent. I'm innocent. I'm innocent! Another day. Another eternity. I threw out my food under the floor. I walked round and round the narrow cell like a wild beast in its cage. I tore up the straw of my mattress. Dantes! Well, are you reasonable today? I want to see the governor. I've told you that's impossible. Why is it impossible? It's not allowed. I want to see the governor. Take my advice, my friend. Don't brood over what's impossible. You'll go out of your head. You think so? We had an instance of it here in this cell. The priest who was here before you... He kept offering the governor a million francs for his freedom. In the end, he went out of his head. When was he in this cell? Two years ago. Was he set free? No. He was put in a dungeon. Listen to me. I want to see the governor. If you don't let me see the governor someday, I'll hide behind the door. And when you come in, I'll dash your brains out with a stool. That's eh? Hey. Put that stool down. Are you going to let me see the governor? Put it down. Put that stool down. Put it down. Well, do I see the governor? Yes, yes, yes. You shall see the governor at once. That's better. It's better. Hurry. Hurry. Presently, the jailer returned with four soldiers. By the governor's orders, take the prisoner to the floor below. The dungeon, man? That's right. We put madmen... With madness. You don't understand it. I tell you, I'm innocent. I'm innocent. I'm innocent. Months went by underground, foul, humid, and dark. Every day... Twice a day, morning and evening, the jailer came to my cell and put down the vile food and went away without speaking to me. My hair and nails had grown long, and my skin was white as a leper's. I'd been proud the first months. Now I began to beg. I begged to be moved from this dungeon to another. I begged to be allowed to walk about. I begged for books. Nothing was granted. I spoke to the jailer when he brought me my food. He rarely answered me. 
but to speak to a man, even though mute, was something. I tried to speak when alone, but the sound of my own voice terrified me. After what must have been three or four years, the governor of the Chateau d'If was transferred. The new man never troubled to learn my name. I was no longer Edmond Dantes. It's number 34. I took to praying, but not as men pray in prosperity. In my prayers, I laid out every action of my life before the Almighty. Still, I remained a prisoner. Then a deep gloom took possession of me, and then furious rage and savage thoughts of revenge, and wildly I dashed myself against the walls of my prison. I tore at my own flesh with my nails, and then in the end... In the end, I began to think of dying. I swore that I would starve myself to death, so every morning and every evening I threw out through the small grated window all the food the jailer brought me, every bit of it, at first gaily and then thoughtfully, and then with regret. I held the plate in my hand for an hour at a time, gazing at the morsel of bad meat, of tainted fish, of black and moldy bread. Then I remembered my oath and threw the dish away. One day, I found I had not sufficient force to throw my supper out of the window. The next morning, I could hardly see or hear. I knew I was dying. The day went by. I felt a sort of stupor creeping over me. The gnawing pain at my stomach had ceased. My thirst had abated. When I closed my eyes, I saw myriads of lights dancing before them. I was on the edge of that mysterious country called death. Suddenly, a little after dark, I heard a hollow sound in the wall against which I was lying. I sat up and listened. It was... A continual scratching, as if made by a huge claw, some iron instrument scraping against the stones. Then all was silent. Soon afterwards it began again. Nearer. And more distinct. Perhaps it was only a workman repairing a neighboring dungeon. I would soon find out. Continued. With my earthenware jug, I knocked against the wall with a sound game. on the fourth evening. Whoever it was was quite close to me now. I wanted desperately to help him. But I had nothing, no knife or sharp instrument. I smashed my earthenware jug. 
That night, I moved my bed out from the wall and started to scrape the plaster with a piece from my broken jug. Soon, the fragments of plaster began to fall away. In three days, I uncovered a large stone. The next day, about noon, the stone began to move. Oh, my God, my God, don't fail me now. Oh, my God. Talks of God in this place. Speak again. In the name of heaven. Speak. Who are you? A prisoner. Of what country? A Frenchman. Your name? Edmond Dantes. How long have you been here? Since the 28th day of February. 1815. Your crime? I'm innocent. And you? Who are you? I am number 27. How long have you been here? Since 1804. 20 years. All that night we worked. Then, just before dawn, a portion of the floor in my cell gave away. And from the bottom of this passage, the depth of which it was impossible to measure, appeared the head, then the shoulders, and lastly the body of a man. To this man, I owe all that I possess. All that I know, all that I have become. In the prison, he was known as the Mad Priest. I never learned his name. For eight years, we saw each other every day, using the tunnel he had dug through the solid rock, concealing the mouth of the passage with stones carefully fitted in place. By the sundial he had traced on the wall of his cell, we knew the hours of the guard's visit. The rest of the day, we were together. He had been a great scholar in his day. And all that he knew, he taught me with infinite loving patience. Day after day, year after year. Then, one morning when I went down, I found him standing in the middle of his cell. Pale as death. Quick, Dante's quick. Listen to what I have to say. What is it, Father? Tell me. I beseech you. What's the matter? I am dying. Help me to my bed. See? Half my body is paralyzed already. Here, Father. Uh, thank you, my son. Now listen to me. All is over with me. This night or tomorrow, I shall be dead. But, Father... I know the illness. There is no hope. And I shall never leave this place now. Before I die, there's something I want to give you. In his hand, he held a morsel of paper tightly rolled together. A half-burned paper on which were some lines of gothic character traced with a peculiar kind of ink. This paper, my child, is my treasure. From this day forth, it belongs to you. Your, your treasure? Oh, yes. I know what's passing through your mind at this moment. 
Even now, you, like all the others. But be assured, my child, I am not mad. This treasure exists. Read what it says. This treasure which may amount to the club April 14th. You see? I see nothing but broken lines and unconnected words. Yes. To you who read them for the first time. But to me, who have grown pale over them by many nights study, who have reconstructed every phrase, completed every thought. Have you ever heard of the great Spada treasure? I've heard sailors talk of it, yes. For years, I worked for the house of Spada. That paper you have as is what is left of the will of Cardinal Spada, murdered by Roderick Barger. Now, take this and put the two pieces together and read. The 25th day of April, 1498, being invited to dine by His Holiness Alexander VI, and fearing for my life, I declare to my nephew Guido Spada, my sole heir, that I have buried in a place he knows... In the caves of the island of Monte Cristo, all I possessed of ingots, gold, money, jewels, and diamonds, which treasure may amount to nearly two million of Roman crowns, which you will find in the farthest angle of the island cave, and this treasure I bequeath and leave entire to him as my sole heir, Rodrigo Spada. Ten million crowns? Yes, a hundred million francs of our money. Think of the good a man could do in the world with a hundred million francs. Yes. And now I am dying. With my dying breath, I leave this treasure to you. Pray God you'd be more fortunate than I. But I have no right to it, sir. You are my son, Dantes. You are the child that God sent to console me in my captivity. Two days later, in fearful agony, he died. I closed his eyes and laid him out to rest as well as I could. That night, the governor of the prison came down to look at the body. Well, the madman's gone to look after his treasure. With all his millions, he hasn't enough to pay for a shroud, eh? Is the iron heated? Yes, sir. Apply it to the soles of his feet. From where I stood in the secret passage, I could smell the sickening odor of burnt flesh. He's dead, all right. Poor devil. He was a priest. Get him the newest sack you can... What time shall we bury him, sir? The usual. When the cell was empty again, I went in. On the bed at full length. And faintly lighted by the light of a single candle was visible a sack of coarse cloth. In it was stretched a long and stiffened form. I unlaced the sack, drew the corpse out and carried it through the tunnel to my cell... I laid it on my bed, turned the head to the wall, and covered it with a sheet. For the last time, I kissed the ice-cold brow. 
Then I went back to the dead man's cell. There's a job I can do without. Right, you are. Hold it, the devil up there on that clear. I could hear steps in the passage as the guards came down with a stretcher. Quickly, I laced up the sack around my body. I lay stiff, hoping they would not hear the beating of my heart. Here we go. You take the head. I'll take the feet. Uh, he's heavy enough for an old man. They say every year adds half a pound to the bones. Uh, forward, March. Careful, man. Steady. While I open this door. Lord, it's cold up here. Yeah, pleasant morning for a dip in the ocean. A bit chilly, I'd say. Have you got the weight? Here it is. Tie it on, round his feet. That's right. Tight. See if you can do it any tighter. Yeah, that's all right. That'll sink him. All right, now. Are you ready? One. Wait a minute. Get near to the edge. The last one was mashed on a rock. We got the blame for it. All right, then. Come on, nice breathing Ready? Let's go. One. Two. Three. listening to the CBS presentation of Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air in Alexander Dumas' Count of Monte Cristo. The performance will continue in just a moment. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. We continue now with the Count of Monte Cristo, starring Orson Welles with the Mercury Theater on the Air. In September 1834, there arrived in Marseille a man of about 38 or 40, of a pallor that was almost livid. He gave the impression of a man who had been enclosed for a long time in a tomb. Soon after landing, he inquired for a man by the name of Dantes. And hearing that he'd been dead for the past 14 years, he asked for a tailor called Caderousse. Are you Gaspard Caderousse? I am. Let's go inside, my friend. I have to talk to you. Well, what is it? Monsieur Caderousse, in the year 1814 or 15, did you know a young sailor by the name of Dantes? Dantes? Yes. Why do you ask? Is he alive? No, he died in prison. Died, eh? What did he die of? What do young, strong men usually die of in prison? He died of sorrow and a broken heart. And before he died, he begged me to clear his name. He gave me the names of the people here in Marseille who had been his friends. There are three, he said, besides my father and the girl I was betrothed to. One of them is Caderousse. He said that? The second is Dangla. Dangla. The third is Fernand Mondego. Mondego. You know these men? Know them? <laughs> Where in heaven's name have you been, my friend? There isn't a man in France who doesn't know them. Dangla is a millionaire. Has a banking house of his own. Baron Dangar, he calls himself now. 
Mondego's a count and a cabinet minister and an officer of the Legion of Honor, with a house in Paris a block wide. <laughs> I could tell you something about these two. Not that it'll do much good now that he's dead. Who? Oh. That young fellow you were talking about, Dante's. I have a good mind to tell you anyway. Do you know who sent Edmund Dante's to prison? Well, I do. It was two men who were jealous of him. One for love and one for ambition. And do you know who they were? I'll tell you. Montego and Danglas. I thought they were his friends. That's what he thought. What did they do? They denounced him to the police as a traitor. And was he a traitor? No more than you or I. Which of the two denounced him? Both, monsieur. Hmm. It was Danglars who wrote the letter, and Mondego who put it in the post. When was this letter written? The Carvizer, the night before the wedding. How do you know? Were you there? I was at the next table. They thought I was too drunk to hear. I see. How about this girl Dantes was betrothed to? Mercedes? Yes. Yes, that's her name. What happened to her? Well, sir, that's a sad story. When Dante's was arrested, she was nearly mad with grief. Pitiful it was. Six months went by and there was no news of him. And every day there was her mother telling her he was dead and telling her to marry Mondego. She came to see old Dante's. Edmund is dead, he said to her. If he weren't, he would have returned to us. Then the old man died, and that left her quite alone. Still she waited, and still no word from him. Then in the end, after a year, she married Mondego. And now she's one of the greatest ladies in Paris. A year. She waited a year. What did you say? Nothing. Nothing. You say Edmund Dante's father died? Yes. Soon after his son disappeared. What did he die of? If you ask me, he died of starvation. Starvation? The doctor had another name for it. But I know better. He locked himself up in his room and died of starvation. <laughs> day the stranger appeared at the Palais de Justice and asked to see the prison records for the year 1815. He obtained permission to go through the case of a certain Edmund Dantes, imprisoned that year and subsequently reported as dead. He found everything arranged in due order, the denunciation, examination and the magistrate's marginal notes. He read the examination and noted with surprise that the name of Francois Noitier, to whom the fatal letter had been addressed, never once appeared in it. There was a notation in the margin which read as follows. Edmond Dantes, an inveterate criminal to be kept in complete solitary confinement 
and to be strictly watched and guarded. It was signed de Villefort. Below, in another hand, was written, Prisoner killed while attempting to escape. That night, the stranger left Marseille, going north. Mondego. Dangla. Villefort, Mondego, Dangla. Find out everything there is to know about them. Every move they've made. Every word they've said. Every line they've written. Yes, sir. Find out about their homes. Their wives. Their children. Their friends. Yes, sir. Find out where they got their power. How they made their money, whom they robbed, whom they cheated, whom they murdered. One day in November, Baron Dongler, head of the banking house of that name, received a visit from a new client. Monsieur le Baron Dongler. I have the honor of addressing the Count of Monte Cristo. You have, sir. Have you been in Paris long, sir? Since this morning. I have a letter here, sir, from the firm of Thompson and French in Rome. A letter of credit in your name. Good. And I take it that beginning today, my checks will be duly honored by your house. In this letter, sir, there is one thing not quite clear. Indeed. According to this letter, the Count of Monte Cristo is to have unlimited credit on our house. And what is there in that simple fact that requires explanation? Merely the term unlimited. Are you suggesting that Thompson and French are not looked upon as solvent bankers? Oh, no, no. It was not their solvency that I spoke of. I see. But the word unlimited in financial affairs is so extremely vague a term. To me, Baron, the word means exactly what it says. It means without limitation. I assure you, sir, that up to the amount of a million... I beg your pardon. I said that should you be hard-pressed, were you even to require a million... A million? My dear sir, for a trifle like that, I assure you, I should never have trouble to open an account... One million francs. Excuse my smiling when you speak of a sum that I am in the habit of carrying in my pocketbook. I admit I am hardly... If you would prefer not to handle this account, Baron Dongler, I have letters similar to yours addressed to Baron of London and Rothschild of the city. You'd have no scruples in declining. I assure you I never... No, no, no. No, you merely wish to be convinced that your stockholders ran no risk, nothing more. Very sound, Baron Dongler. I understand they include some of the greatest names in France. Am I right? The Duke de Mondego? The Baron de Villefort? It is not generally known that these gentlemen... Of course, of course. Now we understand.
understand one another, I should like to draw tomorrow the sum of, shall we say, six million francs, half gold, half notes. Six million francs? Uh, as you say, sir. If I should require more, I shall let you know. Oh, by the way, Baron Dongler, buy for me tomorrow 10,000 shares of Austrian Commonwealth. You have some information, sir, about this stuff? You will find, sir, that I never gamble, except in certainties. Rarely has Paris been more intrigued than it was that winter by the mysterious Count de Monte Cristo. Of his title, nothing was known save that he derived it from a small, uninhabited island off the coast of Corsica. The source of his fortune was equally obscure. Yet his wealth seemed inexhaustible. The paintings in his house in the Champs-Élysées were valued at three million francs, and it was known that for his carriage wheels alone he had paid one million francs, yet far from diminishing. By the middle of December, successful speculation had increased his deposit at Dongler's bank from four to nearly six million francs. The end of December... A ball was given by the Count and Countess de Mondego. Monsieur Madame de Noville, Monsieur le Baron de Villefort, Monsieur Madame de Meller, Monsieur le Comte de Monte May I present the most talked of man in Paris, the Count of Monte Cristo, Countess de Montego. I am deeply honored. What is it, Mercedes? What is it? Are you ill? It's nothing, Fernand. Perhaps the heat of his room. It was kind of you to come, sir. Will you give me your arm, Count de Monte Cristo? I am honored, madame. Is it true, Count? But everyone is saying about you in Paris that you've seen so much, traveled so far, and suffered so deeply. I have suffered deeply, madame. But now you are happy? No doubt, since no one hears me complain. And your present happiness, has it softened your heart? My present happiness does not equal my past misery. Are you not married? I married. <laughs> no, madame. You are alone, then. I am alone. You have no sister, no father. I have none. How can you exist thus without anyone to hold you to life? Madame, long ago, I loved a girl. I was on the point of marrying her, madame, when we were separated. I thought she loved me well enough to wait for me, and even to remain faithful to my grave. When I returned, she was married. Perhaps my heart was weaker than that of most, and I suffered more than they would have in my place. It's all, madame. And you are still, you still preserve this love in your heart. It is true, one can love only once. Did you ever see her again? Never. And you have forgiven her for all she has made you suffer? Yes, I have forgiven her. But only her. Do you still hate those who separated you? Do you still want to punish them? 
They will be punished, madame. But it is not I who will punish them. It is their own past. Tangla, Vilfor, Mondego. What have you found out about these men? Dangla. Dangla, native of Marseille. Banker, three times bankrupt. Convicted of using charity funds. Yes. Recently suspected of plunging heavily with borrowed funds. Villefort. Villefort, native of Marseille. Formerly King's agent in that city, where he acted as Bonaparte's spy under the name of Francois Noitier. Noitier. Known to accept bribes. At present, prosecutor general at King's Court. Said to speculate heavily with Dangla's bank. Mondego. Mondego, native of Marseille. Dismissed from naval service for theft. Tried for murder, 1816. Deserted French army, 1824. 1828, betrayed Ali Pasha to Turks for two million piastres. Believed involved heavy losses, Danglas Bank. Monsieur Danglas. He's in the private office, Baron de Villefort. Morning, Villefort. Hello, Montego. You're late, Villefort. What is it, Danglars? You sent for me in court. I hope it's something good this time. We need it. Just arrived. A private message to the Count of Monte Cristo from Thompson and French, Rome. They've never been wrong yet. Does he know you intercept his messages, Danglars? Who cares? What does it say? Read it. Secret treaty signed tonight. Anglo-Italian due sharp rise. Buy all available shares, Thompson and French. Well, we are going to buy. Danglars, I'm worried. Everything you've touched has gone wrong lately. Those Belgian bonds, we lost half a million on them. Whose fault was that? On whose information? Can I have a dangler if the government changes its mind? Gentlemen, gentlemen, gentlemen. Our situation is desperate. We've got to plunge. Things have been going badly lately. We have no choice. If it weren't for Monte Cristo's deposits, we'd been bankrupt three weeks ago. If that money should be called today or tomorrow or the next day, this bank is ruined. Dangla, I don't see what that has to do with us. Oh, you don't, don't you? If I go, you go. Make no mistake about that. Gentlemen. What do you propose to do about it, Dangla? It's our only chance to get out. I propose to buy every share of Anglo-Italian that comes into this market. With what? You forget, gentlemen. The Count of Monte Cristo has six million francs deposited in this bank. And what about this message? Does Monte Cristo get to see it? This message, gentlemen, was lost in transmission. Three hundred shares of Anglo Italian. One hundred and two. Two hundred Anglo Italian. One hundred and five. One hundred and ten. Five hundred Anglo Italian. One hundred and ten. One hundred and Three hundred shares of Italian. One hundred and thirty. Three hundred shares at one hundred and fifty. One hundred shares of Italian. One hundred and sixty. One hundred and seventy-five. Well, sixty-two thousand shares. How much profit does that show? So far, three quarters of a million, and it's only a beginning. Who was selling? I don't know. I couldn't find out. Come in. Well, well, what is it? The Count of Monte Cristo to see you, sir. Tell him I'm not. Good afternoon, gentlemen. I hope I don't intrude. 
Danglars. De Villefort. Mondego. How fortunate. Gentlemen, I'm here to say goodbye. Goodbye? I have decided to leave Paris for a while. Perhaps forever. Before I go, there are certain things I have left to do. Monsieur Danglars. I am in need of money for my journey. My credit on your books as of tonight is six million francs. Less about a million to cover certain stocks I sold short today. Here is a check for five million francs made out to cash. My carriage is outside. I will take half in notes. Half in gold. But surely... I beg your pardon. Surely, sir, such a very large sum... If you could conveniently wait for this money for 24 or for the most... I told you. Baron Dangler, I'm leaving Paris tonight. Oh, by the way, Baron, you may be interested to learn. Less than an hour ago, Anglo-Italian went into liquidation. At this moment, that stock is worth less than the paper on which it's printed. But the message from Thompson and French... That message was sent on my instructions three days ago. You see, gentlemen, I own Thompson and French. But it's not true that the treaty... As far as I know, Mondego, there never was any question of a treaty. But it means... It means that you three gentlemen are ruined. It means that you, Danglar, have robbed the poor and the helpless for the last time. Well, I'll prosecute you for this. I'll issue a warrant for your arrest. I don't think you will, Baron de Villefort. In the first place, that message was addressed to me. In the second place, since noon today, there has been in the hands of the Minister of Justice a complete record of the career of Francois Noirtier, Baron de Villefort, spy, thief, forger, huh? informer, what are you? perjurer. Who am I? Still, you do not know? I know you very well, Fernand Mondego. And tomorrow all Paris will know you for what you are. Deserter. Traitor. Murderer. Who are you? What have we done to you? You condemned me to a slow, horrible death. You killed my father. You deprived me of love, of freedom, of happiness. Stop. In God's name, who are you? I am the specter of a wretch you buried in the dungeons of the Chateau d'If. You guess it now, do you not? Or rather, you remember it. For notwithstanding all my sorrows... And my tortures. I show you now a face which has the happiness of revenge. And which is young again. A face you must often have seen in your dreams. Since your marriage, Mondego. With Mercedes, my betrothed. Yes, Mondego. I am Edmond Dante's. Tonight, the Columbia Broadcasting System, through its affiliated stations Coast to Coast and the network of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, has brought you a performance of Alexander Dumas' great adventure story, The Count of Monte Cristo. 
as dramatized in the first person singular by Orson Welles and played by the Mercury Theater on the air. In the cast this evening, Ray Collins as the Abbey Faria, George Coloris as Monsieur Morel, Edgar Barrier as de Villefort, Eustace Wyatt as Caderousse, Paul Stewart as Old Dantes, Sidney Smith as Fernand Mondego, Richard Wilson as the officer, William Allen as a merchant, Anna Stafford as Mercedes, and Orson Welles as Edmund Dante as the Count of Monte Cristo. The orchestra was directed by Alexander Semler, and Davidson Taylor supervised the production for CBS. Dan Seymour speaking. <laughs> Next week at this same time, another great narrative brought to life by Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air. The Man Who Was Thursday by G.K. Chesterton. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. Family Theater presents Celeste Holm, Dane Clark, and Henry Ho. From Hollywood, the Mutual Network, in cooperation with Family Theater Incorporated, brings you Henry Ho as Captain Ahab and Dane Clark as Emil in Herman Melville's familiar classic, Moby Dick. To introduce the drama, your hostess... Thank you, Jean. When the good ship Highlander weighed anchor in New York for Liverpool in 1837, it was indeed a momentous and fortunate event in the history of American literature. For it was then that a lad of 17 set out upon the eight years of seafaring that were to take him to the faraway reaches of the seven seas. This young man was Herman Melville, who began and ended his 72 years in New York, and with his writing, built a lasting monument to America's literary genius. Of his eight successful works, the seventh, alive with Melville's sense of beauty and of terror, was titled Moby Dick. In recounting the story of Moby Dick, the White Whale, Melville inspires the longing for and respectful awe of the sea in each generation. And now, with sincere pleasure, I invite you to listen to Dane Clark as Ishmael recounting the fanatic and tragic hunt of Henry Hill's Captain Ahab for Moby Dick, the White Whale. It is now weeks since the Nantucket whale ship Pequod turned southward from her Massachusetts anchorage. And aboard her, the ship and crew has settled down to the monumental monotony of a ship's routine. A monotony that wells the crew into one mind, one force to be driven by the words of its captain. A monotony that finds relief in endless speculation about the days to come. And often as the sinking sun changes the deep blue water to evening's gray... Their talk becomes graver, one of whispers among small clusters of men. For to the crew of the Pequod, who have yet to see their captain, even now the ship seems to have set sail upon a journey of darkening destiny. 
Call me Ishmael. For though a seaman has no need for a name in the records of time, I am also the land, and to it I have returned since the fateful days of the old Pequod and her captain and crew. I was of that crew. I, and there were the mate, Starbuck, the dollar Nantucket man, and Stubb, neither a craven or a bold man, with all lazy and easy of smile. There were the harpooners, for the Pequod was a whale ship, and we were whalers all. And then there was Queequeg, the South Sea Islander who brought me to the Pequod. The stories he spun of the mammoth whales in distant waters persuaded me to sign aboard the Pequod with him. And with him I now shared my watches upon the afterdeck, still awaiting my first glimpse of the man who captained the stout whaling ship. It, it, it worries me sore, Queequeg. Here it is a week we've been to sea and nary a sight nor a sound of the captain. Yeah. I, I grunt if you will, for you've no interest to save your harpoons and that monstrous tomahawk pipe at your belt. But I tell you, it's unnatural. That's what it is. Maybe he no like walk deck now. Well, he might find it a bit difficult to get about the deck, what with one leg and all, but, but even then he should have shown himself to the crew. Mm. It's no secret among the crew. He must know that, Queequeg. Still in all, I wonder how a man feels when he's lost a leg to a whale. Him think only about day he catch up with white whale Moby Dick. Me think we no like it on Pequod until he does. Maybe no like it even then. Mm. Now, indeed, I should like to see this man whose thirst for vengeance is so great. Do you, do you suppose that's why we're carrying a secret crew aboard? Oh, I know, I know, and I've seen it. But every night you hear whispers of him in the forecastle. I no see strange men. I no listen, folks. Well, the steward said there were others aboard, but no one's seen them. Now, Queequeg, do you suppose... You... Shh. Did you hear that? Did you hear that, Queequeg? It must be the captain. Him walk like that two, three minutes. You not hear? Oh, I have not your heathen ears, my friend. Oh, faith, it's an eerie sound in the night. Coming towards us. Him stop. Light, pipe. Hey. Hey, my poor pipe. Even you have failed me now. Then you were meant for sereneness. Not to send up your mild white vapors among troubled, torn, gray locks like mine. <laughs> if I could but forget. Forget? I must. Alas, my pipe, there is no longer pleasure in even you. Here, here, go and join the devils of the sea. I and may happen. There'll yet be company for you there, sent from the Pequod with the compliments of her master, Captain Ahab. What's the stir, Mrs. Dove Trouble? It's the Captain, man. Captain Ahab wishes to meet his crew. Here now, men. You think I said old Nick himself were here to greet you? There's no need to be afraid of... Attention!
You see this? It's gold. Whoever of you raises me a white-headed whale with a wrinkled brow and a crooked jaw, a white monster with three holes in his starboard fluke, he shall have this ounce of Spanish gold I've nailed to the mast. <laughs> and I promise that one of you shall win it, for we'll not see port again until I have killed the monster that crippled me. Then did we ship to hunt Moby Dick the white whale? Aye, Starbuck. It was that accursed white whale that dismasted me. And I'll chase him through the southern ice floes. There, I'll give him up. I cannot speak for the crew, Captain Ahab, but I came here to hunt whales, not my commander's venture. And I, mister, came to hunt Moby Dick. And I shall wreak my haze upon him, nor shall any of you stand between me and that goal. That... Mr. Starbuck, I promise you. And so we sailed on. But now we were a cold ship, a ship ridden with hate, prey to the daily increasing uneasiness as more and more one heard talk of a secret crew aboard, yet none saw them. Aye, we were a ridden ship fearfully awaiting the day when the lookout would first cry, Quick, Rick. Those men, there has been a secret crew aboard. Look at that leader, the one with the turban. He's a Manila speed crew hooker. All right, hop to it there. Wait, wait, check your gear. There's oil to be gotten. Mr. Starbuck. Mr. Starbuck, who's the leader there? The Chinese fellow. <laughs> For one thing, he's the best harpooner who ever sailed blue water. For another, he's a quick one with that knife of his. Keep clear of it. Aye, what a big brute. Harpooning is up for children. On the double now, into the whale boat. We've not got all day to watch Captain Ahab see them at work. Up the stroke, man. I will not be getting close enough for Quakeway to use the iron. Sir, sir, he's sounding. Look. Look, look sharp now, man. Watch for the breakwater. Quakeway, does the whale always disappear so suddenly? Oh, Quake. Come up, Quake, too. Smash, boot. All right, you two, stop the chatter. Keep a sharp eye out. If he turns toward us, we'll have little enough time to escape without waiting for you to finish the conversation. Oh, Look out the bow. He's slipping. Out of the cabin. Oh, you devils. Pull the door in this Davy Jones this day. Now, go. There's no use there. He's turning towards us. He'll run us down. cold night we lay there in the water, drifting we knew not where. But by midday next, the Pequod sighted us, and in the afternoon threw a line down to us where we lay barely afloat. In the days that followed, I was to learn that lost boats are a common occurrence on a whaler. Soon immersed in the daily shipboard routine, had all but forgotten the ordeal. Then the day came, the day came of our northward run, and that day also we made our first kill. Now, instead of dried fish and ship's biscuits, we dined in the thick steaks we cut from our kill. Ishmael, secure the harpoons for tomorrow's hunt. Aye, aye, sir. 
Open. The harpoon's ready for number two boat. Come on, step on it, you lazy rat. Oh, oh uh, good evening, Captain. I didn't see you. Hey. Huh? Hey, sir. Look here, here, man. I want a harpoon made one that a thousand Yokopines couldn't tear apart. Something that'll stick to a whale like his own fin bone. And this bag here is the stuff. Here are gathered nail stubs from the steel shoes of racing horses. Horseshoe stubs, sir. Then you have the finest and stubbornest stuff we blacksmiths ever worked. Stubborn. <laughs> It'll melt together as butter and a hot biscuit do. <laughs> I'll blow up the fire for you himself. You two can stay to spell me. Huh? Send your boy for Fedala and the other harpooners. Aye, sir. You heard the captain, lad, on the double now. Now, now, Perth, let us to work. Here, 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 man, they're not yet ready for the water. Vidala, tell this shaft where he may find our Moby Dick. Boy, Allah, sure I see. And now, and now, Perth, the water. Well done, blacksmith, well done. And now for the barbs. You must make them yourself here. Here are my razors. They are of the best steel. But your razors, sir, they are so fine. Take them, I say. For now I neither shave, sup, nor breathe until... Here, to work. To work. <laughs> Moby Dick shall indeed meet his end at my hands. And now, nightly, Captain Ahab sat in his cabin. The harpoon he had fashioned held across his lap, and the light of madness in his eyes. I heard him talk to Fidella, his faithful person. Fidella... I, I dreamed it again, do you hear, Fidella? I, I saw them again. Didst dream again of the hearses, Captain? Have I not said, old man, again and again, that neither hearse nor coffin shall be thine? Aye, but, but who, who are you, the hearse or coffin that die upon the sea, Fidella? But I also said, old man, that ere thou couldst die upon this voyage, two hearses must truly be seen by thee upon the water. Ah, come, 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 Fidella. You, you speak foolishly. How can one come on a hearse upon the water? Who can say, old man? Yet one that you see must not be made by mortal hand, and the visible wood of the other must be grown in American forests. Aye, and a strange, unlikely sight that would be. Such a sight we would not believe. Believe it or not, old man, such a sight must be seen by you ere you die. And as for me, though we two be the last on earth, I shall still go before you as your pilot. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> what nonsense. When you are gone, then must you return again to appear before me to guide me to my end? <laughs> Then, then I now have two pledges that I shall yet slay Moby Dick and survive. Then take yet another pledge, old man. Hemp alone can kill him. <laughs> the, the gallows, you mean, eh? <laughs> then indeed am I immortal on land and on sea. I am immortal on the sea. <laughs> Thank you.
days that followed, we saw no whales, but soon we did meet the Nantucket ship Rachel. And from her skipper learned that the white whale had but the day before towed off one of her boats and its crew. And in that direction we sat sail, leaving the Rachel to continue the search for her orphans of the sea. Oh, look out! Keep a sharp eye now! The white devil should soon be seen! I just fate that I should win my own gold coin, for it is my fate to kill the white monster. Steersman, port the helm. Come about now. Look out! What course does he set? Bearing steady, sir. One point of the starboard bow. Ah, I see, I see. There goes. And again, he's, he's sounding. Down to the gallows. Soon the boats were strung out from the ship's side, and suddenly we, watching from the Pequod, could see the boats put about, frantically rowing for their very lives. For out of the sea came Moby Dick, and dead ahead lay the boat of Captain Ahab. Look, Mrs. Talbot, he's got the boat. Moby Dick's got the boat. How he shakes it. Lucky will be the man who survived it. Forward, the crew has disappeared, only for down the captain remain. Look, look, his jaws crushed the boat. There's been such a helm from Moby Dick. We must drag him off and save what we can. Sure, the captain's escaped. You see? You see how he swims in the water? The whale has thrown him clear. I think we have enough speed, Israel. See? Even now the whale turns upon Captain Ahab. Every eye aboard Pequot is watching Moby Dick crash about mad circles. Crazily trying to shake off the tiny human form that gripped its tail through with the determination of the drowning. Then he gave a great shake of his tail and tossed the captain like a guard off to the sea. The great white monster leisurely turned tail upon us and swung majestic to lure. Five oarsmen of Captain Ahab's boat were missing. Saved only the captain and Fidella, still grimly holding Captain Ahab's harpoon. The next morning found them once again setting out in the small boats with Captain Ahab sitting tensely in the spare boat hurriedly rigged out the evening before. Oh, oh, as never before, men. Oh, today Moby Dick's hour and harpoon are near at hand. Pull closer. Any closer, old man, and his breathing will fan our cheeks. Look, even now he gathers to rush us. So much the better. Soon he'll be so close he can't see us before him. Then the harpoon will find his mark quickly. Old man, he's going to turn. You will have us all in the water again. Here, 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 change places with me, Fenella. I'll get him with an iron. There. Ah! A true hit. Put about. You are the boat that will close to us. He's got us all. A hit. A hit. At last, I have you! Captain Ahab's iron went true, as did those from the other boats. And then Moby Dick went amok. 
as a crazed monster turned in the sea, fouled up the lines about him. He caught both Stubbs' boat and the other and crashed them into the sea where they became but steel chips. As for Captain Ahab's boat, Moby Dick saved it until the last. And then a headlong charge made it also but a mass of splinters. We found Captain Ahab grimly clinging to the wreckage of his own boat, as had Fidala the day before. Here, sir. Lean on me. Hey, this, this whale bone is a poor excuse for a leg. <laughs> which way, which way did that white demon go? As before, sir, to Lewis. Then why waste the time here? Her ship, we must chase him. I, and I want a boat crew for Fidella and myself. Who'll stand up for it? Sir, I think I should tell you that Fidella did not return. Did not find him among the wreckage. Oh, no, no, no. That, that, that cannot be. No, no, send, send another boat for him. Search the ship. He, he must have swum back to it. He is not gone, I tell you. He is not gone. Sir, we saw him go among the tangle of the lines on Dick. The white whale pulled him down with him. Then by the solemn heavens above, I promise you that we'll girdle the earth twelve times over high. I'll dive right through it if need be, but I'll slay me yet. Get me a harpoon. Do you hear? I'll slay him yet. And thus we track the white whale through the night. But there were none who slept aboard the ship. And as the sun began a new day, we put out again from the Pequod for the third time. And this time I was among the crew. You see, you see, Stark, now for the third time my soul starts its journey of vengeance. Aye, sir. You must have it so. Some ships sail from their ports and ever afterwards are missing. Saddest truth, sir. Some men die at high tide. Some at ebb. As for me, <laughs> ah, you men, put your backs into it. By my faith, I don't like the looks of the sharks about his crew, Kid. They have a look of waiting. They wait for Moby Dick, not this. Still, I shall be glad to be aboard the Pequot again. See there. See there, the lookout gave the signal. Pull harder, men. The wheel's ahead. Drive, men. Drive harder. <laughs> you need have no fear. No coffin and no hearse can be mine. Nor can I die but my hemp. I'll see you through. Pull, men. Pull. Sir, 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 this harpoon must go home to his heart. He's going to broadside us, sir. He's cutting into us. Aye, I cannot die but by him. Why then should I fear death from a whale? Sir, look! Look! Entangled among the lines on Moby Dick's side. Fidella. Fidella, my faith. Ah, see, Fidella. Aye. Aye, and dragged to his grave by the white whale. The prophecy. Parsi, I Parsi, I see you again, and thou goest before me as you prophesied. And this, then, this white monster is the hearse you promised me. But I'll still hold you to the last letter of your word. Where then is the second hearse? <laughs> 
Sir, the other boats are leaking badly. They request permission to return to the Pequot for repairs. Where's Moby Dick? He's astern of us, sir. Look, he's making for the Pequot. He's going to ram her. No, no, he's turned back. He's turned towards us. Look alive now, men. We're near to him at last. Soon now, Moby Dick, my devil, and I'll have you. Ah, now. Right through. Oh, fair hit, sir. You've got the beast. The devil, he's... Sir, he's making for the Pequot. He's mad with pain. Look how he rushes headlong towards her. Pequot, yes. sir. It is no more. The whale has smashed it. It's sunk. And our shipmates with her all sunk. Uh, the ship. That was the second verse. Its wood could only be American. Sir, the whale sounded again. He's not to be. Look, Chapman! He rises before us. And I, robbed of ship and friends, I shall still have my victory. Quick, quick, place the harpoon in him. He no kill, where? He bad to kill. What, 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 what's this? Would you meet me against your captain? Well, never mind, I'll settle with you later. Perhaps it is fitting that I should throw the steel. Then shall we all go to our doom towed by the white whale. Now then, thus, I give up the spear! Captain, the line's fouled about your leg. Captain, the line. Aye. Tis as Fidella has said. Only the hemp of a harpoon line could kill our Captain Ahab. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee, as it says in the book of Job. For during the night the small boat swamped, and buoyed by its fragments, I alone floated through the sea of sharks to live to testify to Captain Ahab's madness. But for what purpose I have not yet learned. Perhaps... Perhaps it is that I shall bear witness against the follies of man's search for his vengeance. Or perhaps it is that man's task here is for nobler purposes than the slaughter of those who would merely defend the life they have been given. No, no, I, I do not yet know the purpose, nor did I on that second day, when a sail drew nearer and nearer and picked me up at last. It was the devious cruising Rachel that in her retracing search after her missing children, found only in the sea, another offer. performances in Moby Dick. I think all of us find it fascinating to peer into the mind of a man like Captain Ahab. 
A man obsessed with a single idea. A man unbalanced by his morbid, unreasonable desire for revenge, which ruined his every chance for happiness. Lack of balance does that to a man, yes. And it'll do it to a family, too. We can become obsessed with the idea that some one thing spells the difference between happiness and unhappiness in our home. Money, for instance, or social standing, or the education we're able to give our children. Well, there's something else that's more important. It's the love and loyalty and faith in God that exist in a truly happy home. Men and women who are really balanced and truly reasonable understand this. They understand that prayer, daily family prayer, is a necessity in every home. We of Family Theater invite you to discover for yourselves that praying together as a family is a way of ensuring your family happiness. For the family that prays together stays together. More things are wrought by prayer than this world dreams of. Family Theater has brought you Dane Clark and Henry Hull and Herman Melville's Moby Dick with Celeste Holm as your hostess. The story was adapted for radio by Arthur Sawyer, with music composed and conducted by Harry Zimmerman, and was directed for Family Theater by Jaime Del Valle. Others in our cast were Nestor Piva, Kim Nusser, William Conrad, Joseph Kearns, and Tudor Owen. The series of Family Theater broadcasts is made possible by the thousands of you who felt the need for this type of program, and by the mutual network which has responded to this need. This is Gene Baker inviting you to be with us next week at this time when your family theater will bring you Alan Young and Patricia Neal in my terminal moraine. Join us, won't you? This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. Presents Hollywood. The Lux Radio Theater brings you Ronald Coleman and Edna Best in A Tale of Two Cities. Ladies and gentlemen, your producer, Mr. Cecil B. DeMille. Greetings from Hollywood, ladies and gentlemen. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. So Charles Dickens described the world as it was in the time of his story, A Tale of Two Cities. But for the Lux Radio Theater, it certainly is the best of times when we can bring you this thrilling drama with a star like Ronald Coleman and with Edna Best as his leading lady. While Dickens was writing A Tale of Two Cities, he tells us he had a great desire to play the leading part himself. But if he could have known how Ronald Coleman would play it, I'm sure he'd gladly have given up his own ambition. You'll hear Ronnie tonight as Sidney Carton with Edna Best as Lucy Manette in this roaring drama of adventure in the days of the French Revolution. 
A story of love and sacrifice, marching to the rhythm of the reign of terror. A Tale of Two Cities is one of those rare stories that achieve immediate success and yet hold their popularity over the years. That's the true test of real value. And there's a very close parallel in a story not of two cities, but of six continents, the story of Lux Toilet Soap. You know, a famous critic once wrote of Dickens that he had risen like a rocket and would come down like a stick. And the next time the two met, Dickens said, I will watch for that stick, sir, and when it comes down, I will break it across your back. But he never carried out his threat because the stick never came down. The rocket is still going up. And so is the popularity curve of Lux Toilet Soap. It's been my experience that the public never lets real value down, whether that value is literary or Lux. Now we turn back the clock 150 years to A Tale of Two Cities, as the curtain goes up on the first act, starring Ronald Coleman as Sidney Carton and Edna Best as Lucy Manette, with Hallowell Hobbs as Mr. Lowry and Dennis Green as Donnie. Paris, 1793. The French Revolution is over. The cause is won. But the bloodshed has only started. The reign of terror sweeps through the land in all its fury. And each day, Madame la Guillotine is fed her share of human life. The dripping blade rises and falls. And the crowd counts in monotonous rhythm as each noble head rolls to the ground. The knife rises again and sweeps downward. Twenty-two! Twenty-two lives in a single day, and more to come, and more, and more, until nightfall draws a curtain on the scene. Behind the bleak walls of La Force Prison, the doomed of the following day await their fate. In a bare dungeon cell, a single lantern throws a ghostly glow on their faces. With a rattle of chains, the great iron door is thrown open. Everyone rise. Rise, aristocrats. In the name of the people of France, it is hereby declared by order of the tribunal that the 52 prisoners now interned in our boss prison shall be put to death by the guillotine on the morning of February 2nd, 1793. Oh, no. Citizen jailer, which one of these is Charles Evremont? Evremont, step forward. Evremont! Charles Evremont, call Charles Dornay. Which one of you is he? I am Evremont. Step forward. Charles Evremont, known as Charles Dornay. The tribunal has a special treat in store for you. In view of the excitement occasioned by your trial, it was felt that some small favor would be in order. We have decided, therefore, that you shall live long enough to witness the execution of your friends. Fifty-one heads will fall tomorrow. Yours will be the fifty-second. Citizen Evermont. Yes? I didn't know you were here with us. It's so dark. I know. What is it you want, please? Oh, don't you know me? I'm Lisette, the seamstress. We were brought to La Force together. Oh, yes, of course. I... I forget for the moment of what you were accused. They accused me of plotting, but I'm innocent, I swear. 
How could I plot against the Republic? I'm nothing. I'm no one. Don't cry, child. It's too late for tears. I try to be brave, but soon the morning will come. It's growing light even now. You have an hour yet, perhaps more. Ask God for courage. Look, the sun is rising. I'm afraid, and yet I'm glad. At least we can see again. We can... What is it? You. You're not Evermond. You're not Charles Evermond. You... Quiet. I knew Charles Evermond. His eyes were blue. Yours are brown. His hair was light, and yours... Who are you? Like you, I am nobody. But you are going to die for him. Why, monsieur? I could never make you understand. But I could set you free. One word from me and... You can't do that. You must please. Tell me about yourself. Oh, how can I? It would help so if you'd talk to me. Perhaps it would help you too, monsieur. There's so much to tell. It all began long ago. When? Twenty-five years ago. 1768. Have you ever been in England? No. Never. There's a long hill on the Dover Road that sweeps down to the sea. It's a pleasant road on a summer day with the sun shining. But the devil's own highway at night in the winter rain. On just that sort of night, in 1768, a coach topped the rise of the hill. The mail bound east for Dover. Get up, get up, get up, get up! Top of the hill, Tom. Better rest for a moment. Oh, oh! We'll be lucky if we make the boat for Calais this night. Listen, hear that? What do you say? I say a horse at the canter coming up the hill after. I say a horse at a gallop. Oh, there! Stand or I'll fire! Who are you? What do you want? Is that the Dover Mail? I want a passenger if it is. What passenger? Mr. Jarvis Lorry. Keep where you are. Is there a gentleman named Jarvis Lorry in the coach? I'm Lorry. Who wants me? It's me, Mr. Lorry, Jerry. Oh, I know this messenger, guard. There's nothing wrong. I hope there ain't. Hello, you. Come on at a foot pace. Well, Jerry, what is it? A dispatch, sir, sent after you from London. Be quick about reading it, sir. I don't like this. Oh, it's not very long, you see. Wait at Dover for Mademoiselle. Oh, very good, very good. Uh, Jerry. Yes, Mr. Lorry. Write back to London as fast as you can. Tell them my answer was, recall to life. Recall to life. That was Mr. Lorry's business that night. To recall to life a man who had been buried alive for 18 years. A prisoner of the French nobility. But the man had escaped and was now hidden by friends in the village of Saint-Antoine. To that village went Mr. Lorry, to the wine shop of a certain Madame Defarge. You are Madame Defarge? I am. You wish some wine, monsieur? Uh, my name is Jarvis Lorry. I've just arrived from London. This young lady with me is Miss Lucy Manette. Good morning, mademoiselle. Please tell us, is my father here? Is he safe? Your father... There is no one here, mademoiselle. But Mr. Lorry was told... Uh, one moment, my child. Madame Defarge, perhaps I should have presented my credentials sooner. Recalled to life. There is a man here. A man old beyond his years. A mender of shoes. 
Will you come this way? My husband and I have kept him locked in a room upstairs. Did you say locked? Yes. Of his own desire? Of his own necessity. He has lived too long alone. He would be afraid if his door was left unlatched. Oh, Mr. Lorry, I'm frightened. Hush, my dear. Father. Good day, Dr. Minette. You are hard at work, I see. Yes, I'm working. You have a visitor, Dr. Minette. Show him the shoe you're working at. Now, tell him, monsieur, the maker's name. Do you ask me for my name? Yes. 105 North Tower. That is all? 105 North Tower. You see, monsieur, he remembers nothing. Dr. Manette, do you remember nothing of me? Look at me. Is there no old banker, no old business rising in your mind? Think of England. A man who was your friend. Jarvis Laurie. It's no use. This is what they have done to him. Lucy, come here, my child. Now speak, call him. Speak to him as you did long ago. Father. Father. Who is this? Oh, Father. Do you remember Dr. Manette? I remember a little girl. Long, golden hair. Ages. Ages ago. What was her name? Her name? She laid her head upon my shoulder. When they came for me that night. Don't let them take you, Father. Hush, my child. My baby. My... Lucy. Lucy? Oh... They crossed the channel that night to a safe refuge in England. There for five years the good doctor rested until at last his memory returned and he was well again. But now in the English courts a trial was in progress. The trial of a certain Charles Darnay accused of plotting treason against His Majesty's government. Dr. Manette, called as a witness, sat with his daughter near the judge's bench. The court was hot, humid. Only one man seemed quite at ease. The assistant counsel for the prisoner. His court wig dipped in a slovenly fashion over one eye. His court gown was stained with wine. His name, if anyone was interested, was Sidney Carton. Carton, we must act quickly. With the evidence they have presented, Donnie will hang by morning. Carton, do you hear me? I hear you, Mr. Stryver. Well, what shall I do? <laughs> if I were you, I'd sit down. Donnie is my client. I'm trying to protect him. I pay you well for your assistance, and I expect to have it. You'll have it, Stryver, when the time comes. Oh, I see you've already had your bottle today. <laughs> Two, I believe. You're drunk. <laughs> You're always drunk. Cotton, listen to me. At uh, the present time, I'm more interested in Dr. Manette. Dr. Manette, to the stairs. You are Dr. Manette? I am. Dr. Manette, the prisoner Charles Darnay has been accused of carrying secret messages from Louis of France to spies here in England. Look upon the prisoner, Dr. Manette. Have you ever seen him before? 
I... I don't know. Really? Is it not true, Dr. Manette, that the prisoner was a fellow passenger with you five years ago on a boat from Calais to Dover? I cannot say. When I came from France that night, I had been newly released from a long imprisonment. I have little remembrance of the occasion. My, my, my mind was a blank for some time. I see. Your daughter made the trip with you, did she not? Yes. That'll be all. Are there any questions from the defense? Any questions, Cotton? No questions. No questions, Your Worship. Miss Lucy Minette to the stand. Now, Miss Minette, look upon the prisoner, please. Have you ever seen him before? Yes. Where? On board the packet boat you mentioned. You spoke to him? You were friendly with him? Yes. Good. Now, tell me, did he come aboard alone? No. When the gentleman came on board, he... Do you mean the prisoner? Yes. Then say the prisoner. When the prisoner came on board, there were two gentlemen with him. But these two did not make the crossing? No. Now, tell me. Did you see them give certain papers to the prisoner that night? No. You're sure of that? Well, I... I don't know. It, 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 it was dark. Then they might have given him certain papers. Is that right? Yes, but... That'll be all, Miss Bennett. Oh, Manette. but please, I know he isn't guilty. I... That'll be all, please. Are there any questions from the defense? Well, Cotton? No. Cotton, you're mad. No questions. No questions, Your Worship. Your Worship, the prosecution would like to recall its chief witness. The prisoner's accuser, Mr. John Barson. <laughs> now, Stryver, we might have some questions. Mr. John Barson? Right here, sir. Mr. Barson, look upon the prisoner. Do you recognize him, Mr. Barson? I do, sir. He's a spy against His Majesty's government. That's what he is. Repeat your reason for that statement. I will. I was on the mail packet that night myself. I saw the kind of papers that passed into his hands. They were lists of our troops. Thank you, Mr. Barson. No more questions. The counsel for defense? Well, Cotton? Asking these questions I've written down. Uh, <clears throat> Mr. Barson. How do you know the papers you saw were lists of British soldiers? I saw them. Oh, you saw them. Then you took them out of the pockets of the prisoner, Charles Darnay? Yes, sir. I know, sir. They fell out, they did. Oh, then you didn't take them. You're not a spy yourself. A man who makes his living by uh, making accusations? That's a lie. A downright insinuating lie. Uh, well, <clears throat> uh, one moment. Well, Cotton? Ah, Striver, you've no imagination. Uh, Mr. Barthead... Where do you get money to live on? My property. Oh, your property. Where is it? I, I don't exactly remember. <laughs> then perhaps you remember how you got that property. I inherited it. From whom? From relatives. Distant relatives. Oh. How many times have you been in prison, Mr. Barthad? Six times, isn't it? What's that got to do with it? You ever been kicked for cheating a dice? Uh, well, now I Mr. was... Mr. Barthad. You are positive it was the prisoner you saw that night with those lists? I am. It could not possibly have been someone else. No, it couldn't. Uh, Mr. Darnay, you will please face this witness. Now, Mr. Barsad, uh, look at Mr. Darnay. Look at him carefully. Well. And now, Mr. Barsad, look at me. Now, at me, the assistant counsel for the defense. Do you notice a resemblance between us? Ah. Very much alike, aren't we? Uh, well, now that you mention it, you are. As a matter of fact, it could have been me you saw with those supposed lists that night, couldn't it, Mr. Barsad? Uh, well, now I... Couldn't it, Mr. Barsad? 
All right. Yes. That's all. Thank you. Order, order. Are there any more questions? Jury will retire to consider its verdict. We have, Your Worship. And how do you find the prisoner, Charles Darnay? We find the prisoner not guilty. Mr. Darnay, may we congratulate you, sir? Thank you, Doctor. I'm happy our testimony did you no harm. Oh, thank you, Miss Lucy. I'm sure it did nothing but good. It was Mr. Carton who really won your case. Mr. Carton? Mr. Carton, sir? Did someone call me? May I thank you, sir, for saving my life? Oh, it's only a part of my business. Uh, Mr. Carton, this is Dr. Manette and Miss Lucy Manette. Mr. Carton? We thought you were splendid, Mr. Carton. Ah, it's nothing. It's just mere professional claptrap. May I ask, sir, how did you happen to notice the resemblance between you and me? Very simple. I, I looked at you and, and admired your bearing and your character, and you see, I have nothing but admiration for myself. <laughs> uh, uh, Lucy, uh, uh, my dear, we must go. Goodbye, Mr. Darney. Will you call at our house soon? Thank you, Miss Lucy. Uh, and Mr. Carton. Aye. Oh, thank you. Uh, good day, then. Good day, gentlemen. Good day, Doctor. Mr. Carton, would you care to dine with me? You feel you must repay me? Oh, I, I could never repay you for my life, sir. Oh, don't be too sudden. A bottle of wine or two, perhaps. My fees are very low. Another glass, Mr. Darnay. Thank you. I've had enough. Enough wine? <laughs> Interesting condition. Well, Mr. Darnay, how does it feel to be alive again? Instead of hanging by your neck? Well, uh, I'm a little confused regarding time and place. But it's good to feel at home in the world again. It must be an immense satisfaction. For me, the world has nothing to offer except wine like this. So you and I aren't much alike in that particular, are we? Hmm? Hmm. You speak very faintly, Mr. Zarney. I didn't speak at all, sir. Come, Mr. Zarney. Why don't you call a health? Give us a toast. What toast, sir? Why, it's on the tip of your tongue, man. I swear it, sir. It's been there all the evening. Out with it. Very well, then. To Miss Lucy Manette. To Miss Manette, then. <laughs> There's a fair young lady to hand into a coach in the dark, eh, Mr. Donnie? There's a fair young lady to be pitied by and wept for by. How does it feel, Mr. Donnie, hmm? Is it worth being tried for one's life to be the object of such sympathy and compassion? I don't take your meaning, sir. Ah, <laughs> Mr. Darnay, let me ask you a question. Do you think I particularly like you? Well, you've acted as if you do, but I don't think you do. I don't think I do either. Nevertheless, I, I hope there's nothing in that dislike to prevent my calling for the reckoning and parting without ill blood. Oh, no, no. Nothing at all, no. You, do you call the whole reckoning? If I may, sir. In that case, innkeeper, more wine. Yes, sir. Good night, Mr. Carton. Uh, one last word, Mr. Darnay. You think I'm drunk, 
I think you've been drinking, Mr. Carton. You know I've been drinking. Well, since I must say so, I know it. Ah, you shall likewise know why. I care for no man on earth, and no man cares for me. Much to be regretted. You might have used your talents better. Maybe so, Mr. Zani, maybe not. Good night, sir. Good night. And don't let your sober face elate you. For you never know what it may come to. Innkeeper, wine. Coming, sir. Well, Cotton, has Mr. Zane shown you what you've fallen away from? What you might have been? <laughs> Change places with him. And would you have been looked at by those blue eyes as he was? Ah. Come on, have it out in plain words. You hate the fellow. Sidney Carton knew it was too late to change his way of life, but he took to brushing his coat and combing his hair. And there were times even when he remembered that a gentleman does not drink himself nightly into a stupor. On Sunday afternoons, he would appear in Miss Manette's garden, sitting quietly, speaking but seldom. Sir Charles Darnay was there too. One evening, just at dusk, an approaching storm sent them indoors. Coming soon, Mr. Darnay. It comes slowly, but surely. Isn't it impressive? Sometimes when I've sat here of an evening like this, listening to the thunder in the distance, I've had such a strange fancy. I've imagined that the thunderclaps were echoes. The echoes of footsteps that will one day enter our lives. If that is so, there's a great crowd coming into our lives. I take them into mine. Gladly. It was my foolish fancy, Mr. Carson. There's a great crowd bearing down upon us now. Thousands upon thousands. Here they come. Fast, fierce, and furious. Oh! Oh, you you make my fancy seem too real, Mr. Carson. There was a great crowd coming into their lives. A numberless, overpowering crowd which one day would decide the fate of these three. At first it was but a whisper in the city of Paris. A whisper that was to grow with the years into a crashing roar of hatred. Slowly but surely, as the storm came, the crowd was coming too. Up from the cellars of Paris, up from the bare fields of the starving peasantry, the crowd was coming, chanting its hate, screaming for blood. The people of France and all their might rising in revolution. In just a moment, Mr. DeMille and our stars Ronald Coleman and Edna Best will return in Act Two of A Tale of Two Cities. And now, while we're waiting... Oh, Mr. Ruick, may I tell you about... About uh, what, Sally? Not what, but who. Whom, Sally? Whom? Oh, oh, yes. Oh, but anyway, I want to tell you about Marlena Dietrich. You mean you saw her at Cyril's the other night? Oh, were you there, too? I'd never seen her in person before. Isn't she simply beautiful, Mr. Ruick? And that gorgeous evening gown she was wearing. Trust you to notice that. Well, naturally. And her complexion, Mr. Ruick. No one could help noticing that. It's lovely. You're right, Charlie. It's a lovely Lux complexion. Oh, so you know that, too. Well, 
Oh, but did you know that Marlena Dietrich says she always takes an active lather facial every night? <laughs> yes, Sally, I do know that. But here's a chance for you. Maybe all the ladies in our audience don't know just how Marlena Dietrich and other famous Hollywood stars take their daily active lather facials. Well, I was coming to that, Mr. Ruick. These active lather facials that Hollywood stars use are so easy and so quick. You just pat Lux Soap's creamy lather lightly into your skin. Rinse with warm water and then with cool. With a towel, you pat your face gently to dry. Then just touch your skin. See if you don't agree with Marlena Dietrich. Here's what she says. Skin feels smoother after an active lather facial with Lux Soap and softer. Thank you, Sally. Now, all you ladies listening in, you who want the charm of a lovely complexion, won't you take a tip from Hollywood's famous stars? Just try active lather facials regularly for 30 days. Get three cakes of Lux toilet soap tomorrow and begin giving your own priceless complexion this care that screen stars depend on. You, too, will find these beauty facials with gentle Lux toilet soap a wonderful aid in keeping skin exquisitely smooth and soft, appealing. We pause now for station identification. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. A Tale of Two Cities, starring Ronald Coleman as Sidney Carton and Edna Best as Lucy Manette. In La Force Prison, awaiting death by the guillotine, the man called Donnie continues his story. The little seamstress, condemned to die with him within the hour, listens quietly. Her eyes fixed on his face. As time went on, Sidney Carton appeared less and less frequently in the Manette home, for he knew that Lucy loved Charles Darnay. It was in an evening in April, almost ten years ago, that Charles Darnay spoke to Lucy's father. I've only hinted at marriage to Lucy, sir. I, I didn't want to speak until... Well, there are certain things about myself that I feel that you have a right to know. Yes. Dr. Manette, my name is not Darnay. I chose that name when I first left France and my heritage. Heritage? I'm of noble birth, sir, but I don't boast of it. Through generations, my family gained its wealth and its glory at the expense of the poor. When my uncle died, I was the sole remaining heir. I returned to France to sign away my title to the estate. Why do you tell me this? Because, sir, I know what you have suffered at the hands of the French aristocracy. Your uncle's name and yours, what what was it? Saint-Evrimond, the Marquis Saint-Evrimond. He was... Doctor, you're ill, sir. No. That is all you have to say? That is all, sir. And Charles, Lucy is not to know what you have just told me. Not now, do you mean? Not now or ever. She is not to know... Your word. Very well, Doctor. You you have my word. Now go, please. Go. Send every mound. <laughs> Send every mound. <laughs> Dr. Manette. 
Father, let me in. Father, it's Lucy. Let me in. Oh, please. Lucy, what is it? What's the trouble? Oh, Sydney. I got your message. Is there anything wrong? It's Father. He's been locked in his room all day. Oh, I'm so afraid. Dr. Manette, open the door, Dr. Manette. Miss Lucy, I found the key in the storeroom. Oh, give it to me, will you? And take Miss Lucy downstairs. Yes, sir. Come, my dear, come. Dr. Manette. Dr. Manette, what are you doing? Do you hear me, doctor? What work is this you're doing? A lady's shoe. A young lady's walking shoe. It should be finished. Let me be. Is he all right? Yes, he's all right. Dr. Jemison is with him. Oh, you've been very kind to stay so long. I tried to reach Charles, but he wasn't at home. I was so worried. Oh, there's nothing to worry about now. He needs rest. A few days, and he'll be well again. What could have caused it? After all these years, to, to go back to that. What happened to him? How can we know? A shock, perhaps. Some sudden jolt of memory. A man's mind can play queer tricks. Miss Lucy, I brought you a cup of chocolate. Thank you, Miss Pross. And the doctor says everything will be all right. You're not to worry. Oh, thank you. Well... Oh, Sydney, you're not leaving. It's growing late. Not for me, of course, but... Well, I doubt if you see the dawn very often. I don't. But I can welcome it today. A few hours ago, everything was so black and fearsome, and now all my troubles are past. All my hopes reborn. It's always that way, isn't it? There are some hopes a man may have, which remain in the shadows forever. Do... Do you have such hopes, Sidney? Oh, no, I am like one who... Who died young. Sidney, you've come often to the house in the past few months, and yet we know very little about you, except that you are our friend. Is there nothing that I can do to help, Sidney? Oh, I could never hope to repay what you've already done. May I... May I tell you something? Will you hear me without shrinking from me? What is it? You have been the last dream of my soul. Seeing you here in your home has stirred old shadows that I thought had died out of me. I've heard whispers from old voices impelling me upward that I thought were silent forever. I've had unformed ideas of striving afresh, fighting out the abandoned fight. The dream. All a dream. But I wish you to know that you inspired it. Oh, Sidney. Will nothing of it remain? Oh, perhaps as a dream might linger on after the dreamer awakes. But try to hold me in your mind as sincere in this one thing. I would embrace any sacrifice for you or for those dear to you. Think now and then that there is a man who would give his life to keep a life you love beside you. self-pity. From that day on, he was seen rarely in the Manette home. He was there when Lucy and Danny were married, and again some years later when their child was born, a girl. But his visits were short, and he would slip away at the first opportunity. In France, during these years, 
The echoing footsteps of the crowd had been growing louder. Grim patriots who were to bathe the soil of France in the blood of the hated nobility. And then the storm broke in all its fury. In July 1789, they swarmed from the rat holes of Paris to cover the country with a blanket of red. An army of vengeance bent upon destruction and death. Victory will come when every noble head is rolled from every noble shoulder. And in this knitting, I have inscribed their names. The names of those who have starved us, beaten us, killed us. And for every stitch, another head shall roll. For every stitch, we shall be avenged. I'm looking for Mr. Sidney Carton. The inn is not open. There's no inn in London open at this time of night. I want to see Mr. Sidney Carton. Let me in. Now, where is he? He's in there. Carton. Huh? Carton, wake uh, up. What? Uh, wake up. Who is it? Darnay. Oh, Mr. Darnay. Welcome, Mr. Darnay. You... You'll have some wine? I've no time for that. Listen to me. I'm leaving for Paris within the hour. Paris? Yes. There's some business there that I must attend to at once. Paris? It's very warm this time of the year. If I were your lawyer, I should advise against the journey. How much do you know of me? This is excellent wine, Mr. Darnay. French wine. From the cellars of the aristocrats who fled the country. There will be fewer of these bottles left now is being poured into the streets of Paris, along with the blood of the nobles who once drank it. Must you go to Paris, Mr. Darnay? I see there's little I have to explain to you. But I received a letter this morning from a man who was once my servant. They have threatened to send him to the guillotine unless he can explain why he's in possession of certain property. That's why I must go, to save his life. And what of your own life? Oh, I'll be in, in no danger. I, I pronounce my inheritance. It's easily proved. Hmm. Well, why do you come to me? There's no one else I can turn to. I don't know how long I shall be gone, how long my my family shall be alone. In my absence, I should like to feel that there's someone here in London who's watching over them. I, you would trust me to watch over your child, your wife? Yes. I know that you love her. When did you say you must leave? Tonight, now. Have no fear about your family. They will be safe. Thank you, Carton. Good night. Good night. Godspeed. Mr. Carton, more wine, sir? No, take it away. Halt! You there on the coach. Where are you going, citizen? I'm going to Paris. Let me see your papers. Well, if you'll hurry, please, citizen. I must be in Paris within the hour. What is your name, citizen? Charles Darnay. Darnay? 
Also known as Evremond. Why, yes, but I... I... You are consigned, Evremond, to the prison of La Force. After a brief intermission, Mr. DeMille and our stars Ronald Coleman and Edna Best will return for Act Three of A Tale of Two Cities. And now, here's a pretty young lady in a most unusual state of mind. Phew, what a day. Am I tired. Lucky I haven't got a date tonight. I'm simply not going to stir out of this door tonight for anyone. Hello? Yes? Why, Dick, it's you. You're on leave? Dancing? I'd love to. Half an hour. Of course I'll be ready. Oh, my. Dick home from camp. I've just got to look my best. Let's see. Get out my new shoes. Blue dress. Little hat with veil. Now, quick like a flash, fill up the tub. Unwrap a cake of Lux soap. Thank goodness for my beauty bath. I'll feel like new in ten minutes. Now, there's a clever girl. Jean depends on her Lux soap bath for a real beauty pickup. She'll relax a few minutes in the warm water. And she'll smooth on the rich Lux soap lather. Lather so creamy and caressing that it seems to soothe away the day's tiredness. When she steps out of her Luxoap bath, she'll be refreshed. And most important of all, she'll be sure of daintiness, too. You see, Luxoap has active lather that carries away perspiration and every trace of dust and dirt. It leaves skin sweet, exquisitely fresh. Did you know that famous screen stars use this fine complexion soap as their daily bath soap, too? Yes, lovely ladies everywhere protect daintiness the easy Lux soap way. You will enjoy the luxury of this beauty bath. You'll be delighted, too, with the delicate flower-like fragrance that Lux leaves on your skin. Buy this fragrant white soap, the economical three cakes at a time way. Get some Lux toilet soap tomorrow. Now, our producer, Mr. DeMille. It's curtain time for the third act of A Tale of Two Cities. The sun rises slowly over the roofs of Paris, and the long shadow of the guillotine falls against the walls of La Force prison. In the cell of the condemned, the man speaks in a hushed voice, his story meant only for the ears of the little seamstress. They brought Charles Darnay here to La Force Prison to be held in secret. In secret? But somehow the news filtered back to England, and soon his wife and child were in Paris with Dr. Manette and Mr. Lorry. Mr. Lorry? Their old friend. For months they waited for some word from Darnay in his cell, but no word came. And every day through the street, the tumbrils passed, filled with condemned, on their last journey to the guillotine. Father, did you see him? Did you see Charles? No. They would not take me to his cell. But I have news. Yes? Charles is summoned tomorrow for trial. Tomorrow? Oh, Father. I think it will go well, my child. They are going to allow me to testify for you. You? But they'll brand you a traitor. They'll kill you, Father. No, my child. I bear a charmed life in this city. I have been a prisoner in the Bastille. 
Dr. Manley, is this tribunal to understand that you endorse the accused, the prisoner, Charles Evremont? That is so. But he's of noble blood. He's a traitor. He is no traitor. I will swear to it. Dr. Manley, we know your life, the cause you fought for. You are one of us. Yes, and as one of you I speak. The accused, Charles Evremond, was my first friend when I was released from the Bastille. The accused, Charles Evremond, was my daughter's husband. In all these years, he has had no part in the tyranny against which we fought. He has renounced his share of the estate and returned it to the people. Charles Evremond is no enemy of the revolution. I give you my word, he is innocent. Free the prisoner! Dr. Beauvais said he is innocent! Is the jury ready to declare itself? We are. How say you then? Let the prisoner be freed! Citizen Estefage, what does this mean? I say the prisoner cannot be freed. He still stands accused. By whom, Citizen By three voices. By my husband, Ernest Etard. By myself. And the third? By the doctor of Beauvais, Dr. Alexander Minette. I protest. I protest. Continue, Citizen Hear me, all of you. Dr. Minette, you have said Charles Ebramon was your first friend. I was your first friend. It was to my wine shop you were brought where you made shoes under my care. You knew yourself then only as a number. One hundred and five North Tower. The cell in which we have been confined. Is that not true? If you say it is, I must believe it. I can't remember. But I remembered. And I resolved one day to examine that cell. And on the day the Bastille fell, I went to 105 North Tower. Hear me, citizens! In that cell, hidden of the stonework of the wall, I found a paper. A paper written by Dr. Alexander Manette in the year 1767, before the dark and loneliness drove him mad. It is that paper I hold in my hand now. Shall I tell you what it says? It describes... In the doctor's words, how he was called one night to attend a peasant family. A girl lay dying in a miserable bed of rags. A girl and her unborn child. In the stable, her brother, with a sword wound in his chest, was to breathe his last before the morning. And why? Because these two unfortunate creatures had protested against the noble family who held them in bondage. Had protested against the murder of the girl's father and her husband. Killed by these same noble hands. The <laughs> good doctor buried the girl and her brother the following day, but he had seen too much, had heard too much from the lips of that dying girl. That night the doctor was taken to the Bastille without a trial and without a word in defense. The noble family had silenced him forever. And the name of that family, the name of those murderers, Tom Nevermond! Yes! You heard the name! Havramon! And now hear this! Listen to the words of Dr. Alexander Minette himself! The words he wrote! I, Alexander Minette, prisoner of the Bastille, having thus set forth the causes of my imprisonment, 
Do you know the marquee son of Armand and his descendants against the time when these crimes will be answered for? I denounce them to heaven and earth. No. Oh, no. Me stop. Listen to me. I have long had the crimes of the Evermont family knitted in my register. Ah, my husband is that soul. It is so. On the great day when the bus heel fell, I brought this paper home and we read it together, my husband and I. Ask him, is that so? It is so. Then when we had finished, I told him that I had a secret to communicate with him. I told him what it was. I struck this bosom of these two hands as I strike it now, and I said, Lafarge, I was brought up among the fishermen of the seashore. And that peasant family so injured by the Evremonds is my family. That sister of a mortally wounded boy upon the ground was my sister. That husband was my sister's husband. That unborn child was their child. That brother was my brother. Those dead are my dead. And that summons to answer for those things descends to me. Ask him, is that so? No. Then tell wind and fire to stop. But don't tell me. <laughs> what say you now, citizens? Does this everyone go free? Back to the prison of La Force to await death by the guillotine. That was the sentence passed by the tribunal. That same night, a coach left Calais for Paris, carrying but one passenger, slouched low in the seat, his shabby greatcoat pulled high about his neck. Reaching Paris, he haunted the inns and taverns, wandered like a lonely ghost through the city, and at last made his way to the lodging house where Lucy waited news from Laporte. Sidney. Sidney Carton. You must forgive my coming at this hour. I didn't wish to be seen. I knew you'd come. I've been waiting. Sidney, they're going to take Charles. They're going to kill him. How long has he... Until the morning. And they won't let me see him. I can't be near him in these last hours. Ah, Lucy. Remember what you said? Long ago, the dark hours before the dawn. There will be no dawn tomorrow. It will be dark now, always. Lucy, if only there were some way I could comfort you, you must hope. What hope is there? What comfort? My husband is going to die. Lucy. Oh, Sidney, forgive me. You were right. I have no strength to offer you. You came to us tonight. I shall never forget that. I tell you, it is useless to speak to Dr. Manette. He is in no condition to see you now. Mr. Lorry, if you will forgive me. There is nothing you can do here, Mr. Curtin, nothing. Mr. Lorry, you are a man of business, are you not? I am. Well, I am here on business. Oh, really, sir? Oh, I know your opinion of me, Mr. Lorry. But a drinking man may learn things around the town, if he can listen at the same time. I have learned that Dr. Manette is in great danger. He and Lucy must leave Paris tonight. Leave Paris? And they must take the child with them. But, but why? The revenge of Madame Defarge does not stop with Charles. The accusation is against the Marquis Saint-Evremond and all his race. Lucy, her child. Ah. Now, 
May I see Dr. Manette? It would do no good, sir. He's gone back to his work. His work? He wouldn't even know what you were saying, Mr. Curtin. Mr. Lorry, you have a pass that will let you through to Calais? Will it serve for Dr. Manette and Lucy? Yes, for as many as are with me. Then you will use it tonight. You will arrange for a coach to meet you all here at midnight. The coach will take you to the side gate of La Force Prison. Do you understand? The prison. There you will be joined by another person who will make the trip with you to England. Don't stop to ask questions. Proceed at once to the gates of Paris and on to Calais as fast as the coach can take you. But this... this other person, who will it be? Who? Oh, Mr. Sidney Carton. I don't understand. Oh, I may be in poor condition for travel. I usually am at that hour. But as soon as I am in the coach, drive on. But you, at the gate of La Force, will you be within the, pad the prison tonight? Yes. Yes, I'm going to see Charles. A certain Mr. Barsad, English spy, is a turnkey in the prison. He will open the doors for me. I, I don't understand all this. But you give me hope. And you will save them all, Mr. Lorry. Not only I, sir. I shall have a young and ardent man at my side. Yes, with the help of heaven, you shall. Tell me, Mr. Lorry, yours is a long life to look back on. I'm in my 78th year, sir. Ah, you've been useful all your life. Trusted, respected. There are many in this world who would miss you. Oh, a solitary old bachelor. No, there is nobody to weep for me. Wouldn't she weep for you? Oh, Lucy, yes, thank God. I didn't quite mean what I said. It is a thing to thank God for, isn't it? Surely, surely. If you had to say with truth tonight, I have gained the love of no human creature. I have done nothing good or serviceable to be remembered by. Your 78 years would be 78 heavy curses, would they not? I think they would. But you are young, Carton. Yes, I'm not old. But the road I took was never the way to age. Good night, Mr. Lorry. How long before Danny is taken from his cell and put with the others? I can't tell that. Perhaps only an hour now. All right. Leave us alone, Bartlett. But stay within call. You'll keep your promise. I told you that I could get you in and out again. But for you both to try to leave... I but... know, I know. Open the door. Who's there? Have you come for... Carton, you... <laughs> of all the people on earth, I'm the least expected, is that it? Why are you here? I came to see you. Oh, you shouldn't have taken the risk. It can serve no purpose. It can serve one. I bring you a message from Lucy. A message? A request, rather. That you do exactly as I say and ask no questions. Now, take off your coat. Take off my... Yes. Take it off and change it for mine. Quickly. Are you mad? Ah, do as I say. It's her wish. Very well. Now, put on my coat. And your hair, rumple it. So, as mine is... Carton, there's no escaping from this place. You'll only die with me. It's madness. Have I mentioned escape? Oh, do as I say. Now, take my cravat. Here. Give me your carton. I warn you, you no, can't. Be quiet. Look. There are pen and ink on that table. Is your hand steady enough to write? It was when you came in. Well, steady it then. 
and write what I dictate. Quickly. To whom do I address it? Ah, oh, to no one. Right. If you remember the words that passed between us long ago, you will understand when you see this. Have you written that? Well, I, I don't... What... What vapor is that? Vapor? There's a strange odor. Something... Something that crossed me. I'm not conscious of it. Take up the pen and finish. I told you once. There was nothing. I would not do. Nothing? But I... I... I would not... Now, what is it? There is something. That... That odor. You mean this on my handkerchief? Yes, yes. It's so... It's... I breathe deeply. No, breathe. no, no, no. I... Yes. Breathe. But breathe. I... Breathe. I can't. I, I... Oh! You! Down there. Bucket! Are you finished? Are you ready to... What's this? What's the matter with him? There's nothing. He's unconscious. Carry him out to the gate. But you... You changed clothes with him. Listen to me. Sidney Carton fainted from the shock of parting with an old friend. You'll find a coach at the side gate. Put him into it. Tell them to drive as fast as they can to Calais. Now, wait. Wait. I'll finish this note. If you remember the words that passed between us, you will understand I told you once there was nothing I would not do. To keep a life you love beside you. God bless you. Take this note and hurry. For the last tumbrel. Your head shall be the 52nd today. I am ready. Move along there! Move along! Mr. Carton, may I... May I go with you? Keep your eyes on me, child. Mind nothing else. I mind nothing while I hold your hand.
than I have ever done. It's a far, far better rest that I go to than I have ever known. Sidney Carton has found his destiny, and the roar of the crowd fades into the silence of 150 years ago. We saw it all through the magic of some fine acting, and the stars responsible for that return to the stage now, Ronald Coleman and Edna Best. Thank you, CB. And on behalf of Edna and myself, I'd like to thank the other members of the cast tonight for their excellent work. Isn't this one of the largest casts you've ever had, Mr. DeMille? One of the largest and one of the best, Edna. We've been planning this production for several years. It must have been that long ago we first talked about it, wasn't it, Ronnie? I believe it was, C.B. I know I've been looking forward to it for a long time. It's always been my favorite among your pictures, Ronnie. Quote any line from the Dickens novel, Edna, and Ronnie can give you chapter and verse. I should say so, and I hope soon to be on with the quiz, kids. (laughs) (laughs) Well, here's one quiz anyone can pass, Mr. DeMille. At least anyone who knows about Lux Soap. The question of the right complexion care. For me, it's been Lux Soap for years now. And I find it's a grand help in keeping skin soft and smooth. Go to the head of the class, Edna. Lux Soap is always the right answer. Who's going to be here next week, Mr. DeMille? First, let me tell you the play. It's The Devil and Miss Jones. And our stars will be Lana Turner and Lionel Barrymore. The play is adapted from the RKO picture, the story of a rich man who becomes one of his own employees just to find out what they think of him. It's a warm human comedy that may help us all to understand each other better. Until we've gathered the persuasive combination of Lana Turner and Lionel Barrymore for next Monday night. Well, that's an exciting prospect for the audience, C.B. Good night. Good night. Good night. Charles Dickens would be proud of both of you. sponsors, the makers of Lux Toilet Soap, join me in inviting you to be with us again next Monday night when the Lux Radio Theater presents Lana Turner and Lionel Barrymore in The Devil and Miss Jones. This is Cecil B. DeMille saying good night to you from Hollywood. Heard in tonight's play were Werner Felton as Madame Defarge, Griff Barnett as Dr. Manette, and Kathleen Fitz, Alex Harford, Victor Rodman, Edwin Max, Boyd Davis, Jeff Corey, Thomas Mills, Ferdinand Munier, Arthur Q. Bryan, Don Thompson, Jane Morgan, Charles Seal, Eric Snowden, and Tori Carlton. Tune in next Monday night to hear Lionel Barrymore and Lana Turner in The Devil and Miss Jones. Our music was directed by Louis Silvers, and your announcer has been Melville Ruick. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. Playhouse. Orson Welles, producer.
Orson Welles. Tonight we bring you a revival of one of our favorite broadcasts. Charlotte Bronte's unforgettable love story, Jane Eyre. And in the title role, we proudly present a very gifted actress, a frequent and always welcome guest in the Campbell Playhouse, Miss Madeline Carroll. But first, Ernest Chappell has an interesting conversation to report, Mr. Chappell. Thank you, Orson Welles. You know, just this past week, I was talking to a man who, for a large part of his life, has been a globetrotter. In the course of our conversation, he said to me, I heard you on the Campbell Playhouse last Sunday night refer to the universal liking for chicken. Well, he continued, I believe I can vouch for that. I've discovered that chicken, prepared in one way or another, is among the best-liked dishes in every country I've visited. In Hungary, I've enjoyed chicken paprika. In Italy, chicken cacciatore. I've eaten chicken pilaw in Armenia, curried chicken in India, and sat down to chicken tamales south of the border. Now, that comment of his struck me as highly interesting. With people the world around liking chicken so much, it's no wonder that Campbell's chicken soup is so popular. Because in every drop of the glistening golden broth, you taste rich chicken flavor. And steeped in the good flavor of the chicken, too, is the fluffy white rice. And there are pieces of tender chicken meat in every fragrant plateful. If you've already enjoyed this homey, old-fashioned chicken soup as Campbell's make it, won't you remember to have it again soon? And if you haven't yet tried it, won't you do so, say, at dinner tomorrow night? I promise you, just as sure as you like chicken, you like Campbell's chicken soup. And now, our Campbell Playhouse presentation of Jane Eyre, starring Madeline Carroll and Orson Welles. In the last 90 years, Jane Eyre has acquired the full respectability of an English classic and has lost none of its color. It began as one of those books which everybody read and no nice person would ever read. But Jane Eyre, appearing in England as it did early in the reign of Queen Victoria, came as a general shock and was an immediate success. As appalling and popular as a royal scandal and as widely circulated as gossip. Here's a contemporary press notice, quote, Altogether, the autobiography of Jane Eyre is preeminently an anti-Christian composition. There is throughout it a murmuring against the comforts of the rich and against the privations of the poor, which as far as each individual is concerned is a murmuring against God's appointment. There is a proud and perpetual assertion of the rights of man, of which we find no authority either in God's word or in God's providence. We do not hesitate to say that the tone of mind and the thought which has overthrown authority abroad and fostered rebellion at home is the same which is also written Jane Eyre, unquote. The authorship of this scarlet indignity to English letters was variously attributed to almost everyone who could write except a certain Miss Charlotte Bronte of Yorkshire, who did write it in spite of that ten-name Corabelle, attributed with wild generosity to almost everybody in England, including the devil and Thackeray's governess, and even among others, the perpetrator of Wuthering Heights, who was indeed Miss Emily, another Bronte, and Charlotte's sister. The Brontes are a story in themselves, several stories, many of which you know, and most of which I wish we had time to tell. My own personal favorite in that mysterious, lonely, impoverished, and entirely inexplicable family is the head of the household himself, the terrible-tempered Reverend Patrick Bronte, that gloomy man of God who, we are told, cleared the Bronte drawing room of visitors who happened to bore him by firing a revolver at the Bronte ceiling. But there's no end to these Bronte stories, so let's get to the beginning of Miss Charlotte's own.
Jane Eyre. I have no father or mother, brothers or sisters. As a child, I lived with my aunt, Mrs. Reed, at Gateshead Hall. I do not remember that she ever spoke one kind word to me. When I was ten years old, she sent me off to school. Oh, Mrs. Reed, it is the little girl respecting whom you applied to me. Her size is small. Uh, what, what is your name, little girl? Jane Eyre. Oh, say, Jane Eyre, Mr. Brocklehurst, little girl. Jane Eyre, Mr. Brocklehurst. Oh, well, Jane Eyre, are you a good child? No sight so sad as that of a naughty child, especially a naughty little girl. Do you know where the wicked go after death? They go to hell. Oh, well, and what must you do to avoid going to hell? I must keep in good health and not die. Oh, and how can you keep in good health? Children younger than you die daily. Tell me, Jane Eyre, do you read the Bible? Sometimes. Uh, with pleasure? No, sir. No? Oh, how shocking. I have a little boy younger than you who knows six psalms by heart. And when you ask him what he'd rather have, a gingerbread nut to eat or a verse of psalm to learn, he always says, oh, a verse of psalm. Angel sing psalm, says he. I wish to be a little angel here below. He then gets two gingerbread nuts in return for his infant piety. <laughs> psalms are not interesting. That proves you have a wicked heart. And you must pray God to change it. And to give you a new and clean one. And to take away your heart of stone. And give you a heart of flesh. And we'll try our best to help God. Will we not, Mrs. Reed? And make you a useful and humble girl. <laughs> I left Gateshead Hall on a dark, cold morning for Lowood. As the coach started, I put out my head and looked back at the house and up at the window behind which my aunt was still sleeping. I'm glad you sent me away, Mrs. Reed, but I hate to live here with you. I will... oh, and if anyone asks me how I like you and how you treated me, I will always say you treated me with miserable cruelty. And it's the very sight of you makes me sick. <laughs> not so much a school as an institution for the children of the poor supported by charitable bequests. Soon after I was 18, I placed an advertisement in the Yorkshire Herald, applying for the position of governor. The following week, a reply came from a Mrs. Fairfax of Thornfield Hall near Milcote in Yorkshire. It's J.E., who advertised last Thursday, is qualified to teach the usual branches of a good English education together with French, drawing, and music. And if she is in a position to give satisfactory references of character and competency, a situation can be offered her where there is but one pupil, a little girl, nine years of age. Three days later, I left Lowood School. I arose and dressed myself with care. As I looked at myself in the mirror, I regretted that I was not handsome. I felt it a misfortune to be so little, pale, and with features so irregular and so marked. I brushed my hair very smooth, put on my black frock, adjusted my clean white tucker, 
Then I set out for my new situation. On the evening of the next day, I was at Thornfield Hall. I was ushered into a small room. At a table by a cheerful fire sat the neatest imaginable little old lady occupied in knitting. How do you do, my dear? I'm afraid you've had a tedious ride. Are you, Mrs. Fairfax? You are right. Now sit down here before this fire here. You must be tired to death. Oh, no, indeed, ma'am. Shall I have the pleasure of seeing Miss Fairfax tonight? What did you say, my dear? I'm a little deaf. Shall I have the pleasure of seeing Miss Fairfax tonight? Oh, oh, you mean your pupil, I did. Oh, she is not my daughter. Indeed. I have no family. And you have this great house all alone? Oh, bless you, my dear child. This house is not mine. It belongs to Mr. Rochester. And who is he? The owner of Thornfield Hall. Did you not know he was called Rochester? He is our employer. He owns the house and much of the land above. I'm merely the housekeeper. Your pupil is his ward. He wrote to me to find a governess for her. He's not here himself. Almost never. Much of the time he's abroad. It seems strange for a gentleman to own this great house. He'd never stop here and enjoy it. You will find, Miss Eyre, that Mr. Rochester is in many ways. A strange gentleman. I slept smooth and sounded that night in my new home. Once I woke and heard a clock strike. It was bright day and the sun was shining. And then, for many weeks, nothing happened to break the smooth course of our lives at Thornfield Hall. One day in January, a fine, calm day, I put on my coat and went out for a walk. As I started back, the afternoon was already dimming. On the hilltop above me sat the rising moon, pale as a cloud. I walked fast to get home. A sheet of ice covered the bridge where a little brook had overflowed after a rapid fall. Suddenly, in the distance, I heard the sound of hooves. A horseman came over the hill down toward the little bridge. Get in! Are you injured, sir? Get him on sight, further away. Get him! 
Don't fight it. Easy there. If you are hurt and want help, sir, I can fetch a carriage from Thornfield Thank Hall. Thank you, I shall do. I have no broken bones. No his brain. Go along, child. Leave me alone. I wouldn't think of leaving you, sir, at so late an hour. Till I see you are fit to mount your horse again. I should think you ought to be home yourself. You have a home in the neighborhood. Where do you come from? From just below. I'm not at all afraid of being out late when it is moonlight. Well, just below? You mean in the house of the Battlements? Yes, sir. Whose house is it? Mr. Rochester. Well, you know Mr. Rochester? No, I have never seen He's him. He's not resident then? No. Please tell me where he is. I cannot. I am told he's at Cornfield very rarely. Well, you're not a servant of the hall, of course. You're... I am the governor. Governor. Mr. Rochester's wife. Please, I haven't forgotten the governor. I can't send you to fetch help. You may be able to help me yourself. You'd be so kind. Yes, sir. There's not an umbrella that I can use as a stick. No. Excuse me, necessity compels me to make you useful. Here, come close. Let me lay it on your shoulder. Now, hold the bridle. Here we are. You. Uh, hand me my whip. It lies there under the hedge. Yes, sir. Thank you. As I walked back to Thornfield, I kept seeing his tall figure enveloped in a riding cloak, fur collared and steel clasped, remembering his stern face, his angry, thwarted eyes. He came with the master. With whom? With the master, Mr. Rochester. He's just arrived. He's in the dining room, and John has gone for a surgeon. Master's had an accident. His horse fell coming down A Lane. He sent for you, Jane, and was surprised when I told him you were out. Did he say anything about it? He said you were to go to him the minute you came in. You better hurry. I could see no trace of recognition in his eyes. Well, Miss I have questioned your pupil, my little ward. Aren't you taking great pains with her? She's not bright. She has no talent. In a short time, she's made much improvement. Sit down, Miss Eyre. Come to the fire. Adele, go amuse yourself with the dog. Uh, you've been resident in my house three months, Miss Eyre. Yes, sir. Come from... From Lowell School. Charitable concern. How long are you there? Eight years. Eight years. Must be tenacious of life. No wonder you have the look of another world, Miss Eyre. I marvel where you got that sort of a face. I had half a mind just now in Hay Lane to demand whether you'd bewitched my horse. I'm not sure yet. Who are your parents? I have none. Never had, I suppose. Do you remember them? No, Mr. Rochester. Who recommended you to come into Thornfield? I advertised, and Mrs. Fairfax answered my advice. Yes, Mrs. Fairfax speaks quite well of you. Praise will not bias me. You began by throwing down my horse. Oh. I have to thank you for this sprain. Uh, what age were you, Miss Eyre, when you went to Lord? About ten. Stayed there eight years, and on and about eighteen. So it's useful. <laughs> Tell me. Did you learn at Lord? Can you play? A little. Of course. The established answer. Sit down at the piano, Miss Eyre. I mean, if you please. Excuse my tone of command. I cannot alter my customary habits for a new inmate. Sit down at the piano and play a tune. Very well, sir. 
enough, 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 Mr. Ayers. Enough. Let's uh, play a little, I see, like any other English schoolgirl, perhaps better than some, but not well. Are you happy when you play? I'm absorbed, sir. You're so absorbed, Miss Eyre, that you have let Adele sit up past her bedtime. Good night. Good night to all of you now. For several days, I did not see Mr. Rochester. Then one evening, he sent for me to come down. Come in, Miss Eyre. Seat it. Don't draw that chair further off, Miss Eyre. Sit down exactly where I placed it, if you please. Otherwise, I cannot see you without disturbing my position in this comfortable chair, which I have no mind to do. Uh, examine me, Miss Eyre. Do you think me handsome? No, sir. No. On my word, there's something singular about you. Very quaint, quiet, grave, and simple. Sit there with your hands before you and your eyes generally bent on the carpet, except, by the way, when they are directed piercingly to my face, just now. When one asks you a question, you rap out a rejoinder, which is, if not blunt, at least brusque. What do you mean by it? Sir, I speak too plain. I beg your pardon. I, I ought to have replied that uh, the taste differs, ah. that uh, beauty is of little consequence, or something of that sort. You should have replied no such thing, beauty of little consequence. Go on, what fault do you find with me, pray? Well, I suppose I have all my limbs and all my features, like any other man. I am sorry, Mr. Rochester. Forgive me. It was only a blunder. Yes, so. I think so. And you shall be answerable for it now. Miss Eyre, criticize me. Does my forehead not please you? Does it look as if I am a fool? Far from it, sir. Young lady, I even have a kind of rude tenderness of heart. Or don't you believe that? Oh, why don't you answer me? You look very much puzzled, Miss Eyre. You're not pretty any more than I'm handsome. Puzzled air becomes you. So puzzle on. You puzzled me the first evening I invited you down here. I've almost forgotten you since. Other ideas have driven you from my head. Tonight, I have resolved to be at ease. It would please me to draw you out to learn more of you. Speak. What about, sir? Whatever you like. I leave the choice of subjects and the manner of treating it entirely to you. You're dumb, Miss Ayers, or stubborn. Yes, stubborn and a little annoyed. And it's my fault. I put my request in an absurd and almost insulting form. Miss Ayers, I beg your pardon. Very sorry. Where are you going, Miss Ayers? To put Adele to bed. It's past her bedtime. Confess it. You're afraid of me. I am bewildered. You're afraid. Your self-love dreads a blunder. I have no wish to talk nonsense. If you did it, you would do it in such a grave, quiet manner. I should mistake it for strength. You never laugh, Miss Ayers. Don't trouble to answer. Still bent on going. It is past nine, sir. Good night. Good night. Good night, Miss Ayers. I could not sleep for thinking of Mr. Rochester. 
strange manner of speaking. The sad look that was in his eyes. His moodiness with others. His kindness to me. He had been at Thornfield six days now. Mrs. Fairfax said that he never stayed there more than a fortnight. In a few days, he'd be gone again. Fingers were groping their way along the panels in the dark gallery outside. Who is there? Who is it? Quickly, I got out of bed. I hurried on my frock and a shawl. With trembling hands, I opened the door. The air was filled with smoke. There was a strong smell of burning. Rochester's door was ajar and smoke rushed from his room. I went in. The curtains were on fire. Wake! Wake, Mr. Rochester, wake! I rushed to the basement pitcher. What is it? Is there a flood? No, sir, but there's been a fire. In the name of all the elves in Christendom, is that Jane Eyre? What have you done with me, witch? Sorceress. And this smoke. Who was in this room beside you? You plotted to drown me? I set a candle, sir. Uh, wait, I'll get my dry garments. Where are they? Yes, here they are. There's my dressing gown. I'll run for the candle, sir. Shall I call Mrs. Fairfax? Fairfax. Sir? I'm a deuce you call her, but not at all. This is true. Sure. Look at me, Jane. Jane. Did you hear an odd laugh tonight? Have you heard that laugh before? Something like it? Yes, sir. I thought perhaps one of the staff. Just so, one of the That's that you guessed it, Jane. I'm glad you're the only person acquainted with the precise details of tonight's accident during the talking pool. Jane, say nothing about it. Return to your own room. I shall do very well on the sofa in the library for the rest of the night. Two hours of service will be up. Good night. Are you quitting me already in that way? You have said I might go, sir. Oh, but not without taking leave. Not in that brief, dry fashion. Why, you saved my life. At least shake hands. Jane. Save my life. I knew you'd do me some good in some way, sometime. I'm glad. I'm glad I happen to be awake, sir. But you will go. I'm cold, sir. Uh, cold. Uh, yes, and standing in a pool of water. <laughs> Go, then. Go. listening to the Campbell Playhouse presentation of Jane Eyre, 
Starring Madeline Carroll and Orson Welles. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. This is Ernest Chappell, ladies and gentlemen, welcoming you back to the Campbell Playhouse. In a moment, we shall resume our presentation of Jane Eyre. Uh, but right now, there seems to be a little discussion going on. Let's listen and uh, find out what it's all about. Yes, he's so fond of good soup. I make soup for him as often as I can. But I declare, what with three children in my house? Don't tell me you still make soup. Why, yes, don't you? My husband well, My that... dear, I haven't made a kettle of soup in, oh, ages. But you're such a good cook, Ethel. Why, I thought as a matter of course you made your own soup. No. One day, quite a while ago, I said to myself, I'm going to try one of Campbell's soup. Well, I tried one, and then I tried others, and we liked them so much that from that time on, I've served nothing else. Well, Harry and I decided it just didn't pay for me to bother making soup anymore. Just you serve two or three of your husband's favorite soups as Campbell's make them, and see if you don't do the same as I did and give up making soup at home and and so it goes, as one good home cook tries Campbell's soup, sees how homelike they are and fine flavor and nourishment, notes how much your family likes them, and then tells a friend. Perhaps a friend has persuaded you to try Campbell's soup. Perhaps you're already enjoying at your house your favorites among these 21 fine soups. But if not, won't you try them? If you will, I'm almost sure you too will join with other good home cooks everywhere and turn your soup-making over to Campbell's. And now we resume our presentation of Jane Eyre, starring Orson Welles and Madeline Carroll. I did not see Mr. Rochester again for several weeks. He had left Thornfield Hall. And when he did finally come home, it was with a large company of very elegant guests. For days the house was filled with their maids and valets. There was one lady in particular to whom my master, Mr. Rochester, seemed especially attentive. The Honorable Blanche Ingram, Lord Ingram's sister, she is. She held the most beautiful hair in the county. She is beautiful. And this beautiful and accomplished young lady is not yet married? It appears not. The fact is, she has no very large fortune. But Mrs. Fairfax, is there not some wealthy nobleman or rich man who has taken a fancy to her? Mr. Rochester, for instance? He is rich, is he not? Oh, yes. But you see, there is a considerable difference in age. Mr. Rochester is past 40. Miss Ingram is barely 20. But what is that? More unequal marriages are made every day. True. Yet I scarcely fancy Mr. Rochester would entertain an idea of that. Mr. Rochester is very talented and lively in society. The ladies are very fond of him. But I don't think he has any intention of marrying anybody. What's the matter with you, child? You've eaten nothing. You've scarcely tasted anything since you began to eat. What is it, Jane? What's happened to you? Well, 
chance to observe Miss Ingram myself. That evening, word came that Mr. Rochester wished to introduce my pupil, Adele, to the ladies in the drawing room after dinner. As they came in from the dining room, their dresses gleamed in the light. I rose and curtsied to them. One or two bent their heads in return. The others only stared at me. As soon as I could, I left quietly through the side door. In the passage, I noticed that the ribbon of my shoe was loose. I stooped to tie it. How do you do? Oh, I'm very well, sir. Jane, why did you not come over and speak to me in the drawing room? I did not wish to disturb you. What have you been doing during my absence? Nothing particular. Teaching Adele, as usual. You're getting a good deal paler. Turn to the drawing room, Miss Eyre. Diverting too early. I am tired, sir. And a little depressed. Tonight, I excuse you. Understand that as long as my visitors stay, I expect you to appear in the drawing room every evening. My wish. Don't neglect it. Which devil is that at this time of the night? Shall I go and see, sir? Yes, Jane, I must return to my guest. I fear Miss Ingram will have marked my absence. Well, whoever it is, say I'll, I'll not see him. Yes, sir. Rochester. Yes, Jane. What is this? You seem excited. It's a man to see you, sir. He wouldn't be put off. He said he'd wait for you. He went into the drawing room. The devil he did. Have you got his name? His name is Mason, sir, and he comes from the West Indies. From uh, Jamaica, I think. Mason. West Indies. Is that what he said? Do you feel ill, sir? Jane. Jane. Oh, lean on me, sir. Jane, you offered me a shoulder once before. Let me have it now. Yes, sir. Yes, in my arm. Jane, if all the people in that drawing room came in a body and spat at me, what would you do, Jane? I'd turn them out of the room, sir, if I could. But if I were to go into them and they dropped off and left me one by one, what then? You'd go with them? I rather think not, sir. I should have more pleasure in staying with you. To comfort me? Yes, sir. To comfort you as well as I could. Go in the drawing room, Jane. Just step quietly up to Mason and whisper in his ear that Mr. Rochester wishes to see him. Bring him here and then leave me. Good night. Much later that night, I wakened suddenly. Help! 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 Put on drugs! Rochester! Rochester! Jane! Jane! Jane, get up. I need you. Jane, have you a sponge in your room? Yes, sir. Have you any salt? Yes. Fetch both. Jane. You won't. Turn sick at the sight of blood. I don't think I shall. I've never been tried yet. Let me see. Give me your hand. Warm and steady. You do. I followed Mr. Rochester to the floor above. He entered a large room, and beyond that there was an open door. 
There was a light shining there. And from inside came a low sound, almost like a dog growling. In the chair in the center of the room was the form of a man, huddled and still. Rochester held a candle over it. I saw that it was the stranger Mason, the man that had called earlier that evening. His sleeve and his shirt on one side were soaked with blood. She's done for me. Blood, that's all. Sorry. Jane, hold a candle. What was this? She went at me with her teeth. Mason, you shot me like a dog when you took the knife from her. On your oh, it was frightful. I didn't expect it. She looked so quiet, so quiet at first. I warned you, Mason. I, I thought I could have done some good. You thought, you thought, Mason. It makes me impatient to no. hear you now. Get up. Let's be out of the house before morning. Rochester, she sucked the blood. She said she drained my heart. Oh, be silent. Don't mind her gibberish. Don't repeat it. I wish I could forget it. Oh, you will, Mason, when you're out of the country. Now, come on. I'll help you downstairs. Oh, There's a carriage waiting. When you get back to Spanish town, you'll think of her as dead and buried. You think of her at all. Rochester, let her be taken care of. Let her be treated as, as tenderly as me. Let... I do my best, Mason, and have done my best and will do it. Never fear. Yet, would to God, there was an end to all this. <laughs> It was as if a band of Italian days had come from the south like a flock of glorious passenger birds and lighted to rest them on the cliffs of Elgin. The last of the visitors had long since gone away. A great calm descended upon Thornfield Hall and Mr. Rochester stayed on. Among the servants, the talk continued about his coming marriage to Miss Ingram. Yet I saw no preparations going on for such an event. I used to look at my master's face to see if it was sad or fierce. I could not forget that dreadful night. That strange, secret terror that seemed to hang over him. But I had never seen his face so clear of clouds or your feeling as it was in those weeks. Never had he called me more frequently to his presence. Never had he been kinder to me. And alas, never had I loved him so well. It was midsummer eve. I went down into the orchard. Enticed there by the light of the rising moon. I heard a nightingale singing in the woods far away. The trees were laden with ripening fruit. Jane. Good evening, Jane. Thornfield's a pleasant place, Miss Summer. No. Yes, sir. You must have become to some degree attached to the house. Oh, I am attached to it indeed. And would be sorry to part with it. Yes. Mm -hmm. Pity. So is the way of events, Miss Knight. No sooner have you got settled in a pleasant resting place than a voice calls to you to rise and move on, for the hour of repose has expired. Must I move on? Must I leave Thornfield? I believe you must, Jane. I am sorry, Jane, but I believe indeed you must. Well, sir, 
I shall be ready when the order to march comes. Come now. Let's give it tonight. You're going to be married, sir? Exactly. Precisely. Your usual acuteness, you've hit the nail straight on the head. Soon, sir. Very soon. That means that you and your pupil... Look at me, Jane. You're not turning your head to look after more nightingales, huh? Adele must go to school, and you, Miss Eyre, will get a new station. Yes, sir. I will advertise immediately. Already, through my future mother-in-law, heard of a place that I think will suit, a place in Connacht, Ireland. It's a long way off, sir. From what, Jane? Oh, from England and from Thornfield and... Well? From you, sir. It is, to be sure. It is. We've been good friends, Jane, have we not? Oh, come, we'll sit here in peace tonight, though we should never more sit here together. Sometimes I have a queer feeling with regard to you, Jane. Especially when you are near to me now. It's as if I had a string somewhere under my left ribs, tightly and inextricably knotted to a similar string situated on the corresponding corner of your little frame. And if that boisterous channel comes broad between us, I'm afraid that cord of communion will be snapped. And I have a nervous notion I should take to bleeding inwardly. As for you, you'd forget me. Oh, that I never should, sir, you know. I wish I'd never been born. I wish I'd never come to Thornfield. Because you're sorry to leave it? Because I have known you, Mr. Rochester. And it strikes me with terror and anguish. I absolutely must be torn from you forever. It's like looking at the necessity of death. Where do you see the necessity? Where you, sir, placed it before me. In what shape? In the shape of your bride, Miss Ingram. My bride? What bride? I have no bride. But you will have. Yes, I will. I will. I must go. You have said it yourself. No, you must stay. I swear it, and the oath shall be kept. But I tell you, I must go. Do you think I can stay to become nothing to you? Do you think because I am poor, obscure, plain and little, that I am soulless and heartless? I have as much soul as you and full as much heart. Jane, be still. Jane, I offer you my hand. My heart and a share of all my possessions. Don't mock me. I ask you to pass through life at my side to be my wife. It's you only I intend to marry. Come, Jane. Come here. Your bride stands between. My bride is here. What love would I have for Miss Ingram? None, and that you know. I would not, I could not marry her, you strange almost unearthly. I love you as my own flesh. Do you truly love me? Do you sincerely wish me to be your wife? I do, I swear it. Then, then, I'll marry you. Come to me, Jane. Come to me entirely now. Make my happiness. I will make yours. God pardon me. For men meddle not with me. I have her and I'll hold her. Jane. Jane. 
why I am charge you both, you, Edward Rochester, and you, Jane Eyre, that if either of you know of any impediment why you should not lawfully be joined together in matrimony, do you now confess it? Edward Rochester, wilt thou have this woman for thy wedded wife? This marriage cannot go on. Proceed to service. An insuperable impediment to this marriage exists. I can prove it. What is the nature of the impediment? The existence of a previous marriage. Mr. Rochester has a wedded wife, now living. Can you prove that, sir? Of course, I have an affidavit. I affirm and can prove that Edward Rochester of Thornfield Hall in the county of Yorkshire was married on the 20th of October. That does not prove that my wife is still living. She is living. She is now living at Thornfield Hall. I saw her there last April. Who are you, sir? I am her brother. Gentlemen! Gentlemen! What this man here says is true. Bigamy is an ugly word, yet that is what I meant to be, a bigamist. I have been married, and the woman to whom I was married is alive. And all of you say you never heard of a Mrs. Rochester in a house up yonder. I dare say you've often heard gossip about the mysterious lunatic kept under watch and ward. I now inform you that she is my wife, Bertha Mason, whom I married 15 years ago in Spanish Town, Jamaica. Bertha Mason is insane. She came of an insane family, and they knew it when they let me marry her. You may see for yourself, if you wish, what sort of being I was cheated into marrying and judge whether or not I had a right to break the compact and seek happiness this girl I love. Well, I say, take the coach back to Thornfield. You'll not be wanted today. Have a right about every one of you. Away with your congratulations and your sympathy. Who wants them? They're 15 years too late. Next morning at dawn, I made my possessions into a parcel, tied on my bonnet, pinned my shawl took my slippers, which I had not put on yet, and stole from my room. For the last time, I passed Mr. Rochester's door and started silently down the dark stairs. Jane? Jane? You're going, Jane? I'm going, sir. You're leaving me? Yes. Jane? Don't you mean to go one way in the world and let me go another? I do. You will not stay, Jane. You will not be my comforter, my rescuer, my deep love, my tragic grief. Nothing to you. I must oh, go. Oh, Jane, this is wicked. It would be not. Jane, it won't be wicked to love me. It would be to obey you. And you will not yield. Jane. You will not stay. No. God bless you, my dear master. God keep you from harm and wrong. Reward you well for your past kindness to me. Farewell. Oh, Jane. Farewell. Jane, my hope. My love. Dawn glimmered in the yard. 
I set out across the fields. My shoes were wet with dew. I thought of him now in his room, watching the sun rising, hoping I should soon come back and say I'd stay with him. I went on through the fields, tumbling blindly, not knowing where I was going. A year and a half went by. I took a position that was open in a school in the Midlands, as far as I could from Thornfield. But I thought of Mr. Rochester everywhere. I longed to know what had become of him. In the end, I wrote to Mrs. Fairfax and begged for news. Three months wore away. Day after day, the post arrived and brought nothing for me. Then one day, I could stand it no longer. I packed my things and took a stagecoach for the north. Three to six hours later, I was at Milford. Well, I'm way today, ma'am. You see, we, we don't get many travelers here these days. You lose your way or something? I thought perhaps you could tell me. Is Mr. Rochester living at Thornfield Hall now? Why, Sam, ma'am. You must be a proper stranger in these parts. Don't you know? Thornfield Hall's quite a ruin. Not a stone standing. It was burnt down just about harvest time. Fire broke out in the dead of night. Before the engines arrived from Millcote, the building was one mass of flame. The dead of night. Was it known how it started? Well, they guessed, Mum. They guessed. Indeed, I'd say it was ascertained without a doubt. You see, there was a woman. Would you believe it? A lunatic kept in the house. And this woman turned out to be Mr. Rochester's wife. It all came to light in a strange way. There was a young lady who came to live at the hall, a governess. But the fire, was Mr. Rochester at home when the fire broke out? Oh, yes, indeed he was. He went up to the attic. All was burnt above and below and got the servants out of their beds and helped them down himself. And then he went back to get his mad wife out of her cell. We called to him. She was on the roof and we heard him call her name. We saw him approach her and... And then, ma'am... She yelled, gave a spring, and the next minute she lay smashed on the pavement. Dead? Yes. Dead as the stones on which her brain and blood were scattered. Oh. But is he alive? Huh? Oh, yes. Yes, Mr. Rochester's alive. But many think he'd better be dead. Why, where is he? Is he in England? Aye, aye. He's in England. He can't get out of England. I fancy he's a fixture now. He's stone blind. Yes, he's stone blind, Mr. Rochester. I found him in a small manor house nearby, with two of the old servants from Thornfield looking after him. The parlor looked gloomy. A neglected handful of fire burnt low in the grate. And leaning over it with his head supported against the high old-fashioned mantelpiece stood Mr. Rochester. Is that you, Mrs. Fairfax? Down, Father. Down. Hello. Is you, Mrs. Fairfax, is it not? Mrs. Fairfax is in the kitchen. What is this? Who, who is this? Answer me. 
Speak again. Will you have a little tea? Who is it? Who speaks? Your dog knows me, and John and Mrs. Fairfax know I'm here. I came only this evening. It's come over me. What sweet madness has seized me? Where are you? You only a voice. I can't see, but I must feel that my heart will stop. My brain burst. Very fingers. Small, slight fingers. There must be more of her. Is it Jane? This is her shape. This is her size. And this her voice. She's all here, her heart, too. God bless you, sir. I'm glad to be so near you again. Jane Eyre. entirely for and with what I love best on earth. Edward Rochester continued blind the first two years of our marriage. Then one morning, as I was writing a letter for him to his dictation, he came and bent over me. Jane. Jane. Have you a glittering ornament around your neck? Yes. And Jane... Are you wearing a pale blue dress? Yes. Later, when our firstborn was put into his arms, he could see that the boy had inherited his own eyes as they once were. Laughing, brilliant, and black. Listening to the Campbell Playhouse presentation of Jane Eyre, starring Orson Welles and Madeline Carroll. Mr. Welles and our guest will be back with us in just a moment. Meanwhile, you may have noticed earlier in our program that in speaking of Campbell's chicken soup, I referred to it as homey. Now, that's exactly what it is old fashioned and homey. But while at home, it's often made from leftover chicken. Campbell's use all the choice meat of selected plump chickens in making their chicken soup. With this one advantage, they follow closely the old home way of making chicken soup. They simmer the broth long and slowly till it's rich with chicken flavor. And then they measure in snow white rice and add tempting pieces of chicken meat to lend the final, authentic, home-like touch. Now, isn't that the kind of old-fashioned chicken soup that would appeal to the appetites at your house? I really believe it is. And so I say again, just as sure as you like chicken, you like Campbell's chicken soup. Have it tomorrow, won't you? And now, here is Orson Welles. Tonight, ladies and gentlemen, no introduction is necessary. Jane Eyre, as ever was, was played for you by one of your favorite actresses and one of our favorite guests, Miss Madeline Carroll. Thank you, Orson. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Miss Carroll, ladies and gentlemen, seems fated on this program to play young women 
who have a hard time with their men. When you were with us last, Madeline, in the Garden of Allah, you were not, as I remember, the happiest of girls in your romantic life. No. And last year in the Green Goddess, as a victim of the villainous Rajah of Rook, I wasn't entirely at ease either. about that. I'm sorry about the Rajah. <laughs> but I don't mind the tortures you put me through, Orson. It's so wonderful to be loved that much. Maybe I don't know much about women, Madeline, but I... Don't you think it'd be nice to be loved not quite so much and to be tortured just a little less? Orson, you're right. You don't know much about women. I suppose. But I do know that you've just given us one of the loveliest performances we've ever had on the Campbell Playhouse. We're very happy you've been able to be with us again tonight. Good night, Madeline, and thanks again. Miss Carol, of course, ladies and gentlemen, was Jane Eyre. And you will recognize a great name of the theater. You very possibly recognized a voice. When I tell you that Mrs. Fairfax was played by none other than Cecilia Loftus. Mr. Brocklehurst was Robert Coote. George Coulouris was the innkeeper. Edgar Berrier was the priest. The young Jane Eyre was Sarita Wooten. Rochester was your obedient servant. Music for the Campbell Playhouse was arranged into a large measure composed and is always conducted by Bernard Herman. Ladies and gentlemen, with tonight's broadcast, we are concluding our winter series of Campbell Playhouse presentations. Our sponsors, the makers of Campbell Soups, have asked me to express publicly their appreciation to Orson Welles for his splendid services as the producer and star of the Playhouse, and to you, our listeners, for your interest in our broadcasts and your patronage. Mr. Wells Campbells are happy to have presented the Playhouse with you as its producer, for the past two years. The success of the Campbell Playhouse has been your success. As listeners, our sponsors have asked me to tell you how much they've enjoyed your shows and that each succeeding Sunday evening has confirmed their high regard for you as producer and star. And as sponsors, they've enjoyed, too, the happy association with you. Thank you, Ernest Chappell. I'd like to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that my sponsors are very nice sponsors indeed which is understating the situation. I have enjoyed the opportunity afforded me on the Campbell Playhouse as producer, dramatist, and as actor more than I can tell you. This series of broadcasts has been a genuinely happy experience for me. It's a very pleasant relationship indeed. I'd like now to thank all of those who contributed so generously of their time and talent in assisting actors with whom you are familiar by this time, fine actors like George Coulouris, our own Mercury Group, Ray Collins, Edgar Berrier, Everett Sloan, Agnes Moorhead, Frank Riddick, a lot more I just haven't time to mention. Besides these, the people behind the scenes about whom you know little or nothing, Don McBain, our wonderful engineer, Tracy, our production man, Best in the business. Harry Esman, the wizard of the sound effects department. All the assistants to all these people. These are the Campbell Playhouse. Believe me, they're all wonderful. Now, ladies and gentlemen, permit me to remind you that all of us on the Campbell Playhouse, my sponsors, the makers of Campbell Soups, everybody else on this program remain, as always, obediently yours. <laughs>
if you have enjoyed these Campbell Playhouse presentations, won't you tell your grocer so tomorrow when you order Campbell's chicken soup? And may I also remind you that Campbell's soups are broadcasting many radio shows each week for your enjoyment. Tomorrow morning, for example, you may listen to Campbell's short, short story. And also, Life Begins, the story of Martha Webster. And tomorrow evening, as usual, you may enjoy Amos and Andy. And here is news. Immediately following Amos and Andy tomorrow night, and four nights a week thereafter, you may hear Lanny Ross singing your favorite songs. All these programs come to you from the makers of Campbell Suits. This is Ernest Chappell saying thank you and good night. Columbia Broadcasting System. Latest reports from doctors on the 14-day Palm Olive Plan. Pittsburgh reports better complexions for 67%. St. Louis reports better complexions for 81%. In city after city, doctors tested the 14-day Palm Olive Plan on all types of skin. And two out of three of all women tested got better complexions in 14 days. What is this 14-day Palm Olive Plan? Wash your face three times a day with Palm Olive soap. Then each time take 60 seconds more to massage Palm Olive's lovely soft lather onto your skin as you would a cream. Then rinse. This cleansing massage with palm olive's lather brings your skin its full beautifying effect. See what palm olive can do for your skin in 14 days. Remember, doctors prove palm olive's beauty results. Colgate Tooth Powder's Theater of Romance presents Pride and Prejudice. Yes, tonight and every Tuesday night, Colgate Tooth Powder brings you the Theater of Romance, featuring each week your favorite stories and plays, especially adapted for radio. And here is your host of the evening, Arnold Moss, to tell you about this evening's presentation, Pride and Prejudice. Mrs. Bennett, wife of Mr. Bennett of the estate known as Longburn in England, was the mother of five daughters. We're going to tell you the story of her second eldest daughter, Elizabeth. Elizabeth Bennett was a beautiful girl. Proud? Oh, yes. And prejudiced? Oh, very strongly. Against a certain Mr. Darcy. And this is why. Elizabeth was at a ball given by a Mr. Bingley, who appeared quite interested in Elizabeth's younger sister, Jane. Well, at the ball, Elizabeth was sitting out a dance alone when she overheard... Why are you standing over here by yourself, Darcy? Come on, let's see you dance a few sets. Thank you, no. You're dancing with the only pretty girl in the room, Bingley. Jane Bennett? Yes, she is beautiful. I'll not deny that. But uh, there's her sister Elizabeth sitting over there to the right, who's very beautiful herself. Let me present you to her. Sorry, old man. She may look all right to you, but she doesn't tempt me. And I'm not in a good enough humor to feel like putting up with young ladies who have no partners. 
you can easily see why Elizabeth Bennet became more than a little prejudiced against Mr. Darcy. But later that evening, when she was crossing the room... Oh, uh, Miss Bennet, would you care to dance? No, thank you, Mr. Darcy. I was just going out for a breath of air. Surely you won't refuse me. I suppose I must be the first who ever has, Mr. Darcy. But I am rather critical of my dancing partners, just as you are. And now, please excuse me. You don't like me, do you, Miss Bennet? That is an understatement, Mr. Darcy. I'm very sorry. But there's something that seems to draw me to you. The room was suddenly empty when you started to leave it. Or perhaps it was my heart. Why do you dislike me? Oh, Mr. Darcy, I couldn't begin to tell you. Well, then, I certainly won't force myself upon you any longer. Good evening, Mr. Darcy. Good evening, Miss Bennet. Well, Darcy, why are you walking up and down so late out here? It's almost three in the morning. Why are you walking up and down so late, Bingley? Darcy, don't you think Miss Jane Bennet is a truly remarkable girl? Yes, but I haven't been keeping myself awake over that. I've been thinking what a remarkable girl Miss Elizabeth Bennet is. But I thought you detested her. Yes, I did. But uh, I seem to have become a little mixed up in my emotions. It's so late, Elizabeth. We really should go to bed. I know. But the moonlight's so bright. Mm. Elizabeth, don't you think Mr. Bingley is forever? Extremely. And delightfully charming. Delightfully. Elizabeth, you aren't really listening to me at all. What are you thinking about? How much I dislike Mr. Darcy. Now, while Jane and Bingley were busy dreaming about each other, and while Darcy was dreaming about Elizabeth, and Elizabeth was thinking about how much she disliked him, Mrs. Bennet was busy settling the lives of three of them. Mrs. Bennet, will you please come to bed? You make me so nervous charging up and down the room that I can't close my eyes. Well, Mr. Bennet, if you don't care anything about the future of your daughters, I do. I've got to get them married and settled. Good heavens, I have five on my hands. And practically no one I know has more than two to worry about. Mrs. Bennet, why not leave that in the hands of Providence for tonight? There's really a very small chance of your getting them married at three in the morning. Jane, of course, will marry Mr. Bingley. Now, Elizabeth, I think Elizabeth must marry Mr. Collins. Mr. Collins, all right. May I go to sleep now, Mrs. Bennet? Yes. Mr. Bennet, you may. Miss Elizabeth, uh, permit me to tell you that I have your mother's permission to address you on the subject of matrimony. I'm sorry, Mr. Collins, but I'm not in love with you. My patroness and esteemed friend, Lady Catherine Lebrow, will, will be most disappointed... I have already informed her of my intentions towards you. Surely Lady Dubrow must have problems of her own to think about? She is most anxious to see me settled and to see her own daughter settled with Mr. Darcy. Mr. Darcy? They have been engaged since they were born. Uh, Lady Catherine and Mr. Darcy's mother made all the arrangements. I wish them great joy. 
Although, in my opinion, Mr. Darcy is the most impossible, vain, egotistical, unpleasant, ill-mannered man it has ever been my bad fortune to meet. I'm sorry I didn't mention Mr. Darcy sooner, Miss Elizabeth. I would have known then why there is no hope for me. Bennett. Oh, Miss Bennett. Mr. Darcy. We seem to be walking in the same direction. I can change my direction. I'm only out for a little pleasant air. I've had a very wearing day. No, I'll change my direction. I wouldn't think of spoiling your walk. Just as you wish, Mr. Darcy. This seems as good a time as any to say goodbye, I suppose. Goodbye? I thought you and Mr. Bingley were going to be here all the winter. We had a change of plans. My sister has not been well, and I'm taking her to Italy. Bingley's coming along with us. He and Gladys, uh, well, there's been an understanding between them for some time. You follow me, don't you? Perfectly, Mr. Darcy. I think they'll be getting married in the spring as soon as we can work it out. When two people are in love, there's no point in waiting, is there? Of course not. Especially if one of the people seems to be falling in love with someone else. Ah, you do follow me. You see, Miss Bennett, you have a designing mother, and my sister's happiness is at stake. Your mother talks too much, Miss Bennett, much too much for someone after such an elusive thing as a proposal of marriage. She's been telling everyone in the neighborhood that Miss Jane and Bingley were as good as engaged. Well, now that she's made that little bed, she and Jane will have to lie in it, alone. And now, good day, Miss Bennett. Good day and goodbye. I'm sorry we were never able to get along. Because I think you're a fine and beautiful woman. Whatever I think of the designs of your mother and sister. Do you think I care what you think of me? No, I entertain no such hopes, Miss Bennett. If I ever had any little conceits, you've long since destroyed them. Undoubtedly, that will give you great personal satisfaction. Goodbye, Mr. Darcy. I hope you'll be very happy in Italy. If it's any consolation to you, I won't. You see... I haven't escaped entirely unscathed in this fray. I have a few wounds to lick myself. Goodbye, Miss Bennett. We'll be back in just a moment with the second act of Pride and Prejudice. And now here is Del Sharbot. You know it, I know it, everyone knows it. If you want to be popular, always have a breath that's sweet. That advice is solid. And solid, too, is this advice. Use Colgate tooth powder night and morning and before every date. For Colgate is the only tooth powder that offers proof of this fact. Scientific tests have definitely proved that Colgate tooth powder stops unpleasing breath that originates in the mouth. Stops it instantly in seven cases out of ten. Yes, Colgate tooth powder is the only tooth powder that offers you this proof. Well, you know what to do. For a breath that's sweet and a smile that dazzles, use Colgate tooth powder night and morning and before every date. Because instantly it stops unpleasing breath that originates in the mouth in seven cases out of ten. Its safe, gentle polishing agent quickly removes dull, dingy surface film, reveals all the natural luster of your teeth. Sweet breath, dazzling smiles. Why accept less of any dentifrice? Get Colgate tooth powder tonight. Remember the name, Colgate tooth powder with the accent on powder. And now the second act of 
Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> Mrs. Bennett, will you kindly stop that infernal noise? Oh, my poor Jane, my poor broken-hearted baby. How could any man be so cruel and black-hearted? How could any man go off without a word of farewell after all the attentions he's showed her? Mother, please, you're keeping everyone in the house awake. How can you be so callous, Elizabeth Bennet? Don't you care that your sister has a broken heart? <laughs> oh, eternal perdition. Mother, please stop crying about me. I'm all right. Oh, my baby, my poor broken-hearted baby. Mother, I don't want to hear any more of this. It's humiliating and very upsetting. I would appreciate it if you never mentioned Mr. Bingley's name to me again. Come on, Elizabeth. Let's go back to our room. Good night, Father. Mother. Good night, girls. Good night. <laughs> oh, Mr. Bennett. Now I've got to start from scratch again. I've got five daughters and not one husband in sight. I declare I could just cry. I'm that disappointed. <laughs> Elizabeth, please don't hum that song. Oh, Jane, I am sorry. I don't mean to be annoying. <laughs> That's one of Mr. Bingley's favorite songs. He sang it to me at the ball. Oh, Elizabeth, I'm afraid I love him very much. I ought to be too proud to admit that. But tonight I don't seem to have any pride. Tonight all I can think is... How lovely life was for a few weeks. How lovely it might have been. Oh, Jane. You don't know what it's like, Elizabeth. You've never been in love. It hurts so much you want to die. Yet you know you won't die. So go on living with the hurt. And when the hurt finally goes, you'll be completely empty. Empty. The room was suddenly empty when you walked out. Or perhaps it was my heart. What are you talking about? Someone said that to me once. You never told me. Someone you loved? Someone I might have loved. I know who, Elizabeth. I've guessed. I'm sorry I said that. It was selfish of me. You know far more about how love can hurt than I. I at least had a few weeks of happiness. I did not say I was in love. I only said I might have been, if I didn't despise him so. Don't be too proud, Elizabeth. Pride is such a lonely thing when you choose it in place of love. Pride is all I have, all I've been offered, and all I want. Good night, Jane. I'm very sleepy. Good night, Elizabeth. Mr. Darcy, this is a surprise. Good afternoon, Miss Bennett. You're looking thin and not a bit well. Didn't Italy agree with you? Not too much, no. Miss Bennett, there's something I must tell you. It's not at all easy since you've gone to much pains to let me see how distasteful I am to you. But I love you, and I have to tell you. Have you lost your mind? No, no. Only my heart. Elizabeth, will you marry me? I offer you a name of some honor through many generations, security and comfort, and my great devotion. You surely cannot think that I will accept you. 
Even you could not have that much conceit. I hoped you might accept me. Let us put it that way. Mr. Darcy, I've never asked for your good opinion or your love, and I'm amazed that you have chosen to bestow them on me. There have been a lot of tears shed in this house in the past few months, and you have been the cause of all of them. I assure you that I would marry anyone in the world before I would marry you. Forgive me for boring you, Miss Bennet, and for taking up your time. Don't think that you can make me ashamed of my love, because it is above reproach and the best that's in me to offer a woman. But I am ashamed of the object of my love. I thought I was kneeling at your feet when I asked you to marry me. Now I see I was stooping a little. Thank you for refusing me. Forgive me for taking up so much of your time and accept my best wishes for your health and happiness. What's wrong, my dear? Oh, it's Lydia. It's Lydia. She's run off with a soldier. Oh, look at this note. Oh, my baby, my poor baby, married without her mother there. God bless her. Oh, oh, Mr. Bennett, he will marry her, won't he? No soldier would be as low as to run off with a young lady and not marry her, would he? What do you think, Mrs. Bennett? Oh, Mr. Bennett, oh, Elizabeth, what am I to do? This will ruin us all. We'll never get any husband. You have all the law allows, my dear. Aren't you going to get your horse whip and go after that man, Mr. Bennett? Yes, madam, I am, as soon as I can get dressed. Someone should have warned me what marriage can lead to. I might have avoided this all 30 years ago. No, Mr. Bennett! Madam, be silent. If Lydia isn't married now, she will be very soon. I'll see to that. I want to talk to you. Yes, Elizabeth? When you went up to London and got Lydia married, just how did you manage it? Oh, there was nothing to it, my dear. Lydia says you gave them a thousand pounds. Where did you get the thousand pounds, father? From Mr. Darcy, Elizabeth. Mr. Darcy? Yes, he came to see me. He'd heard about Lydia, and he said the only way to straighten things out was to give them some money to get them started. You shouldn't have accepted any money like that from Mr. Darcy. He's not a friend of ours, Father. Not a friend? He's a friend in need. It's only a loan. I'll pay it back. It's a shame that you can't find anything good about Mr. Darcy, Elizabeth. And it's a shame that you resent it when you come face to face with something that's so kind and good you can't deny it. Are you in love with Mr. Darcy, daughter? Why does everyone keep asking me if I'm in love with that man? Maybe because you have so many symptoms. It takes more than symptoms to make a case of anything. I'm not in love with him. And no matter what he does for this family, I'm not going to be in love with him. All right, Elizabeth, all right. Elizabeth, oh, Elizabeth, darling. Mr. Bingley and I have something to tell you. We wanted you to be the first to know. Mr. Bingley, how do you do? I didn't dream you were in this part of the country. I only returned this morning. Will you tell her, Jane, or shall I? You don't have to tell me anything. It's written all over your faces. I congratulate you both. Well, I think I wouldn't have known that Jane cared if it hadn't been for Mr. Darcy. I still get shaky. Mr. Darcy? Of course. He spent all those months in Italy telling me about Jane. I only left, you know, because I... I couldn't believe she cared, and I wanted to try and get over her. 
But Darcy kept after me week in and week out, saying, where's your courage? At least go back and ask her. We owe Mr. Darcy a great deal, Elizabeth. Yes. So it would seem. He's down at the gypsy camp just now, listening to their music. Why don't you go down and see him? Yes. Yes, I must. Oh, I've been such a fool. I wonder if he'll ever forgive me. Mr. Darcy, I... Miss Bennett. It seems I owe you both apologies and gratitude. Please, please, I don't want gratitude from you. I wish you did, Mr. Darcy. You paid me the very great compliment once of asking me to marry you. I wish I had not been so hasty or so rude as to say no. If I asked you again, what would my answer be this time? Are you asking, Mr. Darcy? Oh, no. Uh, oh. I'm just considering it. What would my answer be? Please tell me, Miss Bennett. Or have you too much pride? Why, Mr. Darcy, if you did ask me again, I would say, thank you so much. I'll try very hard to make you happy. And I would say, I've loved you from the first moment. But I seem to find it very difficult to say so. And I would say I'm yours now, whether you want me or not. Completely and forever. My darling. My darling. I love you, Mr. Darcy. Very, very dearly. Mrs. Bennet, I'm very sleepy. What are you crying about now? Lydia's married, and Jane and Elizabeth soon will be, and we have only two daughters left. Oh, Mr. Bennet, we're going to be so lonely all alone. They'll be married, too, before we're turned around. I've lost my baby. Madam, you baffle me completely. That's because you've never been a mother, Mr. Bennet. That's because you've never been mother. Praise God, I never shall. Amen to that, Mr. Bennett. Amen indeed, madam. And now, please, may I get some sleep? Yes, Mr. Bennett. You may. Good night. Good night. Mr. Bennett is very tired, and we don't want to keep him awake, so we'll just tell you that Everyone lived happily ever after, as was the custom in those days, with no further prejudices and just the right amount of pride. The curtain has fallen on tonight's play, Pride and Prejudice. In just a moment, we'll tell you about next week's play. But right now, listen... Girls don't say, I'm pleased to meet a man with breath, not always sweet. What to do? It's simple. Just brush your teeth with Colgate tooth powder night and morning and before every date for a breath that's sweet and a smile that dazzles. Scientific tests prove in seven cases out of ten, Colgate tooth powder instantly stops unpleasing breath that originates in the mouth while gently removing dull surface film from the teeth. Colgate is the only tooth powder that offers proof of this claim. Yes, Colgate Tooth Powder performs what it promises, sweetens your breath in seven cases out of ten. At the same time, its gentle polishing agent removes dingy film, revealing the natural luster of your teeth, leaving them excitingly clean. 
Make it a must. Use Colgate Tooth Powder night and morning and before every date. Remember the name, Colgate Tooth Powder, with the accent on powder. Our play next week is the modern romantic story, Dark Victory, the story of a daring young woman who, years before her time, comes face to face with destiny. Until next Tuesday, then, when Colgate Tooth Powder's Theater of Romance presents Dark Victory. This is your host, Arnold Moss, saying good night and wishing you love, happiness, and romance. In tonight's play, Elizabeth was played by Joan Wetmore and Mr. Darcy by Alex Scurvy. The radio adaptation was by Gene Holloway, the music composed and conducted by Ben Ludlow, and the production was directed by Mark Sloeb. Johnny Sparks is coming home next week. It's his last lead before he goes over. His last chance to tell the family goodbye. And maybe his first chance to see his new baby. Now, will you make sure that Johnny and his buddies have a seat or a berth on the train? You will if you'll forego every trip that's not absolutely essential. And please don't travel over Labor Day weekend. Because this Labor Day, every railroad in the country will be taxed with terrific loads. So please put off that pleasure trip until after the victory bells ring out. Please don't travel unless your trip is vital to the war. And here's a thought for everyone. Six million Americans are fighting overseas. Here at home, let's all remember that until final victory everywhere, winning the war still comes first with every last one of us. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.